Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. I'm a fan of classic movies. Hello and welcome to Overlapping Dialogue, a podcast of double features dedicated to programming the finest, most eclectic, and downright bizarre film pairings and cataloging the discussions that ensue. We're your gruesome twosome, Kyle and Levi Huffman. I'm Kyle. I'm Levi. And welcome to Overlapping Dialogue, episode 75, Levi. We've done mm-hmm. 75 of these now. Well, a little yeah. more. We take into account some bonus episodes. And don't worry, there may be some bonus episodes on the horizon, as we'll get to by the very end of this. This episode, again, we've been going through the films of the 1990s, uh, picking every, you know, going through every year and picking two films that we think... Um, either serve as counterpoints or possibly in conversation with one another, as we like to do. This week, we're taking a little walk on the wild side, getting in touch with our uh, natural habitat with The River Wild from 1994 and Wolf also from 1994. And we'll get into how these films both distinctly are their own thing and separately connect, or you know, distinctly connect yeah. a little bit later. But before we even get into the Blue Plate special, Levi... Well, we, to celebrate our 75th episode, yeah. The Grimmest Birthday Meal. The Grimmest Birthday Meal. just came out last week from when we're recording this. Or, yeah, when this will be released, too. It would have been last week. Yeah. Um, that the uh, Grimmest Birthday Meal was essentially just a marketing ploy to sell this new milkshake that mm-hmm. they've come up with, which is uh, a uh, you know berry-flavored kind of purple milkshake that's... Grimace themed. That's essentially um, just paired with a Big Mac, uh, yeah, it's, or it's e- okay, ten so piece nuggets. It's either a Big Mac or ten piece nuggets with the milkshake and a big, a big uh, blanking fry. As somebody <laughs> we, in our lives, well, that yeah. we like to keep out of our lives yeah. as much as possible. Um, don't worry, he's in print, so yeah. you know, other folks might know. Um. <laughs> But uh, not in the way he would like. So Levi, um, you're you're anyway. you're a big fan of these um specialty meals. Yeah, McDonald's not, been doing more yeah, and more the last not so many as much years. as people like on the Purple Stuff podcast of the Dinosaur Dracula and all those folks are the people who are real obsessed with this stuff. Dinosaur Dracula sounds like a good uh, MC Dino name. Drac yeah. is what I think <laughs> of. I like that podcast by the way. They they talk about a lot of random pop cultural things that are kind of mm-hmm. interesting. Um, and then the name of the other guys is escaping me at the moment but anyway uh he was on something called sludge central i don't remember jay that's his name mm-hmm. um but anyway anyway podcast that 
we have nothing to do with, but yeah. anyway. Uh, and, yeah, there's a lot of people who are real obsessed with this kind of stuff. I know that uh, Matt Singer really loves doing this stuff with movie tie-in stuff yeah. that Denny's does a lot. I mean, other people do, too. But Oh, yeah, I forgot um, all about that. Yeah, he know, used to go and eat every movie yeah. tie-in meal, right. which I feel like is, I would say it's not as big as it used to be, but some of this stuff is kind of making a weird comeback. It was yeah. bigger in the 90s and 2000s, I feel like. Yeah, well, I remember now. it was bigger even just like, uh, you know, partnerships, sponsorships with, like, Hardee's used to do all kinds of stuff. They do stuff for Spider-Man. Burger King did a lot. They did uh, Pokemon stuff. Mm-hmm. I remember they did a lot of stuff with Wild Wild West when that came out. I remember even getting Wild Wild West glasses that they sold. Uh, and then they what also had, like... Those? I don't know. There's somewhere I think mm. somewhere. But you mean glasses you wear on your face or glasses? yeah? Because yeah, yeah you oh, know, they're oh, like okay. almost pseudo. For a second, and I, I say thought, this in heavy quotations. Yeah. Designer glasses yeah. with the various right. with Burger the King wild, wild with, or, yeah. yeah um wiki wow 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 um wow wow um wow 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 just figured I'd wow wow again um wow wow it out yeah. Um, but because I thought for a second you were talking about glasses that you drink out of, because they used to do. Stuff oh, like uh, that they too. did that too. I but remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, that's I what McDonald's I was, say. was, what was big with that in the a lot of the Batman yeah. stuff in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we used to have a uh, Batman Forever. Yeah, and it broke, I think. And then I've looked about buying ones of those, mm-hmm. and they're not cheap now. They're like yeah. getting up there. So, um. You know, of course, you never forget the story about the Two-Face action figure that I think mm-hmm. that my great aunt might have thrown away. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Go and scour the archives for I that I don't remember story. what episode that would have been on. I have no idea, yet. but yeah, it's been a while. Um, been a while. Uh, but yeah, so I'm kind of, anyway, to get back to it, I am interested when they try to do things like this. Oh, by the way, the last time I really remember a big tie-in meal, well... They're doing that with Diablo 4 with KFC right now, randomly, which is so random. <laughs> what to a me. random yeah. uh, combination um, of brands that is. But I remember at Hardee's, they had, I'm not even making this up, and it wasn't a meal or anything, or but they had stuff advertising Dunkirk, which was so weird to me. Yeah, because that's not about that this. big yeah. of a thing, you know, like, yeah. like, but just because it was a Christopher Nolan movie, I guess. Yeah. They're not doing that with Oppenheimer. Yeah. Now, that would be interesting if they did that. You know how Burger King does these weird, like... Now, Burger King did all the Stranger Things stuff, too, here more recently. But um, you know how they do stuff at Burger King where they have these, like, different colored uh, um, buns that they do? Well, I was getting ready to say, I remember back when, I think it was Revenge of the Sith came out, they did, like, a Darth Vader burger... Yeah. I don't know if you remember So maybe that they at should all. do like a spicy Oppenheim, Wappenheimer. Wappenheimer. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, and like literally make you go to the bathroom immediately basically yeah here's i forgot about that of the yeah the black bun darth Vader right. thing uh but anyway so Wappenheimer, i love it yeah get on that burger king well it's not like the spielbergers you know cease and desist guy sorry guys like you know can we just actually play the audio <laughs> yeah. of that here hey there uh, it's recently come to my attention that carl's jr wants to rename the charbroiled sliders spielbergers and they're pretty good uh but I, I'm passing. Cease and desist. Can't do it. Sorry, guys. You know what the other great thing about that whole moment was? Is there was a guy who made a parody video of that, and he kept talking and walking back and forth in his apartment, which was like way, way smaller than Steven Spielberg's uh, I love how, house. So, how like, specifically niche the whole thing yeah. was. Like, <laughs> so, like, so go specific. look that up if yeah. you're able to find it. I don't remember the name of it, but. 
But anyway, so anyway, getting to all that, what they do now, though, with McDonald's, who's always done stuff like, uh, they're a little less on that kind of thing than they are, like, partnering with specific people or, well, of course, they've always brought back the McRib, and that's a whole thing. Mm -hmm. But here, more recently, they've done, like, the Travis Scott meal and the Jay Balvin meal, which is basically just saying, what do you get when you go to McDonald's, usually? Mm -hmm. I was always hoping they do a Pitbull meal, but they never did. Uh, maybe one day. Um, but anyway, so they've done this Grimace meal, which is interesting because... Grimace, one of the signature McDonald right, Land because characters. they haven't done stuff with McDonald Land in a while. Um, By the way, and, this reminded me, I went on... Because yeah. I was like, I've been thinking for a while, like, what even is Grimace? Like, yeah. what is it? And so if you type in Grimace in Wikipedia, it right. takes you to the McDonald mm-hmm. Land. That took off in the 70s, am I right? Yeah, okay. The that was around Land. the same time that Burger King had all those similar... Because, uh, you know, the uh, Burger King originally was like a magical figure mm-hmm. rather than the weird, like... What we what, remember more so right, is the weird, the weird 2000 suit figure, yeah, which is like intentionally strange yeah. and creepy. Yeah. That was a lot more about, like, it had the Wizard of Fries and the du- the Duke of Doubt and all this yeah. crap. Like, yeah, Anyways, but, so I looked up Grimace um, on the McDonald Land Wikipedia page, and it says, a large purple monster. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I mean, didn't know specifically it was like... Grimaces are Grimace, like, there's no, yeah. It's not like Birdie or Hamburger, though. It says uh, like, Grimace's first appearance is he was one of the original main antagonists. What? And was depicted with the two pair of arms which were used to steal mix, milkshakes and Cokes. Evil was soon dropped from Grimace's name and was reintroduced in 1972 as a protagonist. Where he only has one set of arms. Let's so there was an evil Grimace period that had two sets of arms? With. That's what it says. I'm going to have to look up merch of that and buy Two pairs of arms, yeah. That's insane. Now, yeah, because I heard two pairs of arms and it didn't register when you first said that. Two pairs of arms? Yeah, like, it says also here, a 2014 yeah. tweet from the McDonald's Twitter account stated, quote, Grimace lore says he is the embodiment of a milkshake or taste bud. So what? More specifically, that's what he uh, represents. A taste bud is interesting. Um, but yeah, because Birdie is obviously a bird. Honestly, the Hamburglar is the weirdest thing to me because it's clearly a humanoid person, mm-hmm. but like he doesn't look like a n- normal one of the, person. One of my you know, favorite, like, very weird. favorite pieces of internet writing of all time was from Rembert Brown on Grantland. Mm. When they were like doing this quote new hamburglar thing, it's like yes. one of the funniest things. I've that was ever when read. it was like, like I forgot that that yeah they did that new hamburglar, and it, it was like he was like a real person. He looked like yeah. like a Frenchman basically. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, so they haven't done a whole lot with this stuff in a while, and it's been interesting to see the uh, pictures that on the commercials of like what grimace old is, looking yeah. Yeah. McDonald characters. Go ahead. One la- the last yeah. thing I want to say okay. about this about grimace. Writing in the takeout, Lillian Stone disputed this uh, earlier thing that um, Grimace is a taste bud, uh, pointing out that other materials established Grimace was part of the spe- uh, species of Grimaces, including Uncle O'Grimacy, who promoted the shamrock shake. I'm not familiar with... Uh, Uncle O'Grimacy? Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Uncle O'Grimacy, who's, I guess, the Irish Grimace. <laughs> Okay. You remember how they talked on the... And by the way, we're eventually probably going to do like 
full-on commentaries of those like wacky adventures of yeah, Ronald McDonald. We won't get into that too much right now, but we grew up watching yeah. that, and, and so and we've that, talked about since the history of this podcast, right? Going back and actually yeah. doing commentaries. But we, of those. but there was that whole episode of Grimace Island, and all of them talk like "duh" all the time. So I'm wondering what this is, Uncle O'Grimacy. Holy cow! I've never seen before. He's literally like Grimace but green. But but I'm wondering how that would sound those people as Irish. Like, yeah. Duh, yeah. like you know, like, oh, you die, like you know. But grimace, yeah. like for what we yeah. know him as, is such a benevolent, like yeah. happy. I'm fascinated. He's by almost this like Fozzie Bear, yeah. like mixed with like, and he's scared all the time. Uh, yeah, yeah, being just scared all the time. I don't know. It's very yeah. bizarre that this this was actually the original well, origins yeah. of grimace. Because that's what I think of. It was a different is, time, the seventies. You know, yeah, is him in those it wacky for the plumbers, so right way back when. Well, that's why they got caught because they're like trying to be quiet and then he's like, mm-hmm. yeah. like <laughs> but then got away but then like what like, yeah, like yeah. what was the reason they got caught yeah like, yeah but he's like you imagine him we'll talk about like, the plumbers you know. here in a little bit actually with uh oh yes the, okay the of passing course. of a certain individual. yes 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 um uh yeah um but so anyway getting to the meal it's interesting they've decided out of nowhere to be like the grimace birthday meal What's even funnier about this is all the ads have Brian Cox's voice. Yeah, he's been <laughs> he's been he's narrating like, some McDonald's commercials. Which you can tell recently. he's more into than doing Succession. <laughs> I'm not even gonna go into this too far. It's like every time he like has a new quote, it's like, yeah, and I don't know what happened. Yeah, There's some switch got flipped yeah. in him. He apparently sounds really bitter that um they wrote him out when they did. It's so rebellion, seen, sabotage, yeah. like. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I don't know. Yeah. The whole thing's bizarre. It is interesting that. though that yeah, he was like doing all these McDonald's ads, and he sounds way more excited doing that. <laughs> um, it, now it's like FYC season. It's like, why are we doing do what for your consideration oh, season? Okay. Like I'm having Hollywood like, for the Emmys. <laughs> for some reason, I heard FDIC in there. <laughs> I was like, what? Federal Deposit uh, Insurance Corporation season. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but there was $250,000 or less they're insured go on please <laughs> <laughs> there's that now I'm thinking of them talking about oh Grimace and he's like he's he's the worst McDonaldland character we have like, you know, <laughs> like, it's like, like Rushmore yeah. um, but yeah so anyway to get to it we went earlier this week to eat the Grimace meal you did not partake in the Grimace meal which is you know acceptable but but you know. uh, <laughs> no, I mean you. It's funny because we. Were I, I almost it. did. Yeah. I actually well, was. We were buying it. it. We were buying it, and Kyle was like, "Oh, I didn't get it." Like he was scared of me. I was like, I "Could care less," because I've been kind of making a big deal I, about I kind this. Of for actually, the past was month. close to getting it, but I didn't. Uh, but you know, I ate the Big Mac like normal. Could you have ordered fries. the shake separately, or is it one of those things? I like, don't know. I think it's kind of like. I wonder if somebody really was a hard case about it though. They'd let them. They'd they'd sell it to them. Everything that I have heard. Has led me to believe they'd say get the shake with the meal. <laughs> I've heard that in the commercials to make me think where they're like, yeah, you got to get it with it. Yeah, right. And by the way, it was a ten dollar meal. Mm-hmm. It wasn't cheap. I mean, it, it was quite a bit. You know, it was also stupid about that is I forgot that I had a Dagum uh, gift card that I've had for a while that somebody gave me to McDonald's mm-hmm. that I haven't used, and I totally forgot. And then I was like, oh well, whatever. Yeah, next time, I guess I'll use it next time. But anyway, that's for the uh, so hamburger I, meal. I don't even know what that'll oh be God. one day. That'll be hilarious. It'll I'm be going like all in on 15 that. Fifteen burgers or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, do you remember him? Fifty-five burgers, fifty-five fries. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Come in on a 
come in on a uh, a uh, what do you call those the zip, zip line. line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can maybe talk about that a little which later. Is my but uh, the newest uh, season of yeah. uh, Thank You Should Leave, yeah. which was and really funny. We did because it was over. Um, but uh, yeah, and so. The shake was pretty good. I mean, I prefer a regular one, but yeah, it was actually better than it could have been. I was kind of worried because I'm because the Shamrock Shake I think is terrible. Yeah, I, I hate yeah, it. I don't like so it. like, and you said you before, know, like when it's like around St. Patrick's Day, you can't even get like the, a regular. Now shake, I don't right? know about that definitively now because this has been like 15 years ago at the Boone in North Carolina McDonald's. Mm-hmm. But I remember I got it up there one time. It was in March. Yeah, and they. And I was unable to get the normal, like, shake. I asked them for a milkshake, and they yeah. gave me the shamrock shake. Mm. I think that happened to me another time, too. So maybe that doesn't happen everywhere, But and they're just lazy, and they're like, well, this is all we're doing all month. Yeah. Like, you know, no, no, we ain't changing the machine. Right, that, whatever. But anyway, so, yeah, I, was, I thought that was strange. Well, I mean, so but, to go through the meal itself, yeah, but, it's a Big Mac, which... Like I said, like, yeah. so the Big Mac, which... I, it's funny because you the J Valvine meal. I remember he was like, "No pickles for me, please." And I'm like, "Actually, I want the pickles." I love the, the specificity no of like on his meal. I'm sure he had all these meetings with McDonald's executives, and they're like, "What do you want the J Valvine meal to be?" And he's like, he's going through it, and then he's like, made a big declaration. All of a sudden, in the meeting, like, "No pickles." Like, and but like, guess what? When you bought it, it came with everything. So it did have pickles on it. Oh yeah, that was just part of the marketing because they're just lazy. They don't want to fix that. Oh, okay. You know, you see what I mean? Mm. It's like, you know, it's a whole corporate I thought that it like actually no, was part no. of the thing. No. Do you remember what the Travis Scott meal was? No, because that happened before I did the J Balvin meal, I think. And I'm not really aware. So, yeah, look that up. You know, the Travis, before the Travis Scott world event <laughs> happened. Uh, let's see. Like a burger is a beef patty with two slices. Sounds like a double cheeseburger. Thick cut applewood smoked bacon, lettuce, pickles, onions, mustard, ketchup, all over a quarter pound. Says okay, actually, Dad it's gum. a quarter pounder. Yeah, uh, it sounds like a lot. Comes with six hundred and thirty calories. Anyway, yeah. Uh, so you liked it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I liked it because it had the shake with it too, and it's not something I would like want to get all the time, but it was cool to have just the once at least, and. You know, but I've just been obsessed. I think everybody's obsessing over this grimace meal because it's so random. Because it's just like, <laughs> why are we doing? It also this? canonically gives him a birthday, I guess. Right. Well, did it say a specific day? It was basically all. No, week. it was saying. Well, no, it's all month. It's supposed to be all right. All of June, June anyway. Yeah. Happy Pride. Uh, I guess. McDonald's. Yeah. Um. But the yeah, it, it started on June twelfth. So I don't know if okay. that, that's what we're going to say. Canonically. Is. Yeah. But <laughs> who's next? Who, who deserves a meal next? Gary Probably the, fr- the Fry Kids, I think. Oh, oh well, well about, oh. Let's, we need to gravitate towards both celebrities and McDonaldland characters. You we know? gotta get or the uh, the Fry Kids or those McNugget things, mm-hmm. like yeah. Uh, it, it, how like slapdash they were involved in the in the wacky adventures of Ron McDonald. Which like, ones? The uh, the Fry Kids, yeah, or the Nuggets too. Like, Either I one, guess, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So just, by the way, the only thing that's funny is like the Nuggets. It's like, what do people eat them? Like, yeah, that's weird. They're like little chickens, basically. Anyway, that's well, that so weird. Grimace is like a apparently an anthropomorphic taste bud, I guess. Uh, like. Yeah, well, not at that time he wasn't. <laughs> yeah, they've come up with that crap now. It's like, I think Bill Clinton know. deserves a meal. I mean, because he was very famous in the '90s for McDonald's. Like, 
Imagine a former president of the United States like moonlighting and it's as a like McDonald's the whole menu for him. Yeah, basically, like, I want the whole daggum freaking menu. I want menu. the whole daggum. Forget the dollar menu. I want the bill menu. <laughs> you know. So um, again, Gary Busey, yeah. another '90s icon in his own that way. It was great. Uh, Bill Clinton, uh, Roseanne Barr. You know, another Kevin '90s Federline. icon. Yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, yeah. Uh. But stay tuned for updates on whatever the newest McDonald's meals are. Yeah. Maybe we'll turn this into a recurrent segment. What about the John Hinckley Jr. meal? Why don't we do that? <laughs> He's not really up to anything these days. To honor him being out right. of prison now, you know. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. I think we're going to stop with... Because, uh, no, I was about to go into other names, and I'm like, no, we're not going to make fun of that. Jeff Mangum meal? Because at least he... Well, I'm talking about in the John uh, yeah, Hinckley yeah, yeah. Jr. direction. Universe. Uh, MCU, right? The but, uh, yeah, the Jeff Mangum meal—that'd be funny. It's probably just like ketchup. There's just yeah, like <laughs> or something, you know. Or but you gotta feel real like, and I say I'm saying all this is a big Jeff Mangum fan, but like, yeah. you gotta feel very moody about holding it. Like you can't just hold yeah, it. Right. It's, like, it's this is. Do you remember there was serious. that video of him like? Are you recording me? Yeah. Are you recording me? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like a show. <laughs> it's like yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if they would have just said, yeah, he would have been like, oh, okay. Or he just says, be warned. Beware. Beware. As far as other characters, though, I mean, I think the Hamburglar is going to be the obvious yeah. one. It's like, what would Birdie do? Birdseed? Like, well, you know, okay. Or like apples? I I, like, I'm not versed totally in the McDonald land. Oh, we got to do a Mary McCheese thing around an election. Yeah. That's got to happen. But with Birdie, like, was that a McDonald land character? Prior to the yeah. wacky, I just don't, I don't remember ever seeing that. Maybe again, maybe it's out there. Yeah. I just didn't. Now, see one it, of the but. great uh, folks on Twitter is the out of context Ronald McDonald. <laughs> yeah, they like you to, tweeted about. Yeah. Well, no, the was it the McDonald's account tweeted back at you. No, oh, that, 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 account. The, that account. That oh, account, okay. the McDonald's account did like it that I had put it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you even took pictures of fellow traveler. Well, I'll talk about yeah. that in a second, but. <laughs> One thing I like, I really like about the out of context Ronald McDonald, they put up a lot of stuff from the seventies and eighties mm-hmm. I've never seen. Yeah, right. There's that one where there's like these aliens, and it's like welcome to McDonald Land, and all these aliens get what they're like weird looking like orange blob things mm-hmm. with like a TV on yeah. their face, basically, <laughs> and they're like, uh, we, oh, maybe we uh, could see the return of uh, Mac tonight. Through I was going to say, yeah. That would be interesting. There's a really good little video on YouTube that talks about the history of that. I don't know if you've seen it. And in recent years, he's been appropriated by the far right, and there's like this whole thing with really? that. Really? I don't know if you know that Why? at all. Yeah. Why? I don't know. Like, like, it's, you know how Pepe the Frog is a whole thing? Yeah. Like it's connected to that Mac universe? Tonight. Yeah. It's like stuff. It's like five year olds came up with, oh, let's, let's take that and make it ours. Like, yeah, that's what right wingers. White wingers. White wingers. White weddings. Dude. White wedding. Um, yeah, he's kind of tonight. he's kind of been a bigger deal back in recent years. Uh, let's read a little bit about Mac tonight. He originally conceived as a promotion to increase dinner sales by Southern California licensees. Mac tonight's popularity led McDonald's to take it nationwide in 1987. Uh, ceased airing the commercials, retired the character in '89, reintroduced the character 19 years later, and. It's, uh, Southeast Asia in 2007. What? So I guess they're right. They don't know who he is. I yeah. guess we'll just subject them to him now. Very weird. There's a Bill Elliott car. Yeah, I saw that at one point. 
But yeah, the thing about Mac tonight too, it's like, what is he got? Like, Tom Waits with like a moon on his head? Yeah, like, okay, you know. so Moon Man. Yeah. Moon Man is an internet meme and unofficial, par- unofficial parody of Mac tonight that originated in 2007 on the internet meme community YTMND, in which the character is depicted as advocating for racism and racist acts. Salon article compared Moon Man to Pepe the Frog, another meme labeled as a hate symbol. YouTube consistently removes all Moon Man videos for violating its community guidelines on hate speech. And AT&T, whose text-to-speech software was used to create the meme, has edited it to filter out the character's name and obscenities. In 2019, the ADL Anti-Defamation League added Moon Man to their database of hate symbols. Yeah, I see that here. I'm trying to look this up uh, just to see what it looks like. Um, There's actually a book of that. Why do people got to take crap like this and ruin it? I just don't understand. It looks like, like actually that stuff's really hard to find. I guess it's been wiped from the internet Dang. unless you're on 4chan yeah. or something. Which is, I mean, good. Fine. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Hmm. I was not really the aware darkest of darkest corners that. of the internet. Of yeah. which I have no interest in going into. Nope. So, you know. Nope. Anyways, hard, I hated to end that on a down note. But I was Your just bringing it up. good. Back. Go eat it. Yeah, so it's through all of June, right? Well, from what Bill, you know, from what, sorry, not Bill, from what, Bill, from what Brian Cox told me, yeah, <laughs> from what I understood. Mm-mm-mm. Time to sit down to that blue plate special. Hi, Audrey. Hello, Mom. Have a cup of coffee, please? Sure. I'll have what she's having. Your oversized Grimace meal is right here. Right here. Bill. Here you go. I'm just a Bill. Speaking of racism, let's talk a little bit about The French Connection. <laughs> One of our favorite movies. Yeah. Not racism. That's not a good no. movie. Um, there's been a huge controversy. This happened a few weeks ago. Um, I don't think there's been any real updates about this. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to mostly, you know, this has been widely talked about. I'm going to mostly be quoting from a Daily Mail article that talked about this. Headline is... Because the Daily Mail's like, it, we can't have racism no more, I guess. Yeah, the British. Well, they, yeah. they practically invented racism, yeah. really. But, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, as, as Americans, our identity is so ingrained in Britain that we got a lot of the best and worst things mm-hmm. from them. Film fans fume as 1971 classic, The French Connection, is censored without warning to remove racial slur. William Freakin's drama, which can currently be streamed via the U.S. streaming platform Criterion Channel, of which we're subscribers, now has a new edit approximately 10 minutes into the film. It basically censors out a racial slur used. Um, Gene Hackman uses, I think, to Roy Scheider uh, in talking about you know yeah. individuals. Um, Disney, who owns the rights of the film following the takeover of Fox in 2019, have been accused of censoring the scene in the U.S., on Disney Plus in the U.K. and Canada, the film remains unedited. Fans aren't happy, and one wrote on Twitter, quote, Disney censor the French connection in such cases as this. Censor takes the place of vandalize. And so this was a huge backlash to this on Twitter. Um, there's another tweet. This is from Paul Casey, or Muggins MCS on Twitter. The censorship of the French Connection is shameful if true. I really wish both 
those on the left and right would see that one this uh, one cannot be for this and against banning books and vice versa. More, most like censorship if it suits their politics, not seeing how it can hurt them later. Um, Levi, what was your initial reaction to hearing the news that the French Connection via streaming had been censored in some form or another? And also how this relates to the larger pop cultural stranglehold that the Walt Disney Company currently has on so much of entertainment. Uh, Yeah, that was kind of my first thing was to remember, of course, that that was a 20th Century Fox film and that Disney had the rights to stream it now. Uh, So that was my first thing, was just a memory of that. And I want to walk a fine line here because a lot of people that are going to complain about this, it's like they're complaining about the word not being used. It's not exactly that, obviously, because or it's, it's not a, that it's at a all bad word, objectively. Because, yeah. yeah. Horrific um, word. Yeah. And I think though the the problem, and this is what's been, you know, a thing for and by the way, this this isn't new. I want to mention some other examples of stuff like this happening in the past. So this isn't totally a new phenomenon. But just this erasure of history It's also just very... The biggest thing to me that's strange, though, is that Disney would care about a movie that's already so definitively R-rated. Yeah. There's no kid that's going to be casually surfing through and say, oh, what's the French connection? That name alone is going to alienate so many people, I feel like. Um, like How have you seen the Chinese connection? Uh, (laughs) Big fan of the N-word there, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Um, uh, Noted fan of the N-word. Yeah, well, he is. Academy Award winner and noted fan of the Mm N-word. Obit will read one day. Um, But uh, it's just that. That's the problem, ultimately, though, is just this, this lack of realism about what that's about. I mean, because no one ever says that Popeye Doyle is a good guy in yep. the movie. It's yep. like, and it's very clear that he's not. And well, so, yeah. I don't know. It's just a very simple thing of like, why are you changing that just based on, yeah. I don't know. Part of the but, brilliance of Dirty Harry and French Connection, both. Both movies came out in 71, you know. both cop dramas that ostensibly are pseudo action movies, but crime dramas, thrillers. Um, the whole point of those movies are that the characters are incredibly flawed, but that they are on the, quote, right side of the law, but then the juxtaposition of what that means in 1971, in the midst of Vietnam, on the waning days of Vietnam, in the midst of the black power movement and the death of the civil rights movement, is like, well, is law and order, quote, is that something we root for now? Or is that something we root against? And that's the whole, like push and pull of those movies is that dramatic tension, much of which is right. lost on modern audiences, I think, that the 70s audience would have took part in. And again, I love The French Connection. It's been... It was actually one of those first movies I remember watching when I was starting to get into movies in like 07, 08, 09 that really kind of blew me away. And the we're actually thinking about one day doing on the pod, so I don't want to get too much into talking about the French Connection now. Same thing with Dirty Harry. But the ending of that movie was one of the most like, wait, you can end a movie like yeah. that? Like That was one of those big groundbreaking moments for me watching movies, is mm-hmm. that you can end a movie that way. That was just mind-blowing to me. Um, groundbreaking movie. Won the Academy Award for Best Picture. 
if that's not safe from some kind of censorship, literally nothing is, okay? Yeah. And, again, I don't want to make this a huge... It's interesting like, that it comes from Disney, who has an incredibly immoral and racist past, too. Which so, they, which have, they have done their best to, to expunge. Mm-hmm. A lot but, of it relates to Song of the know, South. Right. Things about Fantasia have been edited out over the years. Yeah. And so I think... I would think you would agree, us cinephiles, we're not rooting to see mm-hmm. that behavior or what is depicted in these movies rewarded exactly no. or held up, but we think, no, but leave it as it is. Yeah. You know, um, you know, a while well, back we started watching Harry. a lot of old uh, Tex Avery cartoons yeah, right. and some of the recent Warner Archive stuff they put out animation-wise. They had this big mm-hmm. uh, kind of title disclaimer. card at the very beginning, yeah. disclaimer, where they basically, I think this is what it should be. Is yeah. just this big disclaimer of saying, "Listen, these are these are problematic, uh, either racist or misogynistic and, depictions uh, from the past." Joe Dante, who's a big fan of that stuff, and Josh Olson on the uh, movies that made me podcast, they said that all the time about just put a disclaimer on stuff, yeah, and just be done with it, and just say this is what this is. Yeah. You know, be warned, this has this in it. And they said, and that's all you really need to do, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I, yeah. I think it's just, frankly, ahistorical to try to yeah. edit these well, things out yeah. or act as though they don't exist, period. Again, it's, it doesn't yeah. mean that, well, obviously, what we're saying here is we shouldn't be rewarding this stuff, but it needs to be what it is. I mean, mm-hmm. and again, as I said, part of, the, part of the whole depiction of Popeye Doyle, the importance of it, is that he's kind of a dirtbag, yeah. but... In the realm of the narrative, he is the protagonist of the movie, which means that while he while he is a racist, while he breaks the law in trying to enforce the law, the power of the movie is wrapped around him as the protagonist, him as the lead. And yeah. that, again, that was a provocative thing to do in 1971. Well, and, and we yeah. are so now used to anti-heroic characters that that was going to be lost on a lot of audiences. Right. But that was part of the power of the movie in 1971 well, the, to have that. And and a moment that stick. You mentioned Dirty Harry. This is kind of off topic, but a moment that sticks with me a lot in that, and I think about every so often, is the part where the N-word is used in that movie where it's the letter from Scorpio saying who he was going yeah. to kill, and they've got it up on the wall on a projector, and John Vernon, who I love in everything, John Vernon's yeah. amazing, is reading the letter yeah. out he's the mayor and he gets to that word and just stops and it cuts to his face of him not saying the word mm-hmm. and then he says written you know scorpio after that and that's like that's a moment in the movie where it's like yeah that is not a good word it was said at the time you know mm-hmm. of like no we don't like that but it recognizes like this is what this mm-hmm. person is and how they think and it's the same thing with the french connection both of them came out the same year like we said, they're both kind of about the same thing. So, and then recently, and, uh, th- this whole thing know. had opened up um, an anecdote that William Freakin had told years ago that um, he had watched this movie. I think with a predominantly black audience at one point, the French Connection when it first came out in seventy one. Yeah. I think he went to go see it with a black audience, mm-hmm. and he was very kind of nervous getting up to that moment. And he was like, well, "How are they going to react to this? What are they going to say?" And that moment occurred, and he said the people, actually, the black audience, generally cheered for that moment. And he said he was very almost confused by that. He was relieved, but he was confused. He said, "Why is that?" And he, I think he talked to some black patrons later, and they said, "Well, we know this is how it is, and it's mm-hmm. finally on screen, right. and we're not going to take the lies of what the '60s in cinema told us about this is the way police act." Right. Uh, obviously, in the heat of the night is uh, not in the heat of the night. Yeah, in the heat of the night yeah. uh, was one of the first movies to kind of 
take issue with some of that and depict right. a more realistic, and that's a pretty great movie yeah. anyways. And so other than that, there had not really been any forthright depictions of what police, yeah. how they handle African Americans in a real yeah. serious way. And that was also right on the cusp of black exploitation was about to become a thing where we're going to start to see a lot more yeah. varied you know, depictions of law enforcement. Right. So again, anyways, he said he was like, happily shocked that black audiences reacted that way and yeah. it was part because they said well this is what it is yeah. why are we going to lie about that and right. act like that's not and what that's it is that's my I big mean, problem you know, with it is that just like uh, foregoing realism not that it's a good thing but it's the same thing with like say those you mentioned the Tex Avery cartoons a lot of those old really profoundly racist Japanese yeah. depictions oh, from yeah. World War II it, in comic books was the same oh, thing yeah. mm-hmm. very frightening frankly how bad some of that was and some of that was in the looney tunes some of it was in disney well and i've been frankly shocked and i've read more about this over the years um how much of early animation is from the tradition of minstrelsy Mm -hmm. and also vaudeville but also minstrelsy and the more once you see that or hear that and you actually go back and watch that stuff it's there's some great stuff here and there, mm-hmm. but the more uncomfortable you feel with, oh, yeah, wow, how much of this is. Yeah. I mean, even as far as the white gloves, even, yep. it's, it's something as simple as that is something that actually has ties with to Mitchell Mouse. Or, yeah. uh, or, 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 or almost how Bugs Bunny's hands mm-hmm. look, too, if you look. So, right. Um, yeah, and I mean, and but, but then you see something now like Isle of Dogs, and I was talking about this at the time, and I haven't heard anybody say this, but how there's that one kind of villain character in Isle of Dogs. Japanese, ja- yeah. And it's like, literally, I, I called it at the time, like, World War II era Japanese ghoulism. I mean, yeah. it's probably the most racist thing I've seen in a movie recently that got basically no attention and no one really There was a about. little bit of discussion about yeah. that movie, um, but, yeah, not on the level yeah, I think it that, should be. And we, we generally love and admire Wes Anderson, mm-hmm, Yeah, uh, but that is something that was like, whoa, yeah. this is not and cool. And so, you know? therefore, um, is this new movie coming out this week? Isn't it? Yeah, at the end of the week. Yeah, because right. we're going to so be, we'll, 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 talk we'll about be talking that about that next back. podcast. But, yeah, the, um, so, yeah, and I love Wes Anderson, but it's but that's something that, uh, that I think I don't know why he did that, but I guess it's easy. I guess for filmmakers when they're trying to make things about certain cultural, uh, uh, you know, representations yeah. like that, they get so steeped in the stereotype yeah. that I, I don't know. But and that's something that's dangerous that we need to think and talk about too, because. The use of that word in the French Connection, that's not, some, and that's clearly, like it says in the anecdote, not something that William Friedkin did lightly, that yeah. he thought about and was like, I think it's important that I do use that word for the context of what this is about, but he did fear how people would react. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't a word that was used flippantly, like it is in some other things I've seen. Right. Um, as a matter of fact, I wanted to mention this too about somebody we're going to talk about here in a little while. Um, that passed away this last week. I've been listening, and you'll probably already know what I'm talking about, those who are listening. But I was listening to an audio book of that person, a book they wrote, and its use of the N-word here and there throughout mm-hmm. it. And uh, for, first of all, that is an accurate depiction of the time period of the Old West, of when that was and the way they talked about that. But I think about that in print a lot, too. You see it, honestly, more in print than you hear it in movies. Um, and... That's something to think about, too. But like I said, you have to think about, obviously, what the context of the usage is. 
But for Disney, it's purely just, oh, it has this thing, and they feel like they're going to get in trouble for some reason by having it in there, but I don't know. I don't think anyone was complaining about the French Connection or even thinking about the French Connection, like, at all. So now that the, it's it's made it a talking point, and that's almost probably what they wanted. I, I don't know. Um, but It's also very bizarre, too, that... Um, uh, Disney walks a very weird line between the left and the right, where mm-hmm. they are hated by both in a roundabout yeah. way because mm-hmm. they are seen as you're too woke or you're too reactionary. You like looking at it from the left perspective, they're pillared all the time as they should have for using a lot of diversity to quote justify a lot of the live-action remakes they've done yeah, in movies like in that so many Little years. Mermaid they just made. What, or, what, like, whatever. Elemental has our uh-huh. first um, non-binary character. Mm-hmm. And or that Luca movie they made, I know, had a lot of, like, uh, gay text or subtext mm-hmm. in it, of homosexual subtext of some sort. I don't remember. But exactly, they're not, but. they don't have the balls to, like, just say that in the text of the movie. It's all yeah. a lot of hinting and winking. And saying this is what this is after the fact, yeah. And then mm-hmm. from the right, they're accused of being woke for all the same stuff when it was milk toast to begin with. It's, the whole thing is like... It's not at all uh, organic. It's all created. When, and also, different. they have no sense of courage whatsoever with anything they're creating. They're just looking to do maximize profits at all costs, yeah. which is what the corporate mentality is anyway. So... But, like I say, I'm surprised they're even letting the movie stream at all because that's something we've been worried it about. It makes sense over the last that they would years, like let but... it be on like the Criterion Channel. Yeah, uh, it's this is another thing too. It's like it's not on Disney Plus. If it was on Hulu, that would also make more right. sense. Um, Disney Plus French Connection. But movie. I, I yeah. also think though too, like it, you know, and we've talked about this back when we did um when we talked about uh. Jane Dillman and like yeah. sight and sound lists and the criterionization of a lot of film culture, which we're very much a part of and yeah. a product of. But that also creates this sort of quote safe cinema or what quote groundbreaking is as seen in these sometimes purely aesthetic or representational terms as opposed to depicting reality. Right. Is something that yeah. is is part of a and again, I do think, generally speaking, a Criterion audience would be offended by this being changed. Anything yeah. that involves the text of a film being explicitly changed is, most cinephiles would wi- widely agree, is bad yeah. and is not good. But I do think it is part of, like, fr- again, as a person that is progressive and as of the left, we can't have anything that offends anybody when really it's offensive to not have that and yeah. show that this is what it was. That's right. the, that's actually the ultimate line the of offense yeah. it can right. be is to not have it at all right. and act like it didn't happen and it didn't exist. That actually creates this ahistorical lens through which we see the past. To say, no, those things didn't really happen because it's not represented here. Yeah, right. and right. the whole thing's bizarre. Yeah. Uh, we did actually buy and purchase eBay uh, editions that were on eBay, old DVDs, just because we Which actually because we don't it. own it, yeah, yeah and right. that was a wake up call to say, oh, I guess we need and to buy the Blu-rays that. were going sky high already. Yeah. They got price price gouged as you yeah. one could expect because and they're not this. good Blu-rays either. Yeah, I've point. heard that they're not all that good. So yeah. uh, funny enough too, while all this was going on, I happened to just on a whim, and I love when that happens when you just rewatch yeah. great movies on a whim. Sometimes sideways, I recently watched and weirdly had a French Connection original 
71 trailer to it. I mean, it looked restored, yeah. but it was like from the 70s. And it's that we laugh about this trailer all the time. It's like Popeye Doyle, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, it'll uh, take you apart. Popeye Doyle. Like, it'll take like, you apart, and it's all perfectly legal. Yeah, you know? like, yeah. Um, and, and it made me go, it made me laugh. I was like, well, right. th- th- this is coming up in this. But. Yeah, but, yeah, and, and we've made this clear already, but just to be clear, we didn't go on eBay and buy this movie because they took the N-word out of the movie. That's not really the point. And that, and that we're celebrating the word in any way. That yeah. is not at all what we're saying. It's that... Like we said, we think it is more offensive to history and to the peoples who have been oppressed to erase that oppression. Um, and I feel like that's one of the key texts of understanding uh, police brutality. Like police on uh, film in police general. Police on yeah. film in general, I said. Because even Dirty Harry, which I like personally more than The French Connection. I know you like The French Connection better. Uh, I love Dirty Harry, too, though. extremely problematic in that way of not actually, I think... Uh, Having a conscience about it. Well, depiction. there's the famous um, line in that he's got you know a Hispanic partner. Right. And he's basically said, "I hate everybody." I don't remember right. exactly what he says, yeah. but it's something along the lines of, "I hate all." And yeah. there's like a weird, you can tell he's prejudiced, but that's not really a part of the plot of the story in the same way that it is a little bit of a plot point mm-hmm. in the French Connection. But you know even though, I mean? like you said, there there seems to be more of a conscience to say this is bad in the French in memory of the French Connection. I don't totally remember. But uh, I don't feel that's the case ever with Dirty Harry. It feels more like a, yeah, that's kind of part of it. And there's characters who feel this way about it, and there's characters who feel that way about it. But it doesn't make it part of the movie exactly, but it also doesn't uh, apologize for it either. And that might partially even be a New York versus California aesthetic that those movies just separately have. And that's this intrinsic hard to exactly sum up thing but i do think that they yeah. are reflections of their places uh in their own ways too as far as there is this naturally more multicultural aspect of california not yeah. to say racism doesn't exist there or discrimination right. doesn't exist but in new york there is this more cleanly clearly divided racial discrepancies not as much now as was in the 70s yeah. but was there you know then uh one thing I, I love, too, and it's kind of part of the urban decay that is part of New York in the 60s and 70s, naturally, and something like Taxi Driver takes to its apex. Mm-hmm. And that's another movie that a lot of them talked about the race racism aspects of that. Even though that character is clearly insane in every way. Yeah. and He's uh, also racist. Like, right. It's like yeah. those two things are not totally separate, but anyways. Yeah. Um, is how, like, there are portions in French Connection where they're like chasing criminals and they get them down. And what New York looks like in some of those, it looks like a bombed out country. Yeah. It looks like a war zone. And you're like, this is New York City? Mm-hmm. And that's just, that's what New York City looked like in the late 60s, yeah. early 70s was that. I mean, that was pre a lot of renewal that happened by the 80s. Well, and I've but, heard a lot of people talk about that. I've heard, uh, specifically, I have remember most, I guess because I'm a big Sonic Youth fan, I've heard Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon separately talk about that, about what New York was like when they basically started that band, and it was literally in that transition in the 80s of becoming more commodified, and talking about how it sucked, and everything about it was awful, the city, but at the same time, they talked about, well, and I imagine a lot of New Yorkers feel Friend this Friend has talked to this She's effect, talked about know, it, yeah. too. That, but then they made everything for the tourists, like they said, and everything's shinier and newer. Yeah. And they said they kind of lost the soul of a city. A lot of early although Jim Jarmusch they, movies are right, depicted that Although they too. improved it 
yeah technically and they said it's not that we necessarily wanted it this way but that they've made it something totally different also and the deuce is about that a lot yeah. too i think that's kind of the thesis of the whole show actually yeah. is about that um but yeah so I'll, one of my that. favorite things about that is a friend Leibowitz said that like running into a fellow new yorker in Times square is like running into somebody you knew in a gay bar in the 70s it's like uh uh, I'm, I'm, not, really I'm not really here. here. Uh, I, was, I was here with a friend. Or, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like the profound But maybe all that you know? acts as a strange metaphor for what we're talking about here. Disneyfication of is, everything. It's yeah. not that you necessarily enjoyed the grime of the past, but also trying to act like those things didn't happen. Is just uh, inauthentic. Is, is to rob our ancestors of their struggle and yeah. and i don't know it's yeah so that's all we're saying i guess is just that we we worry about the future with these things and it's just another way of disney to ultimately just flex its muscles and show its ability to do something like that is and just to say well this is what it's going to be now because we want it to be and like i said i mean right, uh, uh, the french connection is a best picture winner mm-hmm. so that's like as high as it gets in the pantheon of Hollywood. I would say it's among the greatest Best Picture winners ever. I mean, the very next year, The Godfather won Best Picture, so that's the greatest ever, of course. But, like, if it can happen to that, it can happen to anything. I mean, mm-hmm. everything's open season. Disney has edited their own things, I mean, over the years. Yeah. And there's been well, and I was going to say, one of, the big ver- one of the big versions of this I wanted to mention was Beetlejuice. Uh, oh, yeah. The, the Warner Brothers... Two early two thousands VHS, which, which is we, what I saw the we movie. Primarily as, watched, yeah, growing up. Had three major edits in that, and that when I saw the movie later, I was surprised. I, on DVD, current Blu rays are the original. Yes, movie, right? oh yeah, yeah, yeah everything's yeah. normal now. Like most people don't even know about what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like even the original VHS would have probably been the normal version, but this was a specific line of movies that was marketed towards children yeah, or, or younger as people, like yeah. spooky Halloween, spooky movies. Halloween, not quite horror movies, right. but spooky. Yeah, and that movie had three edits. One was the use of the word GD, which was towards the beginning of that guy who's like just just oh, it a little. Yeah. That guy that's like sitting outside yeah. or whatever. And then the other two happened in the same scene where they first meet Beetlejuice. One live, live is of show him of like moment. basically doing the jerk off, oh uh, yeah, yeah, uh, like hand gesture. Yeah, that shot is totally extricated from the movie in that version. And then the one of the more famous moments from the movie because it's so random is him kicking over the uh, the tree. Yeah, and saying when they nice, escape right. from after first and meeting. saying nice effing model, and then honk and honks, honks his crotch, yeah, which right. is just like I remember when I first saw that on YouTube when YouTube was first a thing. This was in like two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Yeah. I don't know, right before I got the DVD, I thought that was fake. Yeah. I was like, what is it? Because yeah, like Beetlejuice was such a part of my DNA as mm-hmm. a ch- and still is, but especially then was such a part of me. The, and I think we talked about this when we did the movie on yeah, here. We did the commentary, have, yeah. but like I literally was like, "This is not real." Mm-hmm. Like, what is this? It frankly scared me. I was yeah, like, right. "What is that?" Yeah, but like it's know. like a deleted scene from a movie right. you know really but well. Then, and, like, and then I was like, really "Oh, that? that is part of the movie." You yeah. know, eventually, um, that I realized that. But that what's interesting though is that in that uh, you mentioned the live show thing. The later on, that was in the movie. They didn't take any of that out. 
I guess because it was too problematic to take mm-hmm. out. Pro, not even pro, like it was much, too much of a problem for them to make that edit because it's so much in that scene. Is the, what is the movie rated? Yeah. Is it PG thirteen? PG. Oh, I can't remember. Yeah. Is PG or PG thirteen? No, it's, it's a PG movie. I think relatively. I mean, it, now but with the f bomb though in the eighties. Well, now that, that would was, be a problem. But well, that was the eighties, so they. I guess they just you know, went. The shrug. Yeah. I mean, because that is. I mean, but you know what's funny is I the original know. edit of that is actually funnier to me because he kicks it over and just looks at it, yeah. and then it just cuts back outside the scene, <laughs> and there's no comment from him. It's almost like he's just like, "Oh, I kicked that over," and then they just cut that part out. That honestly is funnier to me than the real version. Yeah, personally, that's also because of what I always grew up. Well, with. Well, we also but, watched Goodfellas know. a lot edited on AMC <laughs> so more hilarious. so than when when now we watch. I was it, you thinking know? about that this morning. Actually, I was thinking about the scene of where have you been and normal people don't act like this yeah. the way she's talking <laughs> screaming but what is wrong with you henry like yeah um how you doing henry um but w- yeah so well that's another thing is that edit of that movie took that guy saying the n-word out of that you know on tv which that makes yeah, sense yeah well they but, a lot of but, other things out of but that. yeah that and that's another instructive moment in that movie about the way people think back yeah. then is that, oh, not these two uh, sharp-dressed white guys that stole my truck. It had to be some black people. And it's like, yeah. no, but anyway. Yeah. All that's just to say that this isn't new yeah. that these things happen because I used the Beetlejuice example. And this is always, interesting, but, though, that it, you know, I mean, and this isn't even the first time this has happened in the streaming era, but living in the streaming era, which is primarily how people watch yeah. things now, that this is still happening you know, in its own way. And I, maybe that should give us cause for not not concern in the sense that, well, these things happen, but they still persist and live on. But, but since it is also, at the same time, primarily how people watch and see things, that, I don't know, that is a problem. But nonetheless, yeah, check out the French Connection. Uh, anyway. If you have either way, yeah. whatever. Because it's going to be a great movie anyway. But Yeah, I mean, I don't think that, yeah. It's, it's just... Yeah. We haven't even brought up George Lucas and him editing his whole movies. Yeah. That's a whole other question and thing to talk well, about. Well, that's but, a thing about literally adding things visually. Yeah. Which is just, that's a whole other realm Has of Has he ever, stupid, like, edited but, anything in or out of American Graffiti? I know THX has had director's cuts THX and stuff. THX ne- has. I've never known about American Graffiti that happening with. Uh, THX, I think mostly things were added. Uh, and... <laughs> This will give me a chance to tell a story. There's that whole thing when he was making THX where there's the... You remember at the end of the movie where there's those like weird monkey Mut- thing? Mutant people, mutants, basically. Mutants, that one of the big notes that the uh, studio gave him, when they saw that, they were like, oh, you need to have more of that. Put the freaks yeah, up front that, yeah. is he's, what they he's, said. He's quoted and that a lot over like, the put years. Put the freaks up front. <laughs> yeah. It's just... Very like freaking yeah. era, you know. Um, but yeah, that like I know that was a change that they made because he made them look more realistic. Because I've always wanted to see what that looked like. Because you can't find the regular THX now; it's all that like it is with the original yeah. Star Wars. But I've always wondered about that. Is that what would that look like? The original Harry Mongols yeah. at the end of that, mm-hmm. you know, instead of like the it's more like CG looking. Yeah. Uh, but you know the great thing about THX though is that it's so uh you know socially potent that it doesn't really matter what you do to that movie it's still going to be like mm-hmm. wow provocative yeah in your it's face. so w- insanely yeah in your face that 
it, it is, I look at parts and I'm like, yeah, that's clearly added. But overall, mostly still retains itself as being, this is what this is, you know. Right. Um, but, yeah, to my knowledge, I've never known of anything to be changed in American Graffiti. Um, I think that's something he just left alone because, well, first of all, it's not sci-fi, so there's nothing you really need to change, um, you know, with it. Not that you needed to change it with THX either or Star Wars, but that's but that's more of an effects thing than anything driven, else. Yeah. I'm but, not seeing anything really right now yeah. about it. So anyway, um, we're gonna talk about some. This was like a heavy week in terms of there's a it lot usually of happens deaths, like this. There's uh, there's usually a summer every so every few summers where there's like a bunch in a row. I remember there was one uh, back some years ago. Whenever John Hurd died, there were like a lot of people around that time. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so we have four names here we want to go through. There were actually more than this recently, um, but we want to talk about certain ones longer than others. But The Iron Sheik, yeah. of, who was, of course, a uh, Iranian-American pro wrestler. He was huge in the 80s. What was his actual name? Um, Hossein Kosorovo Ali Varziri. You know, if I mispronounce yeah. any of that, I apologize. But... Um, he was huge in the 80s. Um, one kind of the, the first heel in a lot of ways. I mean, maybe not the first. Yeah, but, not like, necessarily the first, but definitely one that like broke through and was like on par with popularity almost in terms of the hate that they received, as was like the Hulk Hogan yeah. or the faces of the era. Um, and he, you know, his whole ring persona as the Iron Sheik fed into a lot of anti- Iranian anti Middle East stuff that went on in the eighties, yeah, right. and so that was very much like a part of his whole persona. He he was a big counterpoint to Hulk Hogan in the eighties, who yeah. of course was the representation of America. And then strangely, throughout the Cold War inspired you know, that, a lot of things about Cold Sergeant War. Slaughter towards the time of the Gulf War. Yeah, and he later became more of a patriotic American version of that. With yeah. I am a real American. American. Screw Hulk Hogan, by the way. Yeah, for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Hogan well, knows best. He really was not. not. He, not a, he wasn't a big fan of Hulk Hogan. Uh, he was yeah. actually very active on Twitter. Iron Sheik, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, Iron Sheik. No, was, because I'm yeah. not even making this up. One of the last, like, I feel like I'm living in an alternate reality when I say this. One of his last tweets was about God bless boy genius or something like oh, that. Oh yeah, I forgot about this. This literally yeah. like I had to double take and look at it multiple <laughs> and look at times. It, keep looking I was at it, like, like, is that the Iron what? Sheik? On uh, no, because yeah. I literally went. What were some of his last tweets? And that was one of the last ones. Was about that. Um, total insane persona. Like an 80-year-old like, Iranian-American man. Yeah. All really into boy genius. That's but but he had a totally insane persona. Screamed all the time. Extremely profane. Um, yeah, it says uh, here, a uh, heel throughout yeah. the 80s, 1980s. Sheik later gained popularity on Kid Chris, uh, the Howard Stern Show, yeah. and the internet due to his shoot interviews, vulgar language, and apparent intense dislike for some of his fellow professional wrestlers, particularly Hogan and Brian Blair. However, yeah. the true nature of his relationship with Hogan has been a su- subject of debate. I think in recent years they've actually made amends, but mm-hmm. it was part of his post-wrestling career for a long time was just hating on Hulk Hogan all the time, yeah. not going after Hulk Hogan all the time. Um, and so they said he was in some films too. Um a Tale of the Three Muhammads in 2005. Uh, that's not even got a, a, a page yeah. you can go to. Um, 
That's already dangerous. In he a, said he appeared on the Eric Andre or, uh, show. Islamic perspective. Oh, yeah, of I'm course not, he did. <laughs> I've not seen that yeah. yet, but... Uh, I bet that's a daggum. Yeah. Uh, best man at one of his weddings. Well, let's see. It was Mean Gene Okerlund. Wow. <laughs> Which uh, he often referred to as Gene Mean in his broken English. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> We've uh, been watching a lot of clips from him on Howard Stern the last few days and the last little bit. How insane he is God, on there. Like, he's, uh, I've never seen somebody that older or out yeah. of shape in his own way because he kind of got a little, you know, more out of shape as he got older. Yeah. Just scream and yell like that. I mean, his that, big finishing move was the. The camel clutch. Yeah. And if you watch some of those clips, how hard he's pulling on those guys. He's a really yeah, big, big, thick guy. Yeah. Like, he like looks like he's about to rip their head off. Like, it's pretty, mm-hmm. pretty serious. So, uh, RIP to the Iron Sheik. RIP to the Iron yeah. Sheik. Yeah. And again, I feel like so much of him in the cultural memory is going to be talked about in the 80s with a lot of Reagan era hatred of yeah. the Middle East and, you know, depictions of the Middle East. And I don't know if, you know, I'm yeah, not sure the extent he to which he's that. written about or talked about that. Yeah. He probably has to have some sense of awareness about it. But at the same time, he seemed like he kind of really played into it, too. So I, I don't know. Maybe he just saw that's how I'm going to be successful and I like being right. a heel, so I don't really yeah. care. I don't know. And I mean, you know, he, I guess he became an American citizen, like, and he, well, maybe, maybe he, he himself took pride didn't like, in his own success to say, no, this is what we can be. And yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But I, I've been wondering about that, too, because. He was never a big part of my wrestling knowledge. Like when well, I was growing yeah. up, I we were more nineties yeah. and onward. Like right. I'm, I'm yeah. not seeing as much stuff from the eighties. Yeah. Uh, like as far as Hulk Hogan, even seeing Hulk Hogan stuff, that was more of like a, you know, early nineties stuff. I saw some of you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, he's not always been a big part of my knowledge about that, but I've always heard of him and known how big he was, and so yeah, R.I.P. Uh, the next name we want to talk about was Treat Williams, who was an actor, of course. Mm-hmm. He'd been in tons of stuff. He was one of our kind of, like, favorite faces you ever see yeah. pop up in mm-hmm. something. I mean, he's not somebody who was a huge lead in tons of stuff. Have we talked about him on here before in something? Uh, we have when we talked oh, well, about, we about Smooth Talk. Smooth Talk, we, we yeah. We talked about that and as a... When we talked about uh, yeah. Dick Tracy, I feel like we talked about the Phantom, and we probably brought him up as being the villain in the Phantom. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did we... And Yeah, because we talked about uh, Once Upon a Time in America. He was in that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's been... 1941, he was also Yeah, we in. talked about that. So, yeah, there's been some stuff we've talked about him with, but never, I don't think, a movie we officially did of his yet. But, but, yeah, he was always just one of those really great faces you see pop up in anything. Just to go through some of his biggest credits. Uh, credits. Um, Marathon Man. And he started off, a lot of these were these uncredited or small parts. Mm-hmm. The Eagle has landed. Hair was one of his big breakthrough yeah. things. 1941, who he's actually one of my favorite performances in. Yeah. He actually plays a very small uncredited role in The Empire Strikes Back. He's in Echo Base. He's like one of yeah. the soldiers in that. Um Prince of the City, which is a movie that we've been trying to watch for a while, and we were actually trying to watch in, in preparation for this podcast because yeah. that's one of his first real big lead roles, and we didn't get to make it to. Yeah. We'll probably talk about that in the future after having seen it. Mm-hmm. I know a big Sidney LeMay movie he was in. Yeah, uh, The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper. He was D.B. Cooper in. Again, as we said, Once Upon a Time in America, Flashpoint, Smooth Talk, which I think he's amazing in. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably his best performance I've seen. Um Sweet Lies, 
Dead Heat, which I know a lot of people were bringing up over the last week. Yeah. The action movie that he was in. Um, Things to do in Denver when you're dead, which is kind of known as a Tarantino ripoff mm. that he's in. Um, Mulholland Falls, which is this neo-noir crime movie. The biggest thing I wanted to spotlight is the Phantom because he's the villain in yeah. that. And growing up as a kid in the 90s and seeing the Phantom a billion and one times... When I first started to realize who he was, it was, oh, the villain from The Phantom. And I've actually moved beyond that now, but deep down, that's still what I treasure him as. One of the all-time great scene-chewing bad guy performances. Doesn't feel one bit interested in justifying him as a villain. Yeah. Oh, he's actually has this motivation. He's just an evil rich guy, and he yeah. just plays into that so well. Wow. And he really knows yeah. what he's playing into with that, which I really love. Um. He did a lot of made-for-TV stuff in recent years. Had some TV roles. He actually did two episodes on Batman the Animated Series. Mm-hmm. Said he was a Dr. Achilles Milo. I don't know if you remember him in that. So yeah, he did an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Um, he was in... Uh, he was... Uh, that. He was Howard Prince in an episode, None But the Lonely Heart. I don't think I've seen that. He was in an episode of Fairy Tale Theaters, Prince Andrew and the Little Mermaid. We've not hmm. seen that, but we've seen. Oh, some I remember of him Tale seeing Theater. him in that though. Yeah, I, I remember that image of him in it. Yeah, he played himself once on The Simpsons. Um, he did uh, yeah, various little episodes of TV. Yeah. He did some TV movies as well. He actually was in a TV movie of J. Edgar Hoover where he played Hoover hmm. in 1987. It says um, he even knows a streetcar named Desire. He was uh, in that. Uh, he also, I know, was in The Late Shift, the movie about the late-night wars of the 90s. Yeah. Um, so, again, what are your kind of enduring thoughts or ideas about Treat Williams as a general actor in Hollywood in terms of what he meant to you yeah. personally? What What are your own? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think him and the Phantom is something I think a lot about. Smooth talk, he's really great, and he's only in, like, really a little bit of that. Um, but he... And the movie's yeah. kind of centered around... I mean, Laura Dern is the lead of the movie. But he his like presence is what the center of the movie hinges on. Mm-hmm. And it's something that is very much withdrawn from most of the movie, but makes a big play by the third act. And so that's really yeah among you know right. the most important things about the movie is him in that. Um, but yeah, I think that's one I think of, obviously. Uh, I do remember him doing some... Uh, I said audio uh, or like you know voice roles yeah. in some of those DC stuff uh, and then you know it, it says also he's in Marathon Man I didn't remember him in that yeah I said that earlier yeah but because um, I've only seen that once anyway that was when he was younger uh, and he was in that movie version of Hair that mm-hmm. Milos Foreman made I think that's kind of what most people actually seem yeah. to remember him from from yeah. what I was kind of seeing um, but also I do remember him a lot in Once Upon a Time in America which is a good enough movie, but I have problems with. But I remember him being really good in it, and because he's, you know, like I said, really good in anything. But yeah, the biggest thing is that we're uh, kind of, you know, obviously other than him being passed away and and died in a motorcycle, and died in a motorcycle accident. And that's yeah. very sad. We'd actually maybe planned on at some point uh, 
doing a trick or treat Williams is what around we're Halloween it, right? around and just doing some yeah. treat Williams movies and maybe even trying to have him on here. He's pretty active on Twitter, so yeah, that was, was kind of a yeah. hope that we maybe had, but. And you know, and it's a credit to him that I would even have an expectation that he would be slightly interested in maybe even being on this show. You know what I mean? And so, like, you know, he could have easily said no, and he would have almost known knew that he would be very polite about it. Yeah. But he just had that sort of presence online, and was a very nice, positive person. Um, that I would even think that he might do that. I mean, yeah, the fact right. that he even had that reputation is a credit to him. Um, so we might one one day do that still, yeah. but uh, might as well let the cat out the cat out of the bag on that. We, that's something we were thinking about doing mm-hmm. a trick or treat Williamsathon. Um, and again, just a very. I thought he was a very handsome man, mm-hmm. for, uh, you know, especially in his younger years. But again, really great character actor who had movie star looks. Um, but again, we're very sorry to hear that. He's no longer yeah. with us. Anymore. Oh, and you mentioned it, but 1941 is another movie. That, I think that's a lot one of my favorite in. things he's yeah. in, and I think you know the, I don't really like that movie particularly, but he's really good in no, it. No, and right. you can tell he's got a pretty firm grasp, I think, on what it is and what role oh, he don't plays know in what it. it is, but yeah. he does, I think. Yeah. yeah. So but, rest in peace to Treat yeah. Williams. Certainly, I think the next two are probably the most substantial of the list. Um, start off with obviously literary icon Cormac McCarthy. Um, he was actually just about a month shy of his 90th mm-hmm. birthday. Um, one of the most well-known, iconic novelists of the last 50 years. You know, obviously some of his biggest books were, of course, something like Blood Meridian or The Road. Uh, no Country for Old Men certainly All the really broke through, especially yeah. as a movie. And I think that's... That'll probably that and Blood Meridian, I would think, are, are going to be his most substantial things people remember because of the popularity of that movie and how it drew people into him. And also, I think, as someone who's only read, I've not read as much about Levi, and I want to hand most of this over to him. Um, exposed and was a good representation of his sensibility on screen. I think that movie yeah. does a great job of that through not only just that book and a movie, but in general, exposing the world to his general. Mm-hmm. philosophy of cinematically um one of like i said one of the most iconic well-known novelists who almost became so well-known that i won't say it was a parody but when people tried to like like what is a quote well-known novelist or a literary icon of today he was like one of those handful yeah. of names people would immediately recognize I've only read all of Blood Meridian. Uh, I've read parts of No Country for Old Men and certainly know his general yeah. oeuvre. Levi, you've been a big fan of him for a while and uh, have read some of his stuff. How did you initially react to this news? And certainly, what has his work meant to you as far as as a you know as a, a works of literature? Yeah, it's weird because. Obviously, we're big readers, so we would have this kind of reaction. And I've seen just a total outpouring of love and appreciation of him, which I've been happy about. Yeah. Obviously, I kind of knew that there was anyway, but um, but I think it's kind of strange. I kind of when I saw it, when I saw that he had died, I saw it on Twitter. I literally kind of just stopped and just sat there for a few seconds and like. That's not something I ever expected to do about a writer. Like, I'll do that for Pinchon, but that'll be a little different because he's just my favorite author, and even DeLillo when that happens. But um, uh, how long has Philip Rothman dead? It's been, I remember when he died. That wasn't that long ago. Let me look that um, up. I, I haven't read any of his books, so that was a different 
feeling, but um, but that yeah, you're well just... aware of his oh yeah, right. his fiction. But right. I just kind of stopped and just kind of sat there for a little bit when I heard about McCarthy because it's really been over the last few years he I've especially died in read. Not Phil Roth. I don't know who that is. Twenty eighteen. There's Philip Roth. Why was his name in the C also section of I that? I, I think Philip Roth. I feel like he's like, definitely the most well known. Twenty eighteen. Yeah. Okay. That's I'm, just I'm confused by that because he's by um, far would be the most well known. <laughs> See also. Oh yeah, Philip Roth. A German know. cellist is above him. Literally, who died in eighteen ninety eight. Oh my God. Anyway. Um, but I've read a lot of McCarthy more recently. I guess for him, I've read No Country for Old Men, uh, Suchery, Blood Meridian, Blood Meridian all, the all the Pretty Horses. Um, I haven't read really any of his older work, which I know is a lot more Faulkner-esque. His newer work's a lot more Hemingway-esque, and that's kind of what I've always taken him more for is the Hemingway mm-hmm. of it, but a little more poetic. I think Hemingway was a lot more to the point. Uh, McCarthy, I think, doesn't get enough credit often for his poetry of the way he writes, too. By the way, there's a picture there it shows of the typewriter he wrote on. What were the years of, of that? Again, it was like he wrote on that same caption, typewriter. It says, McCarthy wrote all of his fiction and correspondence with a single Olivetti Letary 32 typewriter between the early 1960s and 2009. Yeah. At that time, he replaced it with an identical model. So I guess it basically got old. I mean, literally, he's been writing with that same thing for 40 plus years. I don't think I would want to write on anything else by that point. Like, get me the exact same kind of typewriter. Um, But yeah. I'm always marvel at people who use typewriters because that's just we're, we live in either you write something on paper or you do it on yeah. uh, a computer. But, but what you know. I think I love so much about McCarthy, and you see this with, I mean, you think about Pinchon or you think about DeLillo, because I normally think of those three kind of in a similar, uh, although I think, you know, that McCarthy's far less postmodern than those two. Yeah. I think they like come, they're a more New York sensibility. Right. Yeah. But so that's what I think I love and appreciate about McCarthy as a Southerner. Yeah. Because um, he's from Knoxville originally and then moved out to Texas, uh, El Paso, I think, for most well, of his it was life. Certainly you know. a Western sensibility. And right. Obviously, but, I think, you know, this goes without saying, his work is generally associated with either Western fiction or neo Western yeah. themes or right. books. You or, know? Because his, in Southern Gothic, yeah. his earlier stuff. But that what I appreciate about that, somebody described him as this recently. I think it might have been said in his obituary. I can't remember that from the New York Times. Talked about he's the type of guy that does his laundry at laundromats, eats in cafeterias. Like the way it described him, he's a very like unpretentious to the point of like hermetical, obviously, man. He's very known as being uh, staying out of the. the limelight and kind of staying back and not, not really quite to the extent as Pinchon, right. but similar. And yeah. which ironically, one of his most well-known interviews is with Oprah Winfrey, one of the most widely the known yeah. people ever. And I, I, I don't know if you've seen all that interview. I, I watched have some of most it, of it, and yeah. it's he clearly has no pretensions about no. I'm on the Oprah yeah. Winfrey show or like because a lot of that's associated in my mind with I'm not even going to go into it now, but all the Jonathan Friends and stuff that happened right. in the early 2000s. He's very clearly talking lucidly with her about his work and about his ideas about things and his philosophy, which was right. And so, uh, just 
well, that's, I think, what I appreciate most about him because then you read his books and you get that sense of uh, lack of pretension of his writing is very relatively easy to understand. He actually writes in a lot of Spanish because he speaks Spanish, um, especially with uh, All the Pretty Horses. had probably the most Spanish of one of his books mm-hmm. I've read. Um, but... Uh, that I appreciate of him just being willing to say this is the language and either you understand it or you don't. It doesn't matter because I was actually listening to the audio book of what I was referring to earlier and I'll talk about that in a minute. Of uh, I've been listening to the audio book of Blood Meridian which has been really good. It was done by a guy named Richard Poe. Um, is that on YouTube? Yeah, it's all on there. Uh, for free, I guess? Yeah, oh, okay. and somebody actually in the comments was like, download this because they're going to take it off or something. Yeah. Um, which I'm not going to do, but... Yeah. Um, just because I'm going to smoke them till the wheels fall off on that <laughs> one. But uh, there was a lot of it that was it was just speaking Spanish, and I mostly understood all of it because I can understand about 40, maybe 30 to 40% of Spanish, just basic stuff. But um, that, and it was just said it, and <laughs> the characters, I could understand each character speaking, but one was speaking English and the other one was speaking Spanish, and they couldn't understand what the other one was yeah, saying. Right. But I was like, yeah. Like one of them wanted it was that the boy in it, and it never says what his name is in Blood Meridian, is wanting a drink mm-hmm. from the bar, and he's like, "I'll sweep or work for a drink" because they didn't have any money, and he's saying, "I'll sweep, sweep," and he's like making motions like, yeah. "I'll sweep," and the guy and the bartender in Spanish, I think my I don't know this for sure, I think said, "I don't have a broom or I don't need to sweep," and he's like, "No sweep, G D it, I want to mm-hmm. sweep," and like you can tell they're like both talking past each other, yeah, like right. they don't really understand what they're saying, um, but but you read his books and it's a very basic. It's like Hemingway as far as his newer books about being more like very easy to understand, but this immense poetry the and the and the the, the, the construction of the words is far more complex than you would think. The dialogue is extremely realistic. Um, also, he's very noted for not using quotation marks because he does not like the way they look, whatever that means. Uh, which uh, has been the bane of any middle school or high yeah. school English teacher right. of a kid yeah. were to hear that he thinks that or says yeah. that. Well, I'll right. just do the same thing. Yeah. Well, you're not Cormac McCarthy, right. so don't do yeah. that, okay? Well, also, he doesn't use apostrophes a lot of times either. Um, I even noticed that in... I went back and read that essay I was telling you about the Kukuli problem or however you yeah. say that. I was back and reading that, and it didn't use apostrophes in it either. So I was just like, there you go. Yeah. But... Um, that he's just very, he's probably the most down to earth genius I've ever heard of. Is just very, but but isn't out there always talking about himself, yeah. obviously. But it's just very much like I'm just gonna do this, and because uh, I think he was, he's very much a fan of Hemingway, and I think his favorite book was Moby Dick. He's also very injects a lot of very direct biblical language into his books. And biblical allegory, and uh, but it's all clearly somebody who has devoured that literature to the point where that's the way he views the world is in this kind of strange uh, nihilism um, mm-hmm. that I find. I don't want to go so far as to say that I find Blood Meridian in any way soothing or calming because it's not. But a lot of his books, I find the prose to be so. Um, beautiful mm-hmm. that it's hard for me to not 
Mm-hmm. Love it, even at its worst of the the thing. Some of the things that happened in Blood Meridian are so awful that most people stop reading it. Yeah. For me, and I'll say about Blood Meridian, which I've come more and more to love. What I didn't like about the book is that it's very repetitive about describing. Yeah, right. It's a lot. It almost things. comes off as a travel log. Yeah, points. it's basically yeah. he travels here and does this and does that. But what was so genius about it, though, is that it lulls you into that, and then this awful yeah. thing happens, and it kind of wakes you up. And then it's it's a book that I, I love, but it's more interesting to think about and talk about than it always is to read, I think. But, um, the, yeah, I don't know. I just can't think of a writer since Hemingway that is the voice of America, I think, like he is in a lot of ways. Because people like DeLillo and Pinchon, who I like better, honestly, um, are a lot more philosophical in a wordy sense, I think. Like, they think about these ideas in these much more explicit ways and name drop things, especially Pinchon, name drops a lot of people and things and ideas and twists those into this, like, supernatural reality of things that's very postmodern. DeLillo doesn't do that as much, but he operates in a kind of postmodern, obviously, lens too. But McCarthy never really does that, even in something like Blood Meridian, whose villain is literally a seven-foot-tall, hairless albino phantom, basically, of a person. Same thing with Anton Chigurh, which is a very, like, almost ghostly figure. Mm -hmm. Um... So I wouldn't say he doesn't deal in the supernatural, but uh, he does it in a way that's far more uh, just honest and realistic, I think, than some other writers do. Right. You can speak to this even more than me, but I think we owe even... Uh, this is almost going too, <laughs> too far in a way, but I think we owe this whole podcast to him in a strange way because of our, especially you, but our shared love of No Country for Old Men, the film... Mm-hmm. Um, and what that meant to us as budding cinephiles at the time that came out and really why we love movies is to say, oh, you can have a cinematic language like this and mm-hmm. how much of that movie is honestly silent yeah. and something that isn't as remarked upon, I think, is that how quiet that movie is. And Carter Burwell does have a basic score that goes on in it, but for the most part, it's pretty mute and yeah, and you know yeah. But, I, I want to talk about that movie here yeah. a little bit, but um, again, I've not read all of his work, not as much as Levi even has. Um, but I think the thing that really sticks out to me about Blood Meridian, which I had started some years ago and was really liking, but I got busy or something and didn't get to finish. And I think it's around this time, a little you know, last year about. I finally sat down and read the whole thing. Um, wow, I mean, what a book. I mean, it's it's widely mentioned as one of the greatest books of all time. I think Harold Bloom, who's one of the big yeah. literary critics of American history, it always sung its praises yeah. about how great it was. And, yeah. yeah, and especially when I think of a lot of the best 80s literature, it was like that, um, White Noise by mm-hmm. Don DeLillo, and also Tony Morrison's Beloved. Mm-hmm. The, those, all three of those books are... All I'm try to in their own way, soon, juggernaut books and powerful books. Yeah. Um, interestingly, White Noise was the most contemporary out of those three. Yeah. Obviously, the other two take place in the 19th century, so it was removed. Um, but 
the thing about you know Blood Meridian as someone who generally loves not necessarily Western fiction, although I'm wanting to read more of that, but specifically mm. Western movies and Western iconography. Um, and we've talked about this before. That was part of. I feel like that was the final, most nihilistic end result of a trend that had already been happening about making the West quote dark again, nihilistic again, because of the romanticism that had happened, kind of really from like the teens through like middle of the 50s about and then after that it started to get a lot darker um and depictions of it specifically mm-hmm. popularly through cinema um i feel like you know narratively or like literary blood meridian is the end result of that darkening i feel like cinematically unforgiven was did that for the movies what that did yeah. for the, you know for literature um and in many ways, that has a McCarthy sensibility to it in its own way, even though it's not officially an adaptation of his work, obviously. But it just, you know, the grime, the grit, the descriptions in that book, um, the darkness of it, um, and specifically about Blood Meridian, the whole narrative of a child or a kid who's becoming a man who kind of wants to run away from everything, but everywhere he turns, it just gets more and more horrific. Um yeah, I mean, That's a everybody great... says this about the book, but it's a literary equivalent of a nightmare. I feel yeah. like everything about it is so, like I said, realistic, but like heightened. Everything seems kind of like a, like a, a, a hyperbole mm-hmm. of itself. It, yeah. yeah, but and I feel like. And I know I've been reading some James Elroy lately, and you have been mm-hmm. too, and that's a whole different thing. Yeah. But I feel like both what he did for the Western and what Elroy did for the de- detective novel or the crime novel was this, we're going to take these things that are sometimes more lowbrow, and we're going to give you the most literary version of these things yeah. that you can imagine. I think both of them separately are, uh, again, taking these genres and creating these these literary monuments that are, and I don't think they're always quite on the level of say McCarthy, but I think he's really, really good. But, you know, taking these more lowbrow forms and kind of turning them into these high literary benchmarks. And I think, again, I'm very eager. I've been wanting to actually, you know, you had told me a lot about Suchery. I've been wanting to, that's one of the next so many books I want to read. I know when the road came out that, that, you know, he had not always sold very well. I know that's yeah. part of the story of his life and his career. That was one of those books that really broke through. The combination yeah. of when that came out and when No Country for Old Men was a success as a movie, that I feel like that, like he, <laughs> that must have like, been really strange for him because as somebody who's so reclusive to be like confused. And I mean, and about, he was in yeah, an Academy right. Awards ceremony right. when that, yeah. and I remember seeing. Him for the first time, I think, really at that because yeah. I was real wrapped up in that movie and its awards and everything. But um, again, that it was good to see because there's a lot of writers who struggle, 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 struggle so long and don't get to see. Yeah, their because own Blood Meridian is just now a bestseller this week yeah. for the first, the first time, time ever, that ever happened because really. that didn't happen at the time. It didn't sell quite mm-hmm. as well. And as I feel it, like yeah. it's it was you know more about this than me. I think it was well reviewed when yeah. it came out. But it was mostly among all the pretty horses critics. was when he got a little bigger, and then really it was the road when he really had right, like blew up. Yeah, yeah that but, I don't remember all the awards right. that book won, but it was way. I it think was a that lot, is the most, and I we haven't read that book yet, but I think that's the most I've ever seen a book like that become a bestseller. Something mm-hmm. like that get that big, and people talking about it that it was so. 
and I think that's what surprised people is how bleak it was. Yeah. And that because I've always heard that about that book, but having read his other books, I'm kind of like it can't be that much worse. And my theory, I haven't read it yet. Yeah. But my theory on that is nobody had read anything yeah. like that, and so it was like that much. And I would imagine bigger, it's but, a product of its time of the 2000s in the same way that yeah, Blood Ridding right. was of the 80s. Um, And that's another, you know, taking post-apocalyptic fiction and making that very literary, too, which I think it automatically already is in its own way. I think there was this big expectation that that movie was going to be, it came after No Country for Old Men, that it was going to be the next that, and it wasn't quite that. I think it got mostly good reviews. But, again, it's weird. I was very saddened by his death, even though I've only read one book. Um, He had just put out, Passenger and the Passenger Stella and Stella Marie, which is kind of a dual narrative, apparently. Yeah, and we've it's, both bought that, but haven't read it yet. Yeah, got the hardcovers of that, yeah. and that was kind of an event. And I think that got pretty good reviews, yeah. both of those. Yeah. I think specifically The Passenger was a book that had been in the ether for a while that people had known he had written some of and yeah. it hadn't came out yet. But So I'm, it's weird. I was very saddened by his death, but one of the, one of the most encouraging things about being reminded of him in a bigger, deeper, cultural way is almost, oh, I've got all these books I've got to read now. And mm-hmm. I, and the future of me and his work is something that I very eagerly wait and anticipate. Um, again, you know, there's not a lot of writers anymore that have the level of celebrity, pseudo-celebrity, or just respect in the culture. And that's one thing, you know, there's a lot of things objectively that are better or worse about today than, say, in the 50s or 60s or before one of the, without a doubt, worst things about today is the lack of respect writers get as artists yeah. compared to, like, what a Henry Miller or an Arthur Miller got, yeah. like, years ago or even, you know. And so I, it was nice to see that upon his passing, and this had been building for some years anyways, that he got a deep level of respect mm-hmm. that he definitely deserved. Yeah. Um, And so, again... I, I was very saddened to hear he died, but at the same time, I was like, oh, I've got all these books I can't wait to read one day, and, um, you know, it's a shame that he passed. But again, nonetheless, at least he was able to live and see some of the fruits mm. of his Do success, talk, even though uh, he seemed like he didn't really care all that much right. about success in his own way. Yeah, so No Country for Old Men, that's been one of those movies we'll likely talk about in a yeah. deeper way at some point on here. I'd been getting into movies for a while, slowly but surely. I'd been really getting into them ever since I've watched my first movies, obviously. That movie, I'm, I'll never forget. I was standing in the back of um, Miss... Uh, oh, God, what was her name? Ninth grade English teacher. Oh God, I can't remember the name right now. I was remember standing in the back of You're her room. You're talking about Miss Crumb, are you? Uh, no, not her. She, you had her in like 11th yeah, grade? 12th maybe? grade, yeah. 12th. I can't yeah. remember. Okay. Uh, and me and my cousin Philip. We're standing in the back, and we were talking about what were we going to see this weekend because we were starting to really watch more and more movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was an option between No Country for Old Men or There Will Be Blood, which is also literally what one kind of, of reality? Movies. I mean, yeah. I'm, we're looking at a There Will Be Blood poster. What kind of reality right do we live in now where neither of those things are an option? You yeah, know, it's right. like <laughs> literally the two <laughs> best films of a decade right. we're playing. Oh, within what do you want to go do? Yeah. Well, maybe those. And yeah, um, but, we decided on No yeah. Country for Old Men. One of the most powerful theatrical experiences I've ever had still. I mean, a movie that grabbed me and the whole time and then just kind of lightly lets you go. And yeah. the shock of the movie is that it never lets you go. It's mm-hmm. almost that, like yeah. the intensity of it. And again, that was my first exposure in any meaningful way to what he is and represents. And what I love, too, is, again, have only read in Blood Meridian. I've read parts of No Country. 
is visually, without a lot of dialogue, is able to capture his essence cinematically. And I, and I really love whenever that can happen, as I've talked about in the past, I really love movies that are based on novels or certainly have a literary sensibility. I think, again, Todd Field really excels at this in the modern day. And I really and that launched my love into the Coens. That launched my love into specifically that movie, what it meant, what it represented. That was one of the first movies I really went online and read. What does this mean? What does that mean? Everything had a purpose. Everything had a meaning. Um, so that was a huge movie to me in terms of getting into my love of movies. And it's one of those movies that I don't watch as much anymore. There was a period I watched like. Yeah, we've seen a that movie lot like a of times. times. I mean, yeah. oh. and it's not that I don't love it as much as I used to. It's not quite that. It's more that I honestly know what it means to me, and it is now that bottle of wine that I want to preserve right. and not yeah. open all the time. Um, and I rewatch maybe every few years. It actually had been a while since I rewatched it the most recent time, and of course, it was just as great as I ever remember it being. Mm-hmm. But again, um, one of the most important movies in my life, certainly, what yeah. really propelled me into caring about cinema as an art form was that movie. And so, again, I always, and I look forward to really taking in these books, but I'll never be uh, 15 years old again seeing that movie again yeah. for the first time. And when the yeah. impact that had on me was And I was a lot younger. I was like 9 or 10 um, and a lot of people are thinking, you saw that movie at 9 or 10 years old? Uh, yeah. Um, but, that, yeah, I think for me, um, I remember you told me about it. You'd gone and seen it, and you were talking about it. And it was a, f- a year or two after I'd seen it. And uh, I think that there's certain things you almost hate that you saw at an age to influence you. I mean, obviously you're thankful for it. But I think about that movie and Mad Men kind of in a similar vein. And also The Godfather is part of that, too, because that was around the time I saw The Godfather for the first time. That um, that though that those are the things that have basically said this is this is what this is so like or what art it, forms movies are. or TV like Mad Men I saw was the first major like drama I watched yeah and since then other than the Sopranos nothing has even really gotten near that yeah to me yeah of like this is the gold standard of what television as opposed is. to being 30 or 40 some years right. old and, and seeing, seeing it for the it. first time right or the same thing with like i said the godfather is being just like this is what and that is uh, like i said what we basically agree is the greatest movie ever made yeah so it's kind of like it's kind of hard to start movies that way because yeah. then everything else yeah. is you know but same thing with talking for old men but i think what's so great about that is it is the it is ostensibly a thriller it is an action movie, and so for that to be that uh, exciting and riveting, but also be about things and be philosophical and emotional and, uh, I won't say romantic, I'd say more anti-romanticism, um, avert, which is romanticism in its own way, I think, but to be that full of meaning and also be that exciting is really what I've been chasing for movies ever since then and haven't really gotten to that, I don't think, again, quite yet. Like, the only movies like that I can think of to that level are something like The Terminator, maybe. But even that's on a more popular uh, lens. This is even more... It's weird because I wouldn't call it art house exactly, Yeah. but it's not totally popular either. I don't think it follows the popular conventions of storytelling obviously yeah. um 
and that you could have the main character, as a spoiler, if you don't know, the main character be dead 30 minutes before the movie's over. And be and, kind of killed off screen right. almost, yeah. And it's just very much like, oh, well, what's the rest of this going to be? Anyway. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. I'll never forget when I first saw that movie how intense it was, but specifically the, the final scene, which, you know, I feel like, you know, he gets the rap, McCarthy, uh, as a very dark, nihilistic yeah. writer. But that last whole monologue, which I've seen people take pictures of, the ending of the novel, yeah. the No Country for Old Men novel, and how close it is. I mean, it's practically the same yeah. thing. That final monologue that Tommy Lee Jones has, and this kind of, again, this quiet, elegant poetry amidst this darkness and this nihilism, that's really what the books are about. I mean, we all remember these awful, horrific descriptions of things in his books. That's the key. That's what it's all yeah. about is those moments. And, again, that... The intensity of that movie and to end in that way, again, was something that as a child, as again, a 15-year-old, I was like, yeah, blew my mind that you could ever right. have that conclusion of yeah. something like that. I think know? to end with him, before we talk about the last person here, I wanted to read the section from The Country for Old Men. It's, it's in the book. This is actually in the movie um, that I thought about immediately. And I'm probably, honestly, I don't know, I've been thinking about quotes I want to get printed and put up in my room. This is a new thing to do. I might put this up, which kids are going to look at and go, what? But uh, this is when uh, Sheriff Tom Bell is leaving for retirement. Yeah. Uh, it was a cold, blustery day when he walked out of the courthouse for the last time. Some men could put their arms around a crying woman, but it never felt natural to him. He walked down the steps and out the back door and got in his truck and sat there. He couldn't name the feeling. It was sadness, but it was something else besides. And the something else besides was what had him sitting there instead of starting the truck. He'd felt like this before, but not in a long time. And when he said that, then he knew what it was. It was defeat. It was being beaten. More bitter to him than death. You need to get over that, he said. Then he started the truck. And I read that because, like you said, the poetry of that nihilism is, is that even in that, which a lot of people will see as, wow, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard, is to say, well, he felt that before, and he's even saying, you need to get over that, and just starts mm -hmm. the truck and leaves, and just to say that he feels like his entire, and that's what I finally realized what that whole story was really about, was reading the book, which it feels stupid now, because that's obviously that's what the movie's about, too, is about an old Western lawman saying, you know, things aren't like they used to be. Everything's a lot more violent now, and there's no reason for the crime, you know, as there's far as what There's a scene in the is, movie itself... And, yeah. Well, it challenges that notion right. too. Yeah, but but then the whole thing is to also say it's always been like that, and yeah. talking about and that's ultimately I think what his books are about is the evil of man. Yeah, um, which is a very biblical principle, yeah. obviously, um, and that's literally what every of his books is about. I think in a way, Blood Meridian is certainly about that and the evil of humanity, um, and saying. No, that's what that's always been, and kind of that, like I said, that anti-romanticism of the Western, of taking that form and saying, and it's interesting because Blood Meridian and that make good counterpoints of saying the same thing, of saying Blood Meridian saying this is what it always was, and this is what it literally was, this kind of thing of the time period of, you know, pre-Civil Wars, like in the 1840s or 50s, I think, and then with no country saying, and this is what, and then saying, we think of it as this, but this is what it is, you know, and yeah. it's the same thing in the modern context. Mm -hmm. um, 
but yeah, I still get a lot of hopefulness from that, from his writing, even even in the midst of it, that. It's but. yeah, hopeful is a strange word, but I think that's what it is. Yeah. It's a kind of a hopeful coming to terms with. Listen, you might think these this world is evil now, but that's kind of the constant state of humanity. Yeah. And don't get discouraged by that. Instead, try to find your own pay, place and solace within that. You yeah. know, um, what I love too is you read that very beautiful piece of writing. That is not exactly in the movie, no, but but, not, but yeah. there is the scene after he has the diner conversation with the you know oh, the god dang money in yeah time, money the in money the, in the drugs, and that whole green scene hair bones in their and I think about one of the most memorable yeah. shots in the movie to me is in many ways a version of what you just read is when he comes out and sits in his car mm-hmm. and it, again Tommy Lee Jones I don't think he gets enough credit for his performance in that movie in general. Yeah. And he's kind of sitting he's there. He's kind of the third wheel of that movie. Almost, and then you realize, so oh, wait, way, he's yeah. the main character of the right. story, which yeah. is part yeah. of the narrative brilliance of the right. whole thing. Yeah. But um, he's sitting there and he's thinking and he's like, i got to go back to the crime scene. And then he goes back to the crime scene. And there might be a version of that in the book. There is, I can't actually, quite remember. Yeah. Um, but that sense of the blood stain still there, the room's empty, or is it? Um, and... It's like this this grappling with, I can't figure out what, I, there's these missing pieces and I can't quite put yeah. them together. And then obviously the final scene of the movie is like this yeah. shrug well, emoji. Detail, just like, my well, favorite, you know, and I can't figure it out. I could though. say my favorite scene in, this, in that movie is this scene or that scene or that. But one of my favorites is, and we quote it all the time in various ways. We quote that whole movie in mm-hmm. various ways. But uh, that's how many. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, that scene where he talks to Ellis, that old guy that used to be a cop and he got shot um, and yeah. he's in a wheelchair. That guy's randomly on Yellowstone now and in a yeah. lot of like uh, uh, Taylor Sheridan mm-hmm. stuff. So you'll he might have been in Hell or High yeah. Water or I think something. he was, yeah. yeah. Um, and he was in Tulsa King too. And then, the, then that one woman uh it's got two double beds. It's, it's got like two double beds. It's like in yeah. Hell or High Water is the waitress that's like yeah, a big right. whole performance Anyway, that scene there. where he goes and talks to him and uh, and there's a lot of different things being talked about in that scene, but he talks about feeling overmatched is the word that he uses, and and uh, and even the movie opens with that long kind yeah. of monologue about his family being lawmen mm-hmm. and him saying the crime you see now there's no reason to or whatever. But over the movie, he kind of silent, and I feel like the movie explains that as much as the book does. Yeah. But kind of silently, him accepting like. Yeah, that's what all this ever was, and I was kind of a fool to think otherwise. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, so one last thing I just remember yeah. the epilogue of sorts to this when I was taking my AP English exam. Mm-hmm. Uh, this had to have been in mm, now, spring Kyle, of twenty ten. You are not legally allowed to discuss the test oh, well. after it has been. I guess I'm breaking the law yeah. to think about it. Oh well, yeah. um, I forgot. Oh yeah, that's always literally a thing. whatever that test was. Yeah. No one will remember at this point. Yeah. So yeah. So AP English. Um, and this is always is a tribute to Robert L. who I really deeply loved and admired. Um, we collectively as a class read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Yeah. Amazing book in its own way. Um, that I really think a lot about mm-hmm. sometimes still. Um, so we read that collectively as a class because he said, well, you know, that's like a book that can cover a lot of different themes, and so I don't know what they're going to write about or they're going to have the prompt be, but you never know. Like, that's a good one to do. So we get to the AP English exam that day, 
the theme is on justice, the concept of justice liter on literary terms. What do you know? Frankenstein is one of the books listed. Okay. So I was like, oh, okay. But then I saw a little bit further down also the concept of justice was no country for old men. Now, I committed one of the great sins that a student can do. I wrote about that and having not read the book. Yeah, but it's the same. But thing. I but I read yeah. but I heard a lot and I've read a lot about the and movie. They said, it's very close the to Cohen said uh how did we adapt the book? Is that one of us opened the book and the read and the other one typed. Yeah. Like yeah, basically and it's more or less that. I mean there are changes, but which that was written sort of as a movie treatment almost yeah. that made its way into being a novel. It was kind of slightly written as a screenplay yeah. too. We haven't even brought up The Counselor, which we're not going to. Yeah, I thought about You know what's funny that, is we brought that movie up last week when we were talking about Rosie Perez. Oh, we so, did, yeah. Hmm, here we are again. Yeah, I thought anyway, about that too. Yeah. Anyways, but, uh, and yeah. so I committed one of the cardinal sins, but but as I said, I had heard and read. It was very, very close, so I took a, I took a chance. I took a gamble. I'll write about No Control Man because I had read so much yeah. about this movie. It was in my DNA by that point. And I was like, I think I can write pretty loosely about this and be good. Um, we come back to school. And again, he does the whole thing that we're trying to tiptoe around talking about it, but not talking about it too, too much. You yeah. know? And he's like, so everybody everybody do good? And we're like, yeah. And we were talking about it. And he's like, oh, and I think somebody let it slip that like Frankenstein was one of the books that was listed as one you can write about. And he, he literally said, all right, yeah, we all wrote about Frankenstein, right, uh, is our book. And every, literally everybody raised, raised their hand except me. I'm sitting there, and I'm not raising my hand. And he said, well, uh, I was like, Kyle, uh, what, did you, what did you write about? And I said, uh, No Country for Old Men. He said, oh, yeah. And he said, I remember him saying, I didn't have a lot of conversation with him after this. I wish I would have because he's since passed away himself. Mm -hmm. um, uh, oh, yeah, love love Cormac McCarthy. Uh, you a big fan of that book, too? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I can still see his face as I'm saying this. I said, oh, uh, I, I, I've not read the book. I've seen the movie a bunch of times, though, and the look of anger <laughs> on his face. It just like, he just instantly yeah, was like, what? Head, yeah. Like, didn't read the book and wrote about it? And he and he said, are you kidding me? And he he wasn't gonna, yeah. he didn't get super, super mad out yeah. loud. I can tell he was, though. He said, you, did, you mean you didn't read the book? And I said, <laughs> No, I said, I was like, no, no, but I've seen the movie a ton of times and I've heard it's really, really close. And he just, he shook his head just like, and he said, well, we'll see how you do. You know, I can tell he's very mad. I made a four out of five on it. Yeah, so, yeah. and when I told him that he laughed about it later, we had a conversation mm -hmm. about it, but, um, I'll always remember that with that yeah. movie. And that, again, I didn't read it, but I was like, but oh, well, come on. I heard it's really close. So yeah. rest in peace, not only to Cormac McCarthy, but also to Robert Eller, who was a dear teacher of mine who mm -hmm. I admired greatly. Last person we want to touch on, this is not really film-related exactly, but it is, a, I think, a very notable death, one we should talk about, was Daniel Ellsberg, who is most widely known as, uh, you know, basically... A drug fiend? No. Oh. Well, well <laughs> according we'll to Henry that Kissinger, who's yeah. still alive. Um, Somehow, yeah. Who basically leaked the... the the Defense Department we need to documents. check in on that every so often, though, to just let viewer. Oh, we'll talk know about it definitely. Henry when Kissinger after it is still alive. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll definitely anyway, we'll celebrate that when that happens. Right. Um. But he leaked His the death is what we're he saying. leaked we'll the Defense yes, Department yeah. memos that became known as the yeah. Pentagon Papers and widely exposed um, the Vietnam War for the sham that it was. 
I don't use this term very lightly. In fact, I take this term very seriously. I think he was very much an American patriot. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think that's a term that gets so widely abused now. And people call themselves patriotic. I don't think, to me, to be patriotic is not a term you can give yourself. Uh, it's a term that someone bestows upon you. Um, he was, he, interestingly about his history a little bit, he was a guy who went in, you know, believing in the mission of what Vietnam was and basically widely accepted the idea of the, the domino theory and its importance in Southeast Asia and what it meant in the Cold War. Someone who went overseas to see what it was immediately saw this is not the war that is being sold to the American public. And then, again, working, you know, within the confines of the Defense Department, then saw the wealth and monument of memos of all the intense struggles that not only Robert McNamara, but a great many people within the Defense Department had about the mission in Vietnam, so much so that he said, you know what, I'm willing to put my personal, uh, professional name out there on the line and leak these memos because Mm -hmm. the American people are losing uh, boys every day in this. We're killing innocent Vietnamese people every day because of this, which were then expanded to Laos and Cambodia by that point. I do not have a conscience in propping up this war for the sake of that's what the country or the the government wants me to believe. And ultimately, the release of the Pentagon Papers were one of many things that really fundamentally severed the sense of trust that the American public had with the American government, mm-hmm. um, which was among many other things going on in the 60s and 70s that that had a big role in. So again, I don't say this term lightly. I very much think of him yeah. as a deeply uh, American patriot who, again, in more recent years, has seen a restoration of his legacy, obviously, as more and more acknowledgement has been made about the sins of Vietnam and what it meant for the American people and what it meant for the world at that time. The movie The Post actually is about, ostensibly... Who played him in that again? Matthew Reese uh, played him. Uh, And the, the movie... I, there's certain things I really love about that movie than certain things that really The ending me. is just so great, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> the most fundamentally interesting part Grimm's of that whole movie is Catherine Graham's relationship with Robert McNamara, yeah, Bruce Greenwood, who yeah. Bruce Greenwood plays and Meryl Streep plays. Yeah. Her, we'll be talking about Miss Streep in a little bit. But um, that, to me, is Mrs. fascinating. You Assistant know. to Mrs. Streep. <laughs> That's always my favorite, uh, by the way. So, sorry yeah. to get off topic here. One of my favorite credits is assistant to Mrs. Streep or or a, a wardrobe of Mrs. Yeah. Streep yeah but anyway right. is their relationship of these friends who she is on you know this manager of a newspaper and he was ostensibly along with a great many other people the one of the biggest pushes towards going more into Vietnam and this divide of their loyalties and of their friendship I think that's very rich uh-huh. text yeah. there's a lot of other so things let's just make a movie out do. of that yeah, yeah that should have been what it was yeah. that's the strongest stuff yeah. anyways Matthew Reese is almost a footnote in that movie it's mm-hmm. not as big a part as that also the Daniel Ellsberg story is pretty interesting it uses a lot of like uh, you know uh, Mark felt deep throat kind of stuff mm-hmm. there of yeah. like in like how Holbrook and all the President's Men of like it kind of limits that a little bit. I fit in memory. I only yeah. saw the movie once. Well, I but, saw it yeah. again about a few months ago. I remember, yeah. and it actually I liked it a little even less than I had the first time. But again, um, Daniel Ellsberg, true American patriot, did what was right when yeah. no one wanted. Well, that's to what hear I was going to say know? is that I, to me, patriotism is about 
a sacrifice. And a lot of people talk about that, obviously, in the militaristic sense, which, you know, rightly used, I agree with, wrongly used, which is most of the time I don't agree with. Um, but, the, I mean, he's patriotic because he did the hard thing, which yeah. was to be honest and say this is wrong. Because, you know, there's a whole thing, especially with, wouldn't you guess, the American right, which has a problem with leaks and things like this. Because they're like, oh, because I, do I think that there are things that are better to be hidden from the public for national security? Of course. But when they are things that are as immoral and unjust as this, talking about justice as we were a minute ago, um, there are things that are just in like law terms. And then there's real justice, yeah. which is things like this. Mm-hmm. Um it's the same thing with, like, O.J. Simpson, for an example. It's like, oh, I can't believe they gave him all that time for that kidnapping charge. It's like, yeah, because that's a slight sliver of what we know in uh, humanity as justice, mm-hmm. which is served on people who do bad things. Um, yeah. And obviously, as uh, religious people, God is the true judge, and th- that will all be judged accordingly. But um, with Daniel Ellsberg, that's a whole other level of of patriotism, I think, to say I'm going to be... Because uh, how much how much did he serve any jail time so, or much? Um, or it what's talks the a little bit here. On the I don't know page. as much about this as I should, to be honest. In with January you. 1973, Ellsberg was charged under the Espionage Act of 1917. That goes all the way back to mm-hmm. World War One, along with other charges of theft and conspiracy, carrying a maximum sentence of 115 years because of governmental misconduct and illegal evidence gathering, and his defense by Leonard Boudin and Harvard Law School professor Charles Nesson. Judge William Matthew Byrne Jr. dismissed all charges against Ellsberg in May of 1973. Wow. And that was in the midst of, again, the whole... Growing Watergate concerns. Yeah, and and also, like, specifically, the whole plumbers as a concept literally came out of this because Nixon was... What's funny, what's ironic about the whole thing is it was more of a bad reflection on the Johnson administration because it all, all this was mostly compiled and happened while he was president but, yet, but it nixon happened when nixon was with, president right. and tried so hard to fight the publication of these things and the whole the name the whole plumbers comes from the idea that well you know when you got to plug all these leaks you know how you get yeah. you know how you plug the leaks you get plumbers and mm-hmm. so a lot of the plumbers activities while there were dirty tricks that happened before this actually came directly as a result of this so in a weird way nixon's reaction against this ultimately laid the tracks for Watergate to happen mm. and the explosion of... that, And that was the big boom. Right. Of this and that combined were the big booms of... I have no clue how the American public ever trusted the government again, period. After yeah. those two things, well, one after the other. Don't. I mean, yeah. I mean, most I mean that has yeah. been... Right. But then we've went through periods... 9-11, post-9-11. And, and usually the right yeah. is always way better at this right. than the left in terms of... Like the, I mean, Reagan, when he came about and tried to do it in 76, but mostly in 80, was like, see, you don't like government so much. Let me be the one who leads the government because I hate government even worse than But I'm than the head do. of the government because so I'm a hypocritical liar. Right, because but, yeah, that right. whole dissonance that yeah, the right They're has, really but, good at that. And yeah. so, but, but again, in many ways, yeah. Carter did that, a version of that in 76, but Reagan really for the right did that and you know by 80 yeah. uh and but so, like I say after 911 I feel like there was a that was such a shocking blow against America that everybody just accepted oh okay whatever 
Well, then and, it was a real doomsday scenario right. with what that was associated with. Yeah, because and then so a all lot of left versus were, right things right. disappeared. Yeah, and a lot of as we've talked about, a lot of people were very nostalgic for that. Uh, there's a lot of problems though that are inherent yeah. with a lot of that. But. Because then that all led to the Iraq War and the war in Afghanistan and. A lot of terrible things that our government has created and done. Uh, and also the that. level of hate that uh, Islamic Americans mm-hmm. had to deal with so, right after that, you know. Yeah, so that's... And now I feel like we're in the same... Not to this level, but we're there again about questions of... Um, which I don't prescribe to whatsoever, but questions of voter fraud. Well, that obviously was a thing with the Trump, you know, elections. Yeah. Of versions of that. Now, how much that actually happened, I think, has been maybe overblown and also just goes to show how stupid the American public is that they would elect somebody like that. Um, sorry to get so overtly political, but y'all know the deal by now. Um, but that with this newer stuff, you know, I don't believe in as far as Biden goes and all that. But, um, because ain't it funny how both times the Democratic nominee won. Mm-hmm. Ain't that kind of funny mm-hmm. how that happened? Yeah. But then the other one won the other time? Yeah. Kind of crazy how that works, ain't it? You know, yeah. the Electoral College. But anyway, so yeah, I mean, uh, I feel like we're in a version of that again of distrust of the government, but I feel like that has never been totally repaired since mm-hmm. this, like no. you said. Um, that was a fundamental that, break. Yeah. There already was something that the left had been saying really post-Kennedy. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, you know, with Johnson and Nixon, um, but really, and I think after you know, this, and there but, are a lot of people not only on the right. There were people on the left who hated him when he mm-hmm. did this, and said how how uh, unpatriotic this is. How dare he do this? This is driving America apart. No, I'm pretty sure it's the Defense Department d- directly lying about why we should go in a war that's killing hundreds of thousands of people. I'm pretty sure that's tearing America apart. Not what one guy did, what was right when he should have done it. Yeah. Uh, no, no, you know what? Not a guy leaking what um, this thing is tearing America apart. Actually, what America's doing is tearing America the apart. The Vietnam calls Kent State, not Daniel Ellsberg. Right. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that had happened so, even slightly before that. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's And so, again, I think the term patriot gets thrown around way too much. Um, he very much to me is an American. Yeah. Because patriot. even somebody like. And dealt with yeah. a lot of anti Semitism at the time, yeah. too, because right. he's of Jewish ancestry. Yeah, and I mean, ancestry. part of that, too, a lot of people talk about. Uh, John Dean that way now. Um, But the thing about John Dean is, too, is he was going to go down for all that, and he was basically just not that he didn't didn't do the right thing by coming out and saying this is what happened, but uh, Daniel Ellsberg didn't ever have to do any of this. He didn't have to do anything. He could have easily just been part of the machine and kept quiet and not said anything, but... You know, because John Dean has faced a lot of either similar hate or similar uh, praise yeah. since that. But like I said, that's different because he literally was going to like go down for that stuff, which was all going to come out eventually anyway. Um, but Dan- like I said Daniel Ellsberg didn't have to do anything, but the fact that he did, um, I don't even know what would what history would be like without him and what wars would have... I think this stuff would have came out eventually, yeah, but it but certainly was maximal impact. How much did, worse you know. that war could have been. Yeah. Uh, and it already was, you know. I want to read but, this quote. Uh, yeah. This is from a memoir he wrote in 2002, which I haven't read, but I think this is a very fascinating quote. 
uh, when you're talking about Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. It was no more a civil war after 1955 or 1960 than it had been before the U.S. supported French attempt at colonial reconquest, a war in which one side was entirely equipped and paid by a foreign power which dictated the nature of the local regime and its own interest was not a civil war. To say we had interfered in what is a really a civil war, as most American academic writers and even liberal critics of the war to do this to this day, simply screened a more painful reality and was as much a myth as the earlier official one of aggression from the North. In terms of the UN Charter and our own avowed ideals, it was a war of foreign aggression, American aggression. Mm-hmm. So, again, uh, rest in peace, Daniel Ellsberg. Again, he lived to be 92 years old. Um, one of America's true patriots, I would say, of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So, speaking of the end of the 20th century, we're going to get into two rip roaring wicked speaking uh, of patriotic yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty, none of these movies are either patriotic or unpatriotic uh, they're simply no I mean I think of the two the river wild is more patriotic by just saying here is America but then here is also America like you know in the same way Wolf I have no clue what Wolf is about I don't know if Wolf knows exactly what it's about either. we'll talk about that later But here is yeah. the trailer for the river wild People don't do the gauntlet anymore. Have you ever done it? Oh yeah, listen, I ran the gauntlet once when I was 18 and completely insane. But I was with two other guides, experienced guides, and we were just lucky. But there were two other people that summer who did not get so lucky. One guy got killed and the other is paralyzed for life. But don't worry, we're gonna hit some three and four pluses. You're gonna scream your guts out. You'll love it. We are gonna risk death a number of times on this trip. actually a weirdly i think pretty good trailer for the river wild yeah not because of the, how good the movie is which is quite good mm-hmm. but it it gives you enough of a hint of what the movie was going to be before obviously really yeah it doesn't have any it. of the like uh main plot aspects of it of them being kidnapped and all that stuff i think it's better that it just says no this is just this experience that happens and it's you know you don't you're not burdened with all that information I think, which is interesting. So, The River Wild is, of course, from 1994, American adventure thriller film directed by Curtis Hansen, starring Meryl Streep, Kevin Bacon, David Strathairn, John C. Riley, Benjamin Bratt, and Jonathan Mazzello as Rourke, specifically. And as Joseph R- Mazzello. Oh, what did I say? To Jonathan. Mazzello. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Excuse me, Joseph. As Rourke, but specifically, he is yeah. Rourke. Like, well, first of all, that. uh, that's like the name of the villain in... Call of Duty Ghosts, <laughs> Rourke. Yeah. So, okay. But then also just the fact that it's like, that's a, more of a last name. Yeah. And it's like, 
Rourke is your first name. Yeah. Like, okay. It's about a family on a whitewater rafting trip who encounters two violent criminals in the wilderness. So, uh, we're going to go through a lot of the cast crew mm-hmm. here in just a bit, but just some of the other crews specifically. Robert Ellsworth shot the movie. Yeah. Uh, now, we saw... Uh, how was it we watched this again? DVD. Uh, it's DVD. It's one of those movies I could tell... The transfer looked fine, but I would imagine like a newer yeah. transfer would probably look better. Yeah, I mean, it was it, a DVD from the 2000s at some point, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. A uh, very early DVD. Our say. boy Jerry Goldsmith did the music. Well, you know, I was looking about this a while ago that Maurice Jarre, who's a really big uh, composer for movies, had supposedly done an entire score for this, and the producers threw it out. Mm-hmm. and didn't like it and then they got Goldsmith to do it which is just Strange. like okay. yeah Goldsmith had a lot of hits by then yeah. and was well known and but it's just ran- and Maurice Jarre that was like he was getting older by then I mean it, so yeah I like he was doing stuff I'm pretty sure he did like Lawrence of Arabia so mm-hmm. like he'd been working for a long time yeah. up until then to where yeah but I'm just confused by that about like what did they hate about that I don't know it was interesting but as it says here, languages, it's primarily in English. There is a little bit of American Sign Language. That's primarily in the beginning. Yeah. Although it does provide, and it does seem, I don't know if cheap's the right word, it does provide a way later for them to communicate while being held hostage, basically, yeah. you know, and so, you know, there's that's the aspect to it. Movie had a $45 million budget. Uh, box office was $94.2 million. So it, you know... It did fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it's not all that surprising. I'm all, honestly almost surprised that the budget was as high as that. You know? Yeah, well, I you guess. can you can tell, especially by the end. Also, you don't have to pay a bunch of actors either yeah. um, because there's so few. Um, and so, yeah, they, they put a lot of their money into how difficult it must have been to actually shot the... Uh, River sequences, so, you know. It was yeah. written by Denny O'Neill, but not that Denny. No, O'Neill. yeah, because we were, we were like, like, what? Like, like, the yeah. comic book writer, we right. thought, not Dennis O'Neill. Uh, before we go through the cast, I want to talk a little bit about Curtis Hanson. Um, mm-hmm. He he died a few years ago. I can't quite remember when it was. I'm trying to pull up Wikipedia, but for whatever reason, mm-hmm. uh, the internet's not doing well. Right here. To speak about him briefly, one he thing died in I, 2016. Yeah, when it was. One thing I know is that he was, uh, like I think I mentioned last week, or I might have mentioned it off air, I don't remember, is that he was one of the writers of uh, White Dog. I remember that had been written by, I think, him, or no, somebody else had been chosen to write that or something, uh, based on the Romaine Gary novel, and then he kind of rewrote it or kind of did another draft with Samuel Fuller. Um, And that movie was kind of a pretty big bomb a lot of people didn't see it and a lot of people didn't like it uh but now is seen as yeah, one of his best shows he's co-writer you know he's yeah. he's credited as a co-writer with samuel fuller mm-hmm. on white dog i know you've seen that movie and spoke spoke of it before mm-hmm. um the thing is what's interesting if you look at his career in the movies he's made and i've not seen all of them i've seen some of them um going back to what we've talked about what a literary quality is before already on this pot, even in obviously in the past, he seems like a very, when you look at the movies he made and he's specifically like, I would key into like a run of like five movies here or four, excuse me. Um, has this very almost literary, uh, literary slash, uh, 
uh, thoughtful, popular adult entertainment quality of a lot yeah. of the movies that he's made. Um, the Hand That Rocks the Cradle, I've never seen that. I've always heard good things about it. He uh, directed in, in uh, 1992. Mm-hmm. He did this in 94. L.A. Confidential, which I've been really wanting to reread after reading some Elroy recently. I want to reread that. I want to read the book for the first time yeah. and then rewatch the movie. Um, and then Wonder Boys, which I've not seen the movie. We've of. read I the book. A lot of, but, I like the book right. a lot from Michael Shaban. Uh, and I've always heard good things about the movie. And then, weirdly, 8 Mile, he also directed, Yeah, that's which probably is, arguably his biggest project I can think of because... Uh, um, that I know. It's between that and LA Confidential. Yeah, because um, LA Confidential was kind of an Oscar play movie yeah, that got was. a lot of attention um, when it came well, out. Well, didn't Eight Mile win some? Or well, uh, no, just one best original song. But I know that's a movie that like was been seen big by, for a certain yeah. cinephile of that time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a really big movie. I I haven't seen it, so I don't I've know. seen bits of it. I don't but, think I've seen the whole um, thing. And so. That would probably be kind of problematic now. I would think about what the movie's kind of about, because um, it says uh, it's played by Eminem. Yeah, his attempt to launch a career in hip hop and music genre dominated by African Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like old pity well, party for the one white guy. Well, that's know, also kind of his whole mo in general. Right. Is so Eminem's yeah, and, but that and uh, yeah, like I said, L.A. Confidential are kind of the biggest. I, I do hear. I felt like I heard more about L.A. Confidential when I was a kid. Um, well, as I was telling and, you recently, that there was a time, obviously, with Titanic's massive box office success, as we've talked about in the past with the episode on Titanic, and also all the Oscar wins, there was a period in like the mid to late 2000s, even going through really, I would say, almost the mid-2010s, where you looked really cool online if you said, "Oh, I like L.A. Confidential more than right. Titanic," and that's yeah. nothing. That's to say nothing about L.A. Confidential because yeah. I remember thinking it was really good, but it was one of those movies that was also up for some Oscars. Yeah, and didn't win. Obviously, I don't. Did it win any Oscars? I'm not uh, sure. I'm looking here. It says it was nominated for nine. It won two: best supporting actress for Kim Basinger, and then uh, best adapted screenplay. And Titanic won every other category that it was Hansen nominated himself for. Himself, the screenplay. Uh, he and Brian Higland okay, uh, adapted it from okay. the novel, right? Um, and yeah, I was gonna say like I think also a lot of people maybe really love that movie because of it being I don't know because I haven't seen it, but being uh, an adaptation of Elroy. That that's a lot that's of people. Kind of the first really big one in right anyway. seeing yeah. that as. You know, seeing an El the Elroy aesthetic. kind of aesthetic yeah. in a movie. I don't know, but yeah. uh, it also launched the careers of a lot of movie stars. I mean, specifically yeah. Russell Crowe, yeah. uh, Guy Pearce. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a more of a coming of age role, a little bit for James Kevin Cromwell Spacey by that way. David Strathairn was in that too. I didn't know that. Yeah, hmm. Danny DeVito. <laughs> Danny DeVito yeah. is in that. Yeah, he's got I'm a very memorable him, part. I'm imagining him talk, uh, speaking Elroy lines would be hilarious. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. there's this whole thing, the whole movie opens with, he's like, he's the publisher of L.A. Confidential, the magazine. Right. He's like, on the QT, on the hush-hush. Right. Like, he's like yeah. saying it at the beginning of the movie. Again, yeah. I remember it, fondly enough, I've not seen it a bunch, I want to really rewatch it. Now, after isn't that where Kevin Spacey's like, uh, the villain in that sort of or something or, him and james cromwell i think right. are i can't quite oh, remember the, james cromwell is literally like one of the characters in the big nowhere i've been okay. reading so i didn't know that but yeah. um and 
Hang on, I want to see what some of these Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce are ostensibly the heroes. Kim Basinger is kind of a femme fatale. Buzz Meeks is in it, too. Yeah, because that's the whole thing about, you know, those uh, books. They're all connected in some kind of way. And it's been a long time. L.A. Quartet series. Yeah, it's a long time since I've read The Black Dahlia. I think it's probably, from what I've understood, the least connected of of those four. Yeah. But uh, I've really liked The Big Nowhere. I'm almost done with it. Um, I feel like it's a better version of that story about tying in a lot of different ideas and things kind of into one thing rather than just the Black Dahlia. But like I said, I haven't read that in a long time. Anyway. But to, but, but to get back yeah. to Curtis Hansen, what I mean by when I said he just makes very thoughtful adult entertainment, this should be a movie that plays, if not every week, every other week in theaters. It's not the greatest thing ever, but it's really well made. Talk about the River Wild. The River right. Wild. It, yeah. It's really well made. It's got like some really quite high quality performances. It do, it feels real for one yeah. thing. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel artificial like so many movies today do. Right. This, like I said is a fairly anonymous movie in the 90s, and I think that's one of the reasons we wanted to pick it was because, one, we wanted to see it and talk about it, but also it just kind of represents an also-ran movie that not a lot of people are going to immediately think of when they think of 90s cinema, but this is the sort of movie that we all, I think, agree we desperately yeah. wish still yeah. existed. And again, it's not the greatest thing ever, yeah, but just it's so well-made and well-calibered for what it is that that's, again, really what we would... Yeah, because we'll talk more about this later, but that's kind of one of the things I wrote down here was talking about uh, well-made adventure thrillers, do we need them now, or survivor films, survival films in general. Yes, I think so, but we'll get to that in a bit as far yeah. as what what are versions of that now or what is that whole kind of genre in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but We'll go yeah. through the cast here. Uh, Meryl Streep as Gail Hartman. She's uh, you know the lead of the movie... Um, have we I, talked about Streep on here before? Maybe a little bit. I'm going to look at I, I recently rewatched, uh, or not rewatched, I watched for the first time Postcards from the Edge, which was a Mike Nichols movie, funny enough, mm-hmm. uh, that was loosely an adaptation of Carrie Fisher's novel, which is, or not, it's not, no, it's an adaptation that is loosely drawn from Carrie Fisher's own life about her relationship with her mother, uh, Debbie Reynolds and mm-hmm. her drug abuse that she Carrie Fisher went through is portrayed by Meryl Streep. Right. I've always liked Meryl Streep. It's honestly in more recent years where I've really come to appreciate her more and more as an yeah. actress, and I thought she was really amazing in that movie. There's mm-hmm. one scene in particular she has with Gene Hackman, who's only in like two scenes of the movie, um, where she's trying to like redub a line of dialogue that she was basically, you know under the influence when they were recording on the day and she needs to get it right and she keeps doing it and doing it and yeah. then finally gets it and then they kind of had this big conversation about movies and life and it's just a really great scene mm-hmm. and a pretty good movie. Um, but again, Meryl Streep, I mean, I think she's obviously undeniably one of the most recognizable female stars of the last 50 years. Yeah, She's one of the... I, I know one thing that is pretty notable about her is she was one of the... First actresses who was allowed to kind of sort of in the modern era to be both kind of a sex symbol, but also is taking seriously yeah. as an actress because usually you're either one or the other with right. those two things. And so she's, you know, really threaded the needle in terms of being able to, again, both be a starlet, but also be 
a respected actress. Yeah. What's your takeaway from Streep in general, but also maybe specifically what she brings to this movie? I've always liked Streep. She's not somebody, though, that uh, I'm sorry to say I haven't seen her in in a lot of things, actually. Um, now I've seen her in stuff like Kramer versus Kramer and The Deer Hunter, both of which she's really good in. That Out of Africa, we, I touched on a while right, back. I haven't seen about, that, yeah, but, Havana. uh, hmm. Oh, when we, we talked about, about Havana, Havana yeah. right? I thought you were saying she was in it. I was no. like, what? Um, Bridges of Madison County, I've always heard great I've things about. I've read the about. book and yeah. haven't seen the movie. I bet the movie would be better. Uh, I've kind of always heard that anyway. Um, but yeah. And there were a couple, oh, Adaption, I think she's really good oh, in, yeah. is Susan Orlean and mm-hmm. that I thought was really that's a whole movie's really good, but her and Chris Cooper are both really good in that. Um, Doubt and Doubt, yeah. yeah, that's one I've seen. Mama uh, Mia, I I, yeah. I think's a lot of fun. I like that movie quite yeah. a bit too. But she's kind of entered now a that kind of where a lot of actors and actresses go in their careers of like I am now appearing in this thing of oh Meryl Streep's here and you just go by her name alone. There's a lot and of Robert so, De Niro movies. Right. In it. He's a, that's a slightly other thing, but yeah. it's similar. And know. so for me, I've noticed that over the years that that with that she's honestly become more of an institution right. where that name means a lot yeah but when you look at a lot of these earlier movies a little bit before she really had achieved that is some of right. her pretty amazing work that and she so that's done. what i want to see more of and i just haven't but so for a long time i had this kind of confusion about meryl streep honestly where i was like oh manhattan's another one i didn't think yeah, of. small role in that. um but that where it wasn't that i didn't like her but i was just like what's the big deal about meryl streep like because by the time I was a kid, like yeah. with the Devil Wears Prada, oh, that, that which was, was probably big, yeah, when big. I first heard of her, uh, I was like, okay, like I've, I haven't seen her in anything. And then as I've seen more things, she is, I think, really Mentioned good. Mentioned the post earlier. Um, I, I think she's yeah. quite good in that, mm-hmm. and I wish the movie had more of her in that, but it gets bogged down in other things. Yeah. So. Now, also, um, she, I know, has been in some other Mike Nichols or in a lot of Mike Nichols yeah. stuff like Silkwood. Um, she was in that movie Heartburn um, mm-hmm. also. Um, Ironweed as well. So she's worked with Nicholson quite a bit yeah. over the years. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I want, like I said, want to see Bridges in Madison County. There's a lot of her stuff I really she want to a see. very small yeah. voice in AI. AI. Yeah, she's in. Uh, oh, I forgot. Yeah, she's in Series of Unfortunate Events. That might actually be the first movie I saw her in. Prairie Home Companion also. But yeah, no, I really like her, especially seeing a lot of her earlier things where she became known, um, I thought is really It is good. interesting now, like you said. She's really good in this, too. She's become what, more of an institution in... She's on. You think about her in, like, say, Little Women, Greta Gerwig's Little Women. She's almost way off to the side, almost played off like a joke, which yeah. I know that's part of the character. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure Greta Gerwig was thrilled she could just get somebody like yeah. Meryl Streep to play to a role To speak like of that. her in this movie, though, I think she's really good because we love Strathairn. We're going to get to him in a minute. Mm-hmm. We've probably talked about him before on here, maybe. maybe I don't know. Bit, yeah. But uh, normally in these types of movies, it's the man yeah. who is the leader of everything, and he's the one who can navigate the river. It is very much a woman's movie mm-hmm. the entire time in ways that other adventure thrillers had not been before and this. And she doesn't have a, um, a woman to play off of by no. her side either. She's yeah. We joke throughout the movie about there's a daughter who's also yeah. part of the family, well, but she gets yeah. like left right. behind and with her the mother. Her mother is in a scene earlier in the movie. Uh, and there is and, that one important scene where they're talking and she's yeah. like, 
well, don't you think if life was easy, I would have gave up on a lot of things a long time ago? Like the, her husband, Streep's father, is deaf, and so mm-hmm. that's how she's no sign language. That's actually language. a way they can, some of them can communicate because they know right. sign language. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but so there's yeah. that one scene where she's, you know, she's kind of challenging her to, you know, buck up and kind of be the woman. I won't even say it's like in this paternalistic way for your family, but just like to be a mature woman. Mm-hmm. And that's part of growing up. You know what I mean? Even yeah. Though she's clearly an adult or whatever. But yeah, as you said, it's very much a female oriented thing. And that in and of itself is different. And her husband's kind of the the bookish weenie yeah, out of the yeah. two of them, which is right. kind of an interesting and choice to do. She's very in control. And she has moments of hysteria, obviously, but she doesn't like beg Kevin Bacon at yeah. a point. She just says, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. You'll she, see. Yeah. Like, and spoiler, <laughs> yeah. she does. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, so that is definitely, I think one of my more favorite roles from her I've seen for a movie that isn't that discussed is just, she runs the movie and, even in ways yeah. that you would think Kevin Bacon or John C. Riley might steal the show a little bit. But I feel and like this she is still true. Does I would say this is part. true for most people in the movie, but obviously, especially her, because she's the lead. Very physical performance. Mm-hmm. It's not just purely yeah. actors walking in rooms, hitting the mark, right. say a line. And I, said, I mean, it's uh, very out, it, uh, pretty much exclusively me, exteriors, in the river, on the water. I mean, it's very, very, very physical performance as well. Right. But, I was yeah. going to say, I was reading earlier. It said here that she had done some of her own stunts. Yeah. But they also had. Well, also, they trained all the actors for about two weeks how to do this stuff. said that, uh, I'll read here in Wikipedia, it said, There was a scare at the end of one day of filming when Hanson asked Streep to shoot one more scene to which she objected because of her exhaustion. However, she decided to attempt it, and weak from fatigue was swept off the raft into the river and was in danger of drowning. She did not drown because of her personal flotation device and the river rescue team. Afterwards, she said to Hanson, In the future, when I say I can't do something, I think you should believe me. To which he agreed. Yeah. So, so it was a rough shoot. That was like, something so, I was, we didn't really yeah. talk about when we were watching the movie. But obviously, I was thinking the whole time like this had to be a, a, as, a bear to shoot. Well, you know, as as our old friend Richard Dreyfus once said, this thing was a bit to shoot. Yeah. Um, I don't even. Know, I would like to get the audio of that, but I'm not going to pledge that yeah. because we don't know where it is. Yeah. Um, go and watch the random documentary made for the Jaws VHS. Well, that, also uh, where. Spielberg says also in it when you're talking about the mechanical shark, which I called the great white turd, and then yeah, just moved on like right. uh, like you think that's funny, don't you? It's like yeah, okay, um, but yeah, I do think she's really great in this, and it it's a uh, like I said, both a well a good basic performance of what it needs to be, but also like I said, a very physical. Well, I think too, this so. is a good argument, and you you've seen this plenty of times over a lot of eras. Um, when you get a really high quality actor to play a performance like this, mm-hmm. and when I what I mean by that is you think about like mm-hmm. say Daniel Day Lewis and Last of the Mohicans is yeah. like it's different, uh, but it's a similar thing where it's like you get a really high quality actor to do this more action slash adventure oriented role where they're required mm-hmm. to do stunts or kind of be this, quote, action hero. Right. I think this is obviously, those are two really great examples of this time period of you get great results when you do that. You know, mm-hmm. so Kevin Bacon, he's ostensibly the main villain of this whole yeah. thing, uh, as Wade. Uh, Kevin Bacon. I don't know if we really had a big... Well, we mm-hmm. talked about Kevin Bacon probably a little bit with JFK. 
Yeah. That's one of the most defining performances for me and him in this era. I'd say that along with, say, um, A Few Good Men also from this era. I mean, Kevin Bacon's... One of the you know defining aspects of Kevin Bacon is the six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon, right. where he's literally been in so many things uh, that he basically has proximity to practically anyone in Hollywood mm-hmm. of the modern era. Just to go through some of his big 90s work, of course he did stuff in the 80s, but just talking about the 90s, Tremors, in 91 alone, he was in one, two, three, four, five movies. Yeah. 91 Pirates, Queen's Logic, He Said, She Said, JFK, and A Little Vicious. 92, A Few Good Men. This year he was in this New York Skyride, The Air Up There. 95, Murder in the First, Apollo 13, Balto. 96, Sleepers. 97, Picture Perfect, Destination Anywhere, Digging to China, Telling Lies to America. 98, Wild Things. 99, Stir of Echoes. So if you were going to the movies in the 90s, yeah. you saw Kevin Bacon somewhere. Right. What do you take away from Kevin Bacon in general, but also maybe what he adds He's to this movie? He's in so many things, as you like, It's hard to really I pin mean, down what is, quote, quintessential Kevin right. Bacon. Because you know? he's played good guys, he's played bad guys. Normally when I think of Kevin Bacon, I think of like... Shady, uh, shady slash bad characters. Yeah, yeah. Right, of some sort. Because I think of him in JFK... I think of him in this. I, I really um, love his placement in A Few Good Men because yeah, that also. he's he's the antagonist of... So- well, really, the antagonist is Nicholson in the movie. But he's defending Nicholson right. uh, as a lawyer. But even by the end, he knows that Nicholson right. sunk his ship and that I'm not... Yeah. You know, I'm just doing my job. Also, this guy's I, most crazy. people probably think of him in Footloose. As like That's the, the biggest, biggest thing, thing in the 80s. Obviously, yeah. the first big thing he was, was his film debut was Animal House. Obviously, yeah. he was in. And then he was also in Diner. So there was kind of that really good period too. where he was in those like coming-of-age, yeah. younger roles. In the 80s. And then he, like I said, kind of transitioned into being in those different... Uh, kinds of things. Also, he was in Mystic River, I'd forgotten about. But in the um, 90s, I think of him yeah. and obviously uh, uh, Kiefer Sutherland is just yeah, like dirt bags. Right. Like, yeah, know, and they're both in something yeah. like A Few Good Men. Yeah. Kiefer Sutherland's in tons of other things in that era too. But like, yeah. just Was he in Stand By Me now I'm thinking about it? I don't think he was, Kevin Bacon. Because he's literally just like Kiefer Sutherland basically in that is a version of Kevin Bacon it feels like. But, um, but yeah, that's a whole thing about Kevin Bacon, as you mentioned, that six degrees of Kevin Bacon, which is just saying that he has been in so many things, you know, that you can tie anybody to that. You can't really do that with anybody else. Um, and to be that big of a movie star. Um, but like I said, I mean, he's really well known, but he's never been like a big, big movie star. He was not in uh, that movie, by the way. In Okay. Uh Stand by me, but literally he could have been easily. I remember him a um, lot in Frost Nixon. He plays Jack Brennan, who is basically one of Nixon's yeah. right hand men, uh, his chief of staff and his post president. You know what's funny is I have not seen that movie, but when I think of Kevin Bacon, I'm like Kevin Bacon movie. Yeah, that's well, one of the first things. Describe I think to me of, what like, you mean by that, because I think that's getting to the like, heart of Kevin Bacon. By just like a perfectly fine. Ron Average, Howard production. Ron Howard production, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Apollo 13 right. he's in, so, yeah. yeah, too. Just, we need a man. Kevin who Bacon. Is, who right, is right. man? Which which sounds like we're saying, like, I like Kevin Bacon fine, you know. Yeah. But, uh, 
I know he was in that movie a few years ago. I really wanted to see, but I didn't. Called Cop Car, where that seemed oh, like yeah. more of a like, yeah. ooh, Kevin Bacon is back kind of role or whatever. Yeah, he was a um, villain in that. Yeah, that was right around time of Black Mass, which he also was in. I don't I remember, remember him in that. Yeah. Literally, it was like, oh yeah, there's X Men First Class. He plays Sebastian um, Shaw. He was a good villain in yeah. that. R.I.P.D. R.I.P.D. keeps coming up, y'all. I forgot he was in Crazy Stupid Love, but I think he's kind of not a, you know, there's no quote real villains in that movie. Are you movie, aware like an antagonist of a movie called Jane Mansfield's Car, directed by Billy Bob Thornton? <laughs> no. That has Robert that. Duvall, John Hurt, Kevin Bacon, Ray Stevenson, Francis O'Connor, and Robert Patrick. Okay. It's the first movie that Billy Bob Thornton attempted to direct after All the Pretty Horses, the... Cormac McCarthy movie, which right. was supposedly terrible. I've never seen it. I've, everybody I've ever talked to about that movie says it's terrible, but I've never seen it. Obviously, um, it says in uh, ne- in the ne- in the near future he's going to be in the new Toxic Avenger movie. Really, uh, okay. Beverly Hills Cop, Axel Foley, hmm. and Maxine, which is the third of the Ty West uh, horror movie trilogy that he's been doing with X, and then right. Uh, what was the newest one? Oh gosh, Pearl. Pearl. Yeah, it's gonna be that Maxine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's gonna be in right. That, so, but anyway, it was also in the Hollow Man. That's another movie I was reading. But he, and then like I say, Wild Things we mentioned. That's another big one I kind of think of. That also has Matt Dillon. But Mystic River specifically uh, was yeah. talking about that a little bit. That was a pretty big movie. I feel like out of the three big leads of that between yeah. Sean Penn, Tim Robbins, and him, he's probably the third wheel of that mostly because well, Sean Penn was the, the big Oscar right. performance and Tim Robbins has the most like tragic arc of yeah, the Yeah because I was going to say you know, that Kevin Bacon is the normal one in quotes like yeah. he's the cop who's just you know it's Doing been a job. long time since I've seen Mystic River but I forget he's in that I'm always thinking about Sean Penn and Tim Robbins usually based on specific scenes Yeah right um but there, yeah. I, I do I, I actually think I actually love Sean Penn as an actor yeah. I think a lot about him I do think though like uh, like 2000's Oscar clip moment. That one where was when he's like he screaming, his daughter's found like, dead. Yeah, and, and he's like, yeah. scream, that's no, like an Oscar clip moment. I think about like, that all the time. Is yeah. like Sean Penn, yeah, like say in Mystic River, basically any scene, but yeah. specifically that one. Um, anyway, all that's just to say that, yeah, Kevin Bacon is... He's got that, uh, what he's really good at in this movie, and yeah. I think in general, he's got, like when he plays bad guys, he's got that like, Little winking smirk menace that like yeah I'm gonna kill you but I'm gonna be a little charming while yeah. I do it now of course you know, we've talked about him with JFK before fascism but, coming back but <laughs> he I really love him in JFK because he's a particular character of like a gay man who's also a, a right wing like yeah. fascist which normally you don't yeah necessarily I think there's there's those shots and scenes where he's dressed up in that like 18th century garb or whatever he's got like the like I don't even like to talk about those scenes and we did it in the commentary so we'll you know whatever but yeah I think he is really good in this as like a straight up villain he's like that like you mentioned the Kiefer Sutherland role in Stand By Me but an adult in the 90s version of that and then also Kiefer that, Sutherland was still right. being that in yeah. the 90s yeah but the, it's funny cause there's that I've been thinking about it for a while that scene that we used last week uh, to yeah. introduce it where everything kind of unravels and it's like oh well where David Sutherland's like we're taking them down the river yeah and there's and that's what we're gonna do like, you know <laughs> like that whole scene and but the, he's like what are you doing like the way he talks yeah. is so like, and it's funny because it's supposed to be in like 
you know, Idaho, mm-hmm. but it's like he it sounds like he's like some southerner or something. Well, it's like put on thinking you know, about people that like, could play our a neighbor of ours. I mean, yeah, maybe him in yeah. another what area. What are you doing? You know, like, um, why are you acting crazy? Why are you doing? Why this? are you acting like this? Yeah. <laughs> That'll we be an after dark that. bonus podcast. Yeah, someday <laughs> when that person's dealt with and put where they need to be, <laughs> there's only two places. It's like what my, uh, like what our old uh, great uncle Arnold used to say when he'd hold up his fist. He'd say, "You want the hospital or the graveyard?" <laughs> you know. Um, but I mean, yeah. And, but anyway, <laughs> but to the but to the Kevin Baconness of yeah. all this, like this movie, and I say this more more as a compliment than yeah. not. I think Levi would agree with me on this, like. In the best way, this whole movie in general feels like the VHS you find at a beach home, which we've we've made this comparison with other things before. The same, and you're just like, like you know. a '90s movie that you're like, you look at the cover of, and you're like, okay, I guess that existed. Yeah. I didn't know about it. Yeah. And who is the villain? Oh, Kevin Bacon, of course right. he's the villain. It's just yeah. that kind of movie. Well, thankfully, you know? this is and, one of the ones that's one of the better versions yeah, of that right. I've seen because there's been a lot of those we've watched over the years that's that type of movie the that Saint, we're obsessed yeah, with. Said, like yeah. The Saint is yeah. one I think where it's like, that movie's pretty trash like yeah. and worthless, but kind of memorable. But it's like, this is actually good, you know. So, All right, let's yeah. get to the man of the moment, though. All right. David Strathairn as Tom Hartman. Tom. So let's talk about the character first, and I want to talk about Strathairn. So Tom, again, as we said, he's kind of the wet noodle husband. He's an architect. Funny we get architects two weeks in a row. And also Maurice Jarae scored Fearless, don't forget. So architecture and Maurice Jarae could not again meet up with this movie. Um, But yeah. Now, did it... At the very beginning, are they officially separated? No, it's like they're going through these marital problems. Well, I feel like they're on the vague, verge of basically, it. Basically, yeah. yeah. And and he's basically this dad who's like never there. He's basically the, I'll be there, I, I promise. promise. Like, But he's like an architect, and he's like, I'm not going to be able to go on the trip. Like, yeah. you know, um, and it's and, the son's birthday. Right. Uh, and so and he's so like... He feels uh, guilty. I'm going to like, celebrate my son's birthday. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> um, and so he's like, all yeah. right, I'll go. But at first but then, he doesn't go. He's right. like, and then he shows up just in time yeah. like to go with him. Um, but then and yeah. I, I, over the course of the movie, I mean, it's like he's the wet noodle. Meryl Streep's the hero. And very much the movie still ends with Meryl Streep being the hero. But he kind of redeems himself, not yeah. only in the physical sense of being the man or the father, but also just of being a loving husband and father. Yeah. And that kind of obviously that reconciliation uh, that happens between mm-hmm. them. And again, it's something that we kind of laughed about that like, this is this bonding experience that the, the mother, father, and the son are going to have the rest of their life. And then they're going to go back to this daughter that's like, where have y'all been the whole time? Yeah. And just like, <laughs> and it's like, and how many times in their future family are they going to be like, huh, remember when we were going down the right. river and blah, blah, happened? And maybe, and then she'll be like, I don't remember that. I wasn't there for that. But yeah. All right. So um, we got to get into it. Our boy Strathairn, fan favorite. Yeah. So much so. That he is now the newest member of Overlapping Dialogues, The Amused. It is better to be the right hand of the devil than in his path. As long as I serve him, I am immune. So, Levi, we talked about inducting him into the immune. What about you makes David Strathairn immune-worthy? Uh, well, I just want to list some of his movies here. Now, he first got, and, and this is, if you start out this way, you're automatically going to be 
one of the great actors ever. He started out in a lot of John Sayles projects. Uh, Return of the Sakaka 7, I think, was his debut. Then he was in Mate One, which we, we love, really yeah. love, and he's really great in that, too. Uh, Eight Men Out, which we have yet to see, but we're going to try to see that sometime soon. City of Hope, also another John Seals movie. And then he was in A League of Their Own. That was a big 90s movie. Uh, Sneakers, which we have seen. That's a fun movie that he's really... He's blind in that. I think yeah. so, yeah. yeah. Now, you've seen The Firm. I haven't seen that. That's. Uh, I don't really but, remember him all that well. That movie has literally everybody in it, though. Right. Like, it's a lot of people, so yeah. I don't remember him as well. Um, One of the great deaths of all time in a movie by Gary Busey. Oh, yeah. The firm. What did lawyers? You know that scene. What did lawyers? <laughs> Julio Iglesias. Um, <laughs> um, and then he, we mentioned he was in L.A. Confidential. And then uh, I'm going here. Let's see. He was uh, really good as Edward R. Murrow in yeah, Good Night. He like was a movie that is for that. fairly forgettable. Yeah. I mean, he looks a lot like Edward R. Murrow, too, yeah. in the movie. So. Supposedly, he was in that movie, The Notorious Betty Page, that Mary Heron movie, as Estes Kefalver. No, uh-huh. okay. It was in the Cafalver yeah. hearing, I guess. Um, and then yeah, I said good night and good luck. I've always heard about, but I haven't. The seen movie's him. fine enough, but he's great yeah. in the Born Ultimatum. <laughs> I think, oh my I, God, Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ, that's Jason Bourne. That's probably like, where yeah. most people would immediately right. recognize him as. He's like the perfect CIA guy running a CIA operation, watching, saying enhance. Right. What's he doing? Where is he? I need yeah. a, I need, I need eyes on him now. Like right. that actor, you know, that type. And of And then actor. he entered an interesting phase where he was in like Trumbo and Howl within a few years, which are both yeah. these like beatnik or like red. Uh, oh, all these reds or 50s, all these, all yeah. these freaks and like you know mm-hmm. movies. Um, which I mean, Good Night and Good Luck was a version right, of that, right. even too. You know? Yeah. Um, and then he was, of course, he was in the Born Legacy, which I didn't see. Um, and he was in a version of. Uh, Wait a second. Yeah, The Tempest. Uh, I didn't even know that existed. Um, <laughs> uh, with, it looks like Digimon Hansu and Helen Mirren yeah. were in that. Um, and then Lincoln. Which, I want to talk about yeah, Lincoln for a little while because that that's one of my favorite Spielberg movies. What I love about it, among many things, is I think it actually has a fair... Shaw at being perhaps the greatest cast in motion picture history in terms of just top to bottom. Like, almost unnamed, like, you know, um, telegram operator, telegraph operator mm-hmm. is Adam Driver. You know what I mean? Like, right. that, even going to the bottom of the movie, it's like that level of talent. He's amazing in the movie. He plays William Seward, who was Secretary of State uh, during the Lincoln administration. And what's interesting is, the the office of the chief of staff did not exist in the 19th century. It was sometime in the early 20th century. The chief of staff mm-hmm. was created as an office. But William Seward for Lincoln was essentially what the modern-day chief of staff was, uh, while also he was secretary of state. And he was very crucial in keeping Britain and a lot of other countries out of the war effort. But anyways, he's amazing in that. There's a very important, crucial moment early on when Lincoln's like, we're going to try to push through this 13th Amendment, and he's like, we don't have the votes for that, we don't have the momentum for that, and Lincoln just kind of takes all that, hears it, but then he goes over to his fire and is kind of messing with the coals and trying to get the fire working again, and there's this, it's kind of this unspoken moment of Strathairn looking at Daniel Day-Lewis do that, and it's this moment of this man humbling himself to do this job for himself, 
that eventually is what gets Seward on board to say, you know what, I'm going to try to push yeah. this and make this happen. And again, he's, I think he really underrated yeah. in that movie in general. Yeah, and, and an I actor, do love I really him in that. Love but that, lot, him in that movie. You don't have the votes. Yeah. You need to get the votes. And like, there's you know, a the few whole... scenes where he's wearing this weird robe in his, yeah. like, in his yeah. nighttime private yeah. study that's uh, like... The, you were interrupting my cookies and milk. Like, you know, kind of <laughs> attitude. Um, yeah, but he is really great in that and a really great movie in general. Um, he was also in the Godzilla movies more recently, which I, I haven't seen either of. I Godzilla and Godzilla of Monst- 14, uh, King of the Monsters. He was also in that American Pastoral. I want to talk about this, though. He's actually been in a lot of movies in the last so many years that have supposedly been really bad that yeah. I haven't seen. That, I've heard, is awful. That movie, November Criminals... Uh, that had uh, uh, Chloe Grace Moretz and uh, oh. Ansel Elgort in it. I heard that was god awful. <laughs> yeah. I think it got like a zero percent at one point for yeah. Rotten Tomato score. Um, but he, I guess he's just like, oh, I'll do it, whatever. Yeah. You know? He was though in the last few years. And now it's funny. I'm like, now hang on. He was in the like, yeah. like we have to apologize for David Sutherland. Nomadland. Um, and not only a pretty great movie, he yeah. was also very great right. in that, too. Yeah. Um, but, hang on a second, I'm looking about this November Criminals because it's popping up now. Uh, yeah, I heard that was so, just so bad. Um, let me look about what it says about critical response. Yeah, it has an approval rating of 0% <laughs> based on reviews from 11 critics. Um, it said, yeah, it said somebody from Hollywood Reporter, Sherry Linden, said, the starry chemistry of leads Ansel Elgort and Claire Grace Moretz injects a modicum of energy into the coming-of-age drama whose elements of romance, crime, and smart kid angst never coalesce. And then somebody from Variety <laughs> called... I know you're really interested in the November Criminals reviews, but a low-budget generic shrug of a movie. <laughs> <laughs> One that recycles cliches both ancient, testy drug dealers, and slightly less ancient, the hero films his life with a camcorder. Wow. I'm just uh, looking also at some other Stratherian credits. He yeah. was in the Oh Baby LCD Sound System yeah, music I video. Saw that. Oh Baby. Um, I don't and also, he was in an episode um, of Miami Vice in 85, yeah. so we got to watch and, that. In uh, the episode, Out Where the Buses Don't Run. And, of run. course, we haven't mentioned yet, he was in The Sopranos for a couple episodes. Oh, yeah. Um, as he was uh, kind of the, the side squeeze of... Uh, <laughs> of when, uh, yeah. Carmella mm-hmm. for a little while. Yeah. And uh, where he's just real put together, like... Carmela, I think you need to get your act together, yeah. right? You know, kind of thing. Um, but but we, we can't speak enough of how much we love David Strathairn. Also, we forgot to mention, we talked about it. He was also in that movie, The Brother from Another Planet, I'd forgotten about, too. Sales. Uh, big Girls Don't Cry, They Get Even. Oh, my um, gosh. Uh, lost classic. And we've talked about that here and there already. We talked about it last week with him and... Uh, uh, Griffin Dunn, but I feel like he's a great version of that. It's like I feel like he took that role as training for this role, almost like like that character a divorced dad, so he can like, run, yeah, you know. Or, but yeah, very yeah. like, and he does that actually pretty well. Of somebody who has this false sense of confidence about themselves and is always like, I have a job and I am this kind of man, and then when they're put in these situations. I think, they don't measure. I don't want to. I don't want to boil it all down to one thing because I think he's yeah. a great actor. But it really is the voice. I feel like he's just got one of the most distinctive voices. Yeah, in acting and presence, 
we've also specifically talked a lot about how much he has a visual resemblance to Don DeLillo. Yeah. And that yeah. if there's ever anybody who could play Don DeLillo in a movie... And sounds enough ever... like him where it would work, I yeah. think. Um, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, he's in our immune. Always mm-hmm. great. Really great in this, obviously. What I love about him in this, as I said, he's always uh, over-scribbling on his stuff. And then there's a whole part of the movie where he's kind of like away from the rest of the group. And him and the dog have their bonding moment. Yeah, because of, earlier like, yeah, in the movie, like, the dog ain't listening Maggie to Maggie the and dog like getting yeah, along, and right. they know they have a they. Come Maggie, to, come. Yeah, Maggie, come. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, he and he and the dog get one over on the bad guys. Like a whole kind of moment, but yes, yeah, Theron, always great. Also, has done a lot of theater as well. There's a um, great monologue he does. Some great monologues you can find on YouTube. He done one, I think, of John Brown's uh, among his final defenses of himself before he was executed. Yeah. You know what his name was in Big Girls Don't Cry? They get even. What? Keith Powers. Powers. Like, okay. Also, I forgot this and did, well, actually didn't really know. He did. He was the voice of FDR in Darkest Hour, that movie about Winston Churchill yeah, yeah, that yeah. Gary Oldman was in. <laughs> and no clue about that. What's also funny is it's like, oh, he was FDR. He wasn't in the movie. It was a voice. He wasn't in the movie. But they're like, hey, we need, you know, Joe Wright, I think, directed that. Yes. He's like, all right, I need, who am I going to get who's an American to represent FDR? I want David also, Strathair. He was in a movie called An Interview with God where he played God. Oh, I think that's I where we about... need to leave it. Is yeah. He is God. <laughs> like, it's like, it's like uh, Groucho Marx plays God, you know. Um, <laughs> anyway. Joseph yeah. Mazzello yeah. as Roark. Every time I see this, I want to say Roark. And I'm Ro-ark. thinking of McConaughey in A View to Kill. A, a Time to Kill. We watched me. A View to a Kill today, so that's why we're... Yeah. A Time to Kill. Yeah. Uh, Any thoughts on A View to a Kill, by the way, if you want to voice now? I mean, it's widely known, but just to see it in full breadth, the moment of, what a view to a kill. To a kill. That's like... That makes yeah. no sense, literally there's whatsoever. Lot, there's a lot of things in that movie don't make sense, like how the Beach Boys plays at one point. <laughs> Just That's totally a, inserted, yeah, and then right. like, and oh, then, and then, the, then the music, then the score yeah. goes back to being like the semi-serious yeah. Bond action scene. California score. Girls. Yeah. It's not even the total normal version of it. It's like a slightly different cut of the song. Like I don't, I don't know. I don't understand. Anyway, uh, anyway. Joseph Mazzello <laughs> as Rourke Hartman. I think most everybody's going to remember yeah. Joseph uh, Mazzello as being in Jurassic Park. He's the yeah. boy in that. Um, he Is also, it? later on, he does have some other things in the 90s, but yeah. later on, uh, he's one of the college roommates in the social yeah. network. Uh, and actually, I think the thing he's most known for, for a certain type of uh, television viewer, cinephile, he was in the Pacific um, oh, and I never okay. finished all the Pacific, but I thought he was really good in it. I know he's kind of one of the main people in it. He's basically this uh, guy that comes from this rich Southern family. His brother goes into the war, into the army, and his father doesn't want him to because he has this heart murmur or heart defect, um, and that's like a whole thing is him still wanting to go and do it, um, and then he eventually does. But, yeah, and then I forgot this. He was John Deacon in... Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, also. Um, There's just one other little movie I want to draw attention to that I remember. Yeah. Star Kid? Are you the least bit familiar with this? No. I remember renting this as a kid in the late 90s, early 2000s. Never heard of that. It was this kind of lame superhero movie. Right. I don't even remember what all happened in it, but I just remember seeing this like VHSR no, a bunch of, of times. Yeah, that was kind of a uh, thing. 
Yeah. He had a very small role in the Lost World Jurassic Park in yeah. the very beginning of right. the movie. Okay. Um but I've always thought he's really good child actor. Normally it's a shame, you know, good child actors usually don't last or don't do a lot more things. Yeah, he's it's not, not been super in a lot of stuff, yeah, but, but he has still, continued right. to work. Like I said, I think him being in, like I said, the social network and especially having such a big role in the Pacific, which is like, you know, one of the bigger roles he's had, arguably. Um, it's shown he's still hung around, but I think he's really good in this too. One random thing I think's funny is like there's all those sequences or, or kind of scenes i use the word sequence too much you ever notice that like <laughs> these sequences like well i mean it's a, lo- usually it's a qualifies scene. i don't know I mean, yeah. but it's like you remember those sequences where he's talking about Lollapalooza. it doesn't really make <laughs> yeah. sense to say yeah, sequence. Yeah, scene yeah. but the scenes where he's talking about with kevin bacon has a hat that he stole that says yeah. Lollapalooza on it and he's like oh did you get a Lollapalooza?" you know and he's like yeah. yeah. Like, you know, and he's like... He's you can like, tell he just stole it. One of my favorite bands is... What was it? It was uh, uh, Jane's Addiction. Like, yeah. like, And I've heard some Jane's Addiction, and it's just like, really? You're yeah. into Jane's Addiction? Okay, which they're fine. Well, what's Theron's reaction hearing that in but, the car would be? Yeah, he's like, Jane's Addiction is trash. Right? <laughs> we don't get, need to be addicted to anything. It's like, hard work. And, it's uh, like, and yeah, and he's like... They need to have they, they need to have a... a uh, what do you call it? Uh, they need to have a... Uh, uh, What's it called when you get the people in the room and say, you on drugs, stop. Oh, intervention. Well, yeah, intervention. James intervention. James intervention, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's my favorite thing I've ever said. Is, what, you get the people in the room and say, they do the drugs, say stop. Like, <laughs> Don't do drugs. Yeah. <laughs> Don't drug. Um, but anyway, that's interesting parts of this where it's like he's real into like rock and roll. And mm-hmm. it's like rock music you wouldn't think that kid would be yeah. real into. you think he'd be more into like... I don't know, like, uh, even like Nirvana or something. And he's all like, I'm into Jane's Addiction. Or even New like, Kids on the Block, right, which ain't rock and roll right. or something of that um, period. You know? But, yeah, it's kind of random. like, But, uh, but yeah, he's usually good. I think he's really good in Jurassic Park. Yeah, that's um, a tough role. And, I mean, it, but Spielberg knows how to direct kid right. actors really well. So. Um, but, yeah, so he's good. Another guy who could easily be in the immune, because I love this guy a lot, John C. Riley as Terry. Eventually. Yeah, you'll you'll make it there one day, kid. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> For hard eight, right? Now, obviously, as Paul <laughs> Thomas Anderson fans, I think yeah. principally that's who we. Now he'll think probably of. make it for Licorice Pizza, playing uh, Herman Munster in that. <laughs> or uh, what's that guy's name that played Herman Eddie, Munster? I don't know. Um, what is it? Everybody's like, "Ooh, you don't know that." So I'm sorry. I was born. Uh, sorry, I care about other things. Important I'll thing. find it in a second. Anyway, go ahead. Well, maybe I can find it on this page. It's, actually. it's taking too long. Uh, I'm getting tired of all these Wikipedia pages that put the they kick the filmography to other pages now. You ever notice that? Yeah. It's like, no, I want it all in one place. I want my one stop shop. Okay? As far as you know, the nineties he was starting to become a bigger deal. Uh he made his debut in Casualties of War in nineteen eighty nine. Uh I have the VHS. I forgot he was in Days of Thunder, but yeah, he was in that. Yeah. Uh it's played by just tell me the guy's name. Oh my god. Fred Gwynn. Fred Gwynn, okay. okay. I was about to lose my Days mind. of Thunder, right. uh, What's Eating yeah. Gilbert Grape, and The River Wild. And then... <laughs> we still haven't watched that oh, Monsters movie, the Rob Zombie Monsters movie, I just remember. Anyway, sorry. Um, also, don't forget, he was in The Thin Red Line in the 90s, too. Yeah. Uh, I bet he literally. If I'd want to read anybody's anecdotes about working in Hollywood and in movies, it would literally probably be John C. Riley because of yeah. so many of the people he's worked with. Of course, Hard Eight, 
Boogie Nights, Magnolia. That's actually, other than the small, very small role in Licorice Pizza, the most recent time he's really worked with Paul Thomas Anderson, yeah. which is a little bit of a shock. Um, so much so that I, as a PTA fan, had started to wonder, like, are they, like, on the outs or something problem? And I read something that's like, oh, no, me and Paul are still really good friends. I went and dropped by a day or two on the set of uh, Phantom Thread and hung out and was watching the making of the movie and talked to Daniel and all that, blah, blah, blah. And so he's just like, they haven't had a chance to work together again. Him and Magnolia, that's the performance of his career. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a very... I mean, we joke about it, but like the scene where he is unironically watching today show with matt lauer and like genuinely like sitting there eating breakfast and like laughing like but that you laugh at that but you see that's who he is as a person he's like this genuine lovable idiot basically i love that part too right a little bit after that where it's him walking to his car with the shotgun on his shoulder and it's the narration he's like when i get a call it's bad news (laughs) 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 but uh yeah about him and this i want to talk about him a little bit because uh, I think he's really great, but I think early in his career he got labeled it. Where's he from, by the way? He's uh, from Chicago. Okay, I wasn't sure where he was actually from. He gets labeled often as this like the village idiot or like the oh man like. Well, you know, also in like the two thousands, what a lot of people um, probably know him as is in Step Brothers or in Talladega right, Nights, the yeah, Will Ferrell right. comedy. And he's been in a lot of comedies now, and he's really funny. Walk he, hard, but, the Dewey Cox story is yeah. hilarious. Like. <laughs> Just thinking about things in that. But then now. he's also, I, yeah. don't forget, in the Martin Scorsese movies, Gangs of New York and The Aviator. He's also really good in The Aviator. Yeah, I remember him more in Gangs of New York than I do The Aviator, but yeah. But anyway, he but he is, in this movie, I think he plays more into that. Of like, I thought, y'all were running out on us. Like, you yeah. know, which then reminds me of him in The Lobster. Oh, like, yeah. I don't think you're my best friend in the whole world. Is that that <laughs> list, bro? Um, but no, John C. Riley's really great, but I was going to say, I'm glad he's had a variety of roles. Yeah. He's kind of like Jeff Daniels in yeah. a way of like, he's kind of known for his comedy sometimes, but is also a really good actor, uh, like a dramatic actor. Yeah. But he's a particular, it's weird because he's from Chicago, but he has this kind of southern, weird, like hick accent all the time he almost does, which is weird. Like He plays it up in certain movies more than others. Yeah. But, yeah, we'll definitely talk more about him in the future. Some but. other things real quick. Again, uh, Walt Carr is yeah. one of my favorite comedies ever. Yeah. Hilarious. I quote that probably daily. Uh, Taldega Nights, he's really funny in also. Step Brothers, I don't like as much, but he yeah. is funny in that. The Wreck-It Ralph series is big. He did the voice of that. He was in the first Guardians of the Galaxy. Love him in Kong Skull Island. That's mm-hmm. like another one of his oh, marquee yeah. great performances. That, that and not only that, but how the movie treats God. his character. That specifically the end. <laughs> so he's been trapped on Skull Island since what World War Two, I guess yes, he was a veteran. About in. twenty years yeah. or twenty five years. And so he finally makes it back <laughs> home and the movie shoots it like it's just some <laughs> lost some poor lost war veteran who's finally made it home and it treats it with this level of sentimentality and sincerity that's shocking. It's like that part in, it's not, this is actually more well done and funnier and not as stupid. But in Independence Day Resurgence, there's that part where that character dies. What's the guy that played Data that was in that? Who's in all those Star Trek stuff? Yeah, Um, what is his name? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And there's that whole moment where that guy dies and it takes a moment, not for him, but for his friend. Yeah. And it's like this character's barely been in the movie. And it's like, 
why are we taking so much time on this? Like, you know, and, uh, anyway, it reminds me of that, sort of. But this is done with a... Brent Spiner. Right, Brent Spiner. It's done with a whole art, artfulness of it, but, yeah. Him but but it's like, he's coming home, and it's and like, he, like, home, he, 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 he went through all this awful yeah. combat. It's like, you were on the freaking... <laughs> Skull Island fighting off like yeah. dinosaurs and right. monsters and all And it's stuff. like he sits down and he's watching like a Yankees game. Oh, Chicago or, or Cubs. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry Chicago because he was from Chicago. Yeah. And he's a, a, a White Sox game, fan, I know. Those, and, like, but... and like eating a hot dog and laughing. And then drinking a beer. And, right. and, and, I made it and home. it's shot in this like old like home movie style. It's so bizarre. It's one of the weirdest endings in any movie I've ever seen. It truly is something. <laughs> and I was really but, into that movie the whole time. Yeah. And then it ended, it ended that way. I was like, oh my God, I love how... Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that was this is a whole other sidetrack. The 2014 Godzilla, and I think they kind of learned their lesson after that one. I think it seems like yeah took itself so seriously, and I was like, how seriously can we take this? Like Kong Skull Island, I really have a lot of affection for. It was fun, action, com- comedic. It hit all the right notes for what a movie like that should be. It had a great little cast. Yeah. Um, it even had um. Brie Larson, when she was shooting the movie, <laughs> make one of the most embarrassing uh, social media posts of all time, where she had these pictures from the movie screenshots, and was like, "This is in honor of like all the photojournalists." Oh, that, <laughs> just yeah. like something that was like, that. "Are you kidding me?" Yeah, like, so stupid, I like her generally, but I was yeah. just like, "What the hell are you talking yeah. about?" That and I don't know, just checks all the right, you know, the notes. And so right. again, and what I like about John C. Riley in this. Is that he's a bad guy, but he's not as outright evil as yeah. um, Bacon is, and that he like feels bad about how this whole thing has turned and wants to see an end yeah. to it in his own way. I mean, but, ultimately, he gets that attitude. Y'all shouldn't have come here. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, John C. Riley's great, so so deal with it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, who like, else get over do we it. got here? Uh, Benjamin Bratt's one we talk about. Ranger Johnny. Yeah. It almost implies that him and Meryl Streep's character had like a, a yeah a relationship years yeah. ago or something. He's basically the poor hapless ranger who has to come out and you know oh hey how are y'all doing y'all doing okay like and then yeah. he ends up is he get he get outright killed don't he yeah he gets uh, shot yeah. and pushed into the ri- and he goes down yeah, the, right, the, yeah, the gauntlet yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's like he got to do it now or whatever yeah yeah because yeah. um, yeah, he's talking about, I always wanted to do that and then Bacon kills him and right. says that yeah uh, I was gonna look here about different movies he's in Demolition Man is probably one of the bigger ones I don't really oh, remember him I do that. Alfredo yeah. Garcia what. That's his name. That has to be a reference to. Wow. uh, Clear and Present Danger. He was in the year before this. Uh, Red Planet, which I've never seen. Miss Congeniality. Traffic is Miss Congeniality would be the biggest thing most people would know him from. I usually think of him from Traffic. Um, He's in that uh, some. And then uh, who's in that Catwoman movie? Um, Let's see. Love in the Time of Cholera. I've always wanted to see because I love the book. He played uh, Dr. Urbino in that. Uh,. Yeah, he's just been a lot of different random things, but yeah, he a lot of TV. Yeah, he was on TV. one of the Law and Order shows. He was, he? yeah, he was in that, and then Homicide: Life on the Street. He played the same character, okay, um, and then was on Exile, a Law and Order movie. So it's just like, all right, all right, that's probably he was in between a, Miss Congeniality and that. That's the thing most people would know. He was in from. some show called Nasty Boys <laughs> uh, about the North Las Vegas Police Department, uh, which was a TV 
originally there was a TV movie called Nasty Boys, and then made it a TV show. I'm gonna go go watch that now. Uh, like, wow. Um, but yeah, he's not in this a whole lot, but he's pretty good. One, uh, I want to mention two other people here. Uh, William Lucking as Frank, who is like that other guy with him. Yeah, and he yeah, gets yeah, yeah. like he gets kind of killed. Early he's he's on, been yeah. wounded, so they have to like kill him off. That guy has been in a lot of random stuff, but he's, most people know him in Sons of Anarchy. He's in. Yeah. Uh, I want to make sure there wasn't other stuff here. Oh, he was in Harold Mauld as the motorcycle, as, or as a motorcycle officer. I know he's not the one in that. Um, I'm looking here to make sure there's anything else. But that's somebody I was like, oh yeah, that guy. Yeah. And then uh, Glenn Morshower, who's in like a million things. He usually plays military roles in yeah. a lot of things. He's uh, got a lot of voices in Call of Duty games. Yeah, because he's most He's in a lot of known, Michael Bay movies. Yeah, He's most known now in that newest Modern Warfare 2 game. I always love looking at the Glenn Morshower Wikipedia page. It says, he was, he was born in Dallas, Texas, raised Jewish, studied with a Jehovah's Witness, went to a religious science church, and taught a Baptist church. So he just kind of what the religious sampler, like yeah. I guess. Uh, but so you know that's a guy you want to like in between takes really talk theology yeah. with. He was most known on Twenty Four. Actually, oh, he was yeah. on, and then yeah, in the Transformers. But a lot of military but, roles right. he's yeah. usually in. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's pretty much the cast, more or less. Now to get to again what we were talking about earlier, that again this is just a movie that it you know. It, I won't say it moves a mile a minute. I'd say it's got its own pace, but it just—it's the plot is always just constantly moving. It feels like a Swiss Army knife of a movie. It feels like a really tight but very well written paperback book, yeah, like thriller, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think, as we said earlier, that we just don't feel like we get as many of these. And I feel like the, the closest we have. Was like maybe like plain, you know, a movie like yeah. that, like yeah. almost like, but it's not. Cause not it's not it not something like Cocaine Bear, even that's in another uh, whole other realm of movie. Uh, as far as yeah, cause that's a monster movie. But this is yeah, you don't really like say get movies like that anymore. I mean, the survivalist movie is its own thing, which is usually of a person by themselves, like mm-hmm. Lone Survivor, or yeah. and a lot of these are like military movies now, but or All Is Lost. Uh, J.C. Chandor movie with Robert yeah. Redford or whatever, but uh, yeah, now it, well, it's weird because you know I was going to mention this. You know, they used to have those types of movies like in the fifties, like The Desperate Hours or Cape Fear, mm-hmm. um, where it's like these uh, movies or even like part aspects of like Key Largo, for example, where you have like this family. And they're on vacation, or they're doing this thing, and then they're kidnapped by, the, or like another version that's not Labor Day, which mm-hmm. I haven't seen that uh, Jason uh, Reitman Jason Reitman movie. Yeah. But so that's a whole realm of movie, which is like the family kidnap. Well, we did have Knock at the Cabin here recently, but that has this whole other like science fiction element. Yeah. But it's weird because this movie, and normally these movies have a very small cast, and yeah. it's like just a group of people. But this movie's one of the last few big ones of those I can think of that was like that thing exactly and was like an adventure movie and a thriller. Doesn't but really also rely on a lot of special effects either right. as far as being this kind of adventure yeah. action kind and kind of And it's like I mentioned it last week. It's like Deliverance with a Family, but it's a PG-13 movie obviously too. But where it's not as philosophical as that movie is though either mm-hmm. or, that, or that novel, it's just... Uh, 
a uh, racehorse of a movie. It's very particular, like, all very fine-tuned. And like I said, thankfully, it's got all the actors in it that it does because that that justifies it. And then also the direction by Curtis Hanson, which is really good as far as the, uh, not only just the general direction of the movie, but especially the the, uh, set pieces and the the sequences, (laughs) you know. But again, I think when a lot of of people, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of angst on film Twitter about the movie industry, and we've certainly expressed a lot of it here on this pod over the over the years now i can say that way almost weird um and uh, people i feel like sometimes are almost rooting for past eras of mediocrity they're like saying i wish we had like and i know what they mean though like i wish we had more movies that were not explicitly based on a comic book or based on this franchise or based on this that just get to be their own thing you don't quote turn your brain off at the door but it's just it's thoughtful enough where it's like you don't feel stupid watching it, but yeah. then it doesn't really have a big, long-lasting cultural memory. You just kind of move on from it, and it was like, oh, that was good, that was really well made. And, but uh, sometimes some bad examples I feel like are brought up for that. Uh, this to me is one of the prototypes yeah. for what what we're missing in the theaters right. in a regular basis, where it's like, hey why don't we just go see something that's kind of fun and light, but it still doesn't make you feel like an idiot for going right, to see, because, oh, let's go see The River Wild. You right, know, that, this, yeah. this would have been that movie in the 90s. Yeah, because now it's like the big event movie. Yeah. Um. And even there's versions of that, because you have the superhero movie, which is the obvious one we're talking about, or Fast and the Furious. So those are superhero movies, essentially, anyway. Yeah. I mean, uh, but you have stuff like that, and then you have, like, Nolan movies, even, uh, or uh, now Jordan Peele or Jordan movies. Peele, yeah. and not to say those aren't both totally engaging and thought provoking mo- most of the time so within the I, studio level uh, at a high big budget right. canvas. They're the ones, but they're an event movie. Yeah. Even still, right. they're like everybody's like, oh, this is coming out. Like you like, can't see Christopher Nolan making another Insomnia, right? Just you a can't movie just like go that. to see that, yeah. yeah. Or or and Jordan Peele's never made a movie like that because even with uh, Get Out had all the buzz yeah, coming right. into it, and, and means, so. Yeah. Yeah, and like, and then or you have movies like Plane, yeah. which is just like which I enjoy, but it was just dumb. Like, no, that was know. more explicit. Uh, or even movies just... we're gonna go see soon, like that. Uh, uh, no hard feelings, or um, that the, specifically you know, is drawing on another whole tradition of movie that is similar to this, but we're gonna talk about later with the romantic comedy. In terms of just like that, it was another thing that a lot of people miss and. One of the biggest things that are being sold on that movie, No Hard Feelings, right now, is it feels like kind of a good old-fashioned, raunchy rom-com from the 90s. And right. so that, in on its own way, is a throwback to what right. would have been more present in the 90s. You know? Yeah. And then also that movie Joyride uh, mm-hmm. that is coming out, which is basically that uh, kind of Asian-American comedy movie, mm-hmm. which we want to see, um, and kind of looks pretty funny. But like, And there are versions of that that... Are and I'm not saying those movies won't even be good. I'm sure they'd probably be you know pretty good. Yeah, but that like I said there's or, all these stakes involved, right? Man. But then and then Mission Impossible coming out soon too. But like I said, that's part of the whole thing. So it's just hard to go see a movie now that's just like that right movie, there. That know? right there points to the decline of movies as yeah. a central tenet in American life because. Now, a lot of the function of what we're talking about, people look at with TV shows. Now, TV shows had 
uh, arguably a similar currency back in the 90s in terms yeah. of something you casually watch. Well, TV oh, was, I'm going to watch some yeah. Frasier, or right. oh, I'm going to watch some Friends, or something. You know what I mean? These shows that were big. But now we like the casualness with people, which which people watch movies to just go see a River Wild, is not there because yeah. now everything you with a reason to get out and go see a movie, it has to be some big blockbuster, or big event movie. It was similar to what you were saying. Yeah, earlier. and as far as with TV too, I mean, there have been good versions of TV certainly yeah. before The Sopranos or even Seinfeld. Yeah. Twin Peaks obviously was a version of that, or even like I said, Cheers. What I've seen of that, yeah, I've liked fine like enough. Frasier probably is good, but and there's been TV that's been good here and there. But overall, until that point, TV was seen as disposable trash entertainment. I mean, that's what it was mm-hmm. really up until about the '90s, especially from the '50s to the '70s. Yeah. especially it was literally just garbage. Mm-hmm. You um, did have some like Norman Lear shows that were like yeah, taken a little more seriously. And like some TV shows like that we haven't watched but like Route 66 or something like that that we want to go back and watch that are like oh look at that show. That show was groundbreaking or interesting. Or yeah. The Twilight Zone. But like there have been great things done with television but up until then it was seen as explicitly disposable to the point where even the things that were slightly pro- thought provoking it probably took people a long time to get to seeing it as that anyway. So yeah, TV is taking on that now, but everything either has to be totally dumb or totally smart. It feels like, yeah. and there's no in between of like. There's no it again can be both things. Thoughtful like, pop entertainment right. is a very hard thing to key into. Right. Um, and I think that's one reason why. Some I don't know something like say, uh, the Judd Apatow movies of the two thousands. Like there are some are, are better than others. But, um, I don't know, some of those movies, like, even something like it was in the 2010s, like, say, Trainwreck, which I really liked. Like, a really good comedy that made you laugh a lot, that didn't make you feel stupid when you left. Like, it, you felt like, oh, that was about real people. Yeah. And had a lot of funny gags and asides to it. And comedies that we've talked about here and there, that seems like in a mainstream way, started to really disappear from yeah. the movie theaters. Yeah, because I love going and seeing stuff like The House that yeah, we went and saw, and, or uh, Rough Night, or whatever. whatever. Yeah. And we went and saw those, I think, the same summer, right? Or was it... It Around felt like same it was. Time, yeah. Anyway, and like, those movies are funny, but it's just like, okay, whatever. I'm done yeah. with that now. Like, you know, like we think more about specific moments from those movies, like Jeremy Renner's burning body wrapped in a... <laughs> In a in like a carpet at the end of that movie, that was hilarious just because the randomness of the image. Yeah, but like um, that, but that's all you get out of stuff like that, you know. And now it's like, and even something like Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, which we really liked and still do. Yeah, but like that's a movie that it's hilarious, but it. It's you know. well. Also, it's playing to be that random comedy, right, like, yeah. and we, and I again, I like the movie. Yeah. But also, and also specifically that movie, it's a product of while it's not officially an SNL, an adaptation of an SNL sketch, it still has an SNL sensibility of it. Almost plays in vignettes. Yeah, it plays right. in bits and scene. You know yeah. what I mean? In sequences, almost yeah. you could say. Uh, <laughs> and you know what I mean? But it it yeah, plays right. in like it's a bunch of sketches that have yeah. been put together. To so be all this, we're kind of talking about comedies too much now. But but just in general, we don't have that anymore. Just go see, like I said, that uh, you know one of the movies you can just sit down and be like, I'm gonna think a little bit. 
but I want I want some well, of that. I want some of that action. Yeah. There, you know, <laughs> like but uh, yeah, just a regular old movie. You don't get those. You know, there's all these stakes or no stakes. It's like yeah, but no stakes to a point of being stupid. Mm-hmm. Like you know, or this whole mm-hmm. script or story would be now stretched into a at least a minimum five hour miniseries. Yeah, which is dumb because it's you know, like it can't just yeah. be a movie that would right. be put out. It can't be well written. Yeah. It has to be overwritten. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, um, the the executive's like, no, no, no. This is too well written. Like we gotta yeah. we gotta mess it up a little bit. Right. Let's stretch it yeah. out. You know. Yeah. Like we don't have Fred Claus anymore. Is what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now I don't think you heard me. We don't have Fred Claus. You know, maybe anymore. some things are better off. Yeah, the end, I think you so. Know? Actually, <laughs> we, we talked enough about that crap back when we did those. Uh, Christmas with the Cranks and Deck the Halls. Good Lord. I was actually briefly thinking about Fred Claus when I was watching Sideways, as I mentioned earlier. And I oh, really right. Thinking about how yeah. much I love Giamatti in that movie, and I was thinking and about the, that era. the trailer moment of him like, I'm all about tough love, baby. Yeah, like, you know. That. Uh, but anyway. What did you take in, Levi, of uh, the actual experience of whitewater rafting? What were your takeaways from that in the movie? Well, something that's something I've always... No. Well, <laughs> before we get to that, I did... Yeah we were going to talk about like death wishes that we'd want to do different things but yeah this uh i don't know i i like the idea of going to creeks and rivers mm-hmm. i don't ever want to get in them though i'm kind of like i'm just going to stand here and look at it mm-hmm. and be near it there's a lot of things or that happen or if you were in a river or a lake and were in a solid real boat yeah that'd be different right. You know Not I mean. even a kayak though. No, right. like I want no, like right. a no, boat. I'm talking like a yes, like a like it has to be at least as big as the boat in Apocalypse Now, like mm-hmm. that size. Yeah, chickens know. on board too, right? Yeah, well, uh, checking those ten cans. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's what I'd be saying the whole time. Um, but uh, not a good journey. Gonna say on that Apocalypse Now, they kind of kind of wasn't good mm-hmm. uh, in, in the end. Well, you know, the farther um, you go upriver, the more mad man becomes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> One um, of the themes of the movie. I mean, you're neither. You've been sent by grocery clerks. Like, <laughs> what? Well, let's say, uh, say it's like, one Brando didn't even read any of that. I was just like, I'm just going to say whatever. <laughs> it's like, you know, we talked enough about that, but it's like, if I did want anybody to just be like, I'm just gonna say what I want. I guess it's Marlon Brando, just to see what happens. Yeah. You know, it's like even if it's bad, see what they do with it. Just see what happens. Yeah. You know, it's gonna be weird. We know that. Um, but yeah. Anyway, I'm not big on doing a lot of like Daredevil kind of things. I'm very much an indoors kind of guy. Not to the point of somebody like Professor McDougal in Red Dead Redemption. You know, who's like, first of all, racist, and second, you know, on cocaine all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, like. Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan in the eighties, um, <laughs> with John Wayne, but uh, well, that was been in the seventies, but yeah. uh, if it ever happened, yeah, um, which it probably did, but because you know why, why, when you hear something about people like that, why just assume it's not true? Yeah, you, you gotta know? go, you gotta just believe it because it's Ronald Reagan and John Wayne who are already like, you know, terrible people. It's like, all right, let's let's just assume. They did those things. We've probably talked about this uh, before, but I love every few years that the the nineteen, I think it's seventy one or three, I can't remember. John Playboy Wayne interview. Playboy interview comes yeah. back and people read it for the first time. Oh my god, did he really say that? And it's like, yeah, yeah, he did. It was actually yeah. pseudo controversial even at the time. Just so people, which know, is shocking because yeah. back then everybody was like, because there's a clip racist, I might have you know? mentioned this before on um, Dick Cavett's show, which we love, mm. of uh, Kurt Douglas being on there. And 
him and you know, he was asked by you know Dick Cavett, like what do you what do you think of you know John Wayne like his opinions yeah. or political opinions and Douglas is kind of a more classic liberal mm. uh, and he's like I, you know there's a lot of things I don't agree with uh, about him but he's just one of the greatest movie stars hard blah 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 and the crowd just like goes insane and bananas wild yeah John Wayne like you can tell and it's like y'all are feeling like that protective over him it it felt like in a weird way you listen to it and you can hear this angst and this anger of these people being mad John Wayne would even say anything like that How, why would you even be mad and like that coming out in this way anyways I would like to skydive though yeah. um <laughs> I would like yeah. to, uh, you know, one day skydive. Yeah, uh, but that's wh- something I'd like to do. Right. Uh, Whitewater rafting, though. I would uh, have to do it in a low grade. I ain't doing this gauntlet crap. I, you know, forget that. Well, that was but, literally seen as like illegal by the park service. Like they literally said, no, you can't do that anymore. Yeah, like, right. and people were stopped from. So doing that. I would want to do whitewater rafting. I'd have to be with people who really know what they're doing, a lower grade version of it, because it, there were aspects of it that looked kind of fun. Uh, but then when it was getting like, but also it's really like you're getting intense. slung around yeah. and it's not going to stop. And how many times you, people right. fly out of yeah. the, uh, yeah. the you know, when John C. Riley's thrown out and he's like, help, you know. <laughs> um, the only thing I can think of that I would really want to do, um, I would like to kayak. I've always wanted to do that. Is uh, maybe scuba dive, uh, just because I love seeing underwater mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like that's the only thing I can think of. I'd maybe do is something that's kind of semi dangerous. I've snorkeled uh, before and we were do in things like that just to go see what the ocean looks like. Um, but then again, watching the new then Avatar. Again, no. But then again, no. Watching the new Avatar. Those uh, orcas are and, just straight up killing everybody I know. now, based on uh, James Cameron's Avatar: The Way of Water. Right. <laughs> also, another dangerous thing I wouldn't want to do is uh, ever watch a John Wayne movie ever again. <laughs> Just kidding. We well, the man who shot Liberty Vance is on our list uh, yeah, of movies to get kidding. through this I'm summer. Just so just, just kidding. Don't already. worry. Don't worry. Um, but uh, you, I love you said dangerous. Like yeah. something <laughs> could happen if I do. I am dangerous. <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, so yeah, yeah. We watched this and we were kind of talking about what were some dangerous things. You know, death wishes we'd want to do, and it's like not many for me. You'd have more things you'd be more interested in. Uh, the well, last you also thing, get motion sick. Yeah, so for me, easily, I can so. kind of hide behind that. I don't like rides like, like uh, roller coasters. Roller coasters. I always like dark rides, where it's just like let's just go through and look at the stuff. You know, I like roller coasters, you know, but I frankly prefer that to even most roller coasters. Well, I, so. What I like because it's well, it's it's fun and educational. I mean, usually, you know. Um, now there's certain ones that are rougher than others. Uh, I've always heard about the mummy ride is mm-hmm. like insane. You know. Never went on that one. It's it's also but, intense. It's kind of yeah. scary at some parts. But it's too. like, like I like yeah. stuff that's like the Epcot ball ride, yeah, right. you know, where it's like you get to learn about communication and like you see all the people. See Martin Short like, and uh, oh Canada, well, the, the, well that well that you just stand there and look yeah, at that. Right. But yeah, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, one last thing we want to talk about here. It's how racist John Wayne was. No, um, what would the fallout from this situation be? Like, and I asked that because it's like, it seems like it's all wrapped up at the end. So, yeah, they, they make like, their way back to safety. Yeah. 
They reunite with the family. That's the that's the conflict I'm most fascinated by is these three people go through this experience and then the daughter's just reinserted into this family. Right. And just yeah. the, the Or this, even just the PTSD be, these people were. Yeah, I mean, they would be know? going through that. Uh, but it ends the movie. Because, you know, you think about the ending of something like Cape Fear, which is a way more serious movie. Yeah. It's rated R. It's very dark in a lot of ways. But also has, Oh, no, Stormy Banks, I stand on you, will come with me. I'm bound for the promised land. I'm bound for the promised land. Like, you know, and <laughs> the whole time. But um, I just figured I'd keep going. Yeah. You know. We appreciate um, your service. <laughs> the best part of that, though, is when he's like, Starting to dream, like, oh, bail on a problem, um, kind of like mouth half full of water, oh, like, you know. Uh, but but the, at the end of that movie, you know, they're they all are huddled. There's like it's almost like too dramatic. Yeah. The part where they're all coming together of like of uh, Jessica Lang and and uh, and Nick Nolte and yeah. and uh, oh gosh, what's her name? Uh, Juliet. Uh, Juliet Lewis. Lewis. I knew it was yeah. something Lewis. I was about to say Jennifer Lewis, and I was like, who's that? Um. Where they're all huddled Richard together. Lewis. Richard Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> Richard Lewis as the daughter, as the daughter <laughs> in Cape Fear. I mean, he's got the hair um, for it. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, but that they all kind of get together, and she's doing the narration of like, we never spoke his name, but he left a mark on us forever. Like, kind of. She's always like, a, also a curious yeah. person to have the narration of that movie. Right. I think, too. Yeah. yeah. But um, but that they're all together and they're like crawling away through the mud, and it's like. We will be forever shattered. As yeah. a family. and it's like that's not at all what this is. It's like a, but it's ostensibly the same. That's another word we've been using a lot. Ostensibly, yeah. the sequence at the end, ostensibly, is uh, of them just being very happy. But it's like the same thing happened ultimately, sort of. Although there wasn't like a sexual dynamic that was going on with the daughter. A lot of that probably comes down like, to the general direction yeah. from Scorsese, which is more right. inclined to say, well, well, this is pretty effed up. What right, yeah. As opposed to but, so that's Curtis Hansen was doing a more right. conventional and, uh, and, version of yeah. it. You know? And like even at its most dangerous, it is dangerous, but like in a movie sense, it's like, oh, everything will be all right. But it doesn't have the psychosexual element Cape of fear. Cape fear yeah. There's a question of like, who will live through this? Like, I get You get the sense that Nick Nolte is possibly going to die or something, even though he doesn't. But um, with this, it's very much just like, no, everything's all right, and they're all happy at the end. But I just kept thinking at the end, I was like, really? That's the ending of the movie? Is like, oh, everything's all right, yeah. And it's like, they literally have killed, the, they had to kill this guy. Benjamin Bratt was killed. Uh, that guy they were with was killed. They're they, arguably like, more bound for like the promise the Right. But, the know. livestock auction is without money. Yeah. Like, we didn't <laughs> that mention a, that, yeah, by that the way. Was how, that was what they right, stole from. Is that yeah. they stole from the livestock auction, which is kind of a good idea because it's like you wouldn't ever think anybody would ever do something like that. It's like robbing um, a, it's like in the, you know, another 94 movie, Pulp Fiction. It's like a, robbing a, uh, a restaurant and just stealing everybody's money in the restaurant is, you know, that's yeah. kind of smart. Yeah, but anyway, I just wonder about what's the what's what's the River Wild too? You know, mm, yeah. what if they like refilled the Grand Canyon? They were like, let's do that. Why? And it'd be like John Lithgow from uh, Cliffhanger. Basically, he dies at that. By oh, the way, okay. the villain, but yeah. it'd be that type of villain. Him mixed with him in like Santa Claus the movie. Like, let's <laughs> refill the Grand Canyon, and then and the white people go down it. You know, kind of. And thing. maybe him and um, uh, Strathairn had like a. Uh, a real major December romance yeah, uh, uh, back when right. they were in college together, yeah. you know. He's like, I can't believe the man you become. <laughs> <laughs> That's River Wild 2 in theaters never. 
Um, very good movie though. Okay. Yeah, again, um, we went off on a lot of detours on that one, but, but I think that's yeah. fitting for a whitewater rafting movie. You know, yeah, it makes it's a lot like of sense. where 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 are we? You know, so that's the River Wild. But up next, an even weirder movie. Yeah, the Weirder Wolf. Yeah, the, the yeah. Weird Wolf. Werewolf. What if weird David Strathairn had been in that as, as the wolf, as the or as the James Spader, Spader role, maybe? Hmm, would have been interesting. Yeah, like, Jack, I, I, I. I like you know, I <laughs> see the whole time. Oh, uh, uh, um, but yeah. Here is anyway. the trailer for 1994's Wolf. A wolf bit me. I don't think so, Will. You weren't there, Will. Not all who are bitten change. There must be something wild within. <laughs> Sleeping all day. How do you feel? I feel uh, good. It is Mexican Independence Day. I never thought I'd meet a good man who looked at me the way you do. You don't know I'm a good man. Crazy? No. Just marking my territory. You got five new murders. What is there about a full moon? There. Well, you seem pretty helpless now. Guilt. Love without doubt. It feels good to be wolf. Don't look so scared. So that that was the trailer you just heard for Wolf. The animal is out. Yeah. Really Tell us a little bit about Wolf from 1994. Oh, that's a pretty basic trailer, especially compared to the yeah, first one. you know, I almost wonder if it spoils too much. I mean, already you know, okay, it's going to be Jack Nicholson turned into a werewolf, but yeah. it does show a lot of stuff that even comes from towards the end of the movie. Yeah, because the climax. they're trying to get people coming. Yeah. yeah. Wolf is a 1994 romantic horror film. I was hoping it was going to say romantic comedy horror film. Mm. Directed by Mike Nichols, starring Jack Nicholson, Michelle Pfeiffer, James Spader, Kate Nelligan, Richard Jenkins, Christopher Plummer, Eileen Atkins, David Hyde Pierce, and Om Puri. It was written by Jim Harrison, Wesley Strick, and an uncredited Elaine May who shows up in a cameo role as the uh, uh, wake-up call lady. I was going to say it was over yeah. the phone, I yeah. remember, yeah. Um, it says music was composed by you know, Morricone, and the cinematography was done by Giuseppe Rotono. We're going to talk more about them in just a minute. Uh, it's not actually giving like a, you know, pre- uh, you know, summary here of the movie. So I'm going to go to IMDb here whenever it decides to load. Um, but essentially, uh, the best way it can just be described is literary uh, editor, you know, chief editor of publishing house become werewolf, must keep job and marriage. 
Yeah. I mean, poster Will Randall becomes a demon wolf and has to fight to keep his job. Well, yeah, this is the letterbox description. Yeah. I'll read real quick. Agent publisher Will Randall is at the end of his rope when a younger co-worker snatches his job out from under his nose. But, but after being bitten by a wolf, Will suddenly finds himself full of youthful vigor. As he struggles to regain his position, he becomes enthralled with Laura Alden, his former boss's daughter. And as increasingly increasingly animal-like urge, urges begin to overwhelm him, Randall worries that he may be turning into the creature that bit him. So there you go. But yeah, more or less, Jack Nicholson is this older guy who's good at his job but isn't fierce enough. He's not that business uh, psycho that they need, that real, you know, Patrick Bateman type. There's that scene earlier on in the movie. They're, like, at a big dinner party at Christopher Plummer's home, Mm -hmm. I believe it was. And he kind of has this real nihilistic attitude about, like, kind of the the pedantic, uh, wasteful, aimless nature of modern life that Mm -hmm. is very out of step with... Everybody else just trying to enjoy right. their time there, you know. It's yeah. very... Talking about Nicholson? Yeah, Nicholson, yeah, yeah gives Right, that. and that, yeah. Um, but that also, um, he gets... Well, that's actually, it's interesting, the inciting incident of the movie is him getting bitten, and everything else is happening kind of alongside that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he... It takes a while for him to actually turn into a werewolf in the movie. Um, and... To speak briefly about that, by the end, everyone always just turns into the wolf and they just become the wolf. That's an interesting difference between other werewolf movies is in this, it's not a constant back and forth transformation. It's like, once you're there, you're there. Like, you know, when Mm -hmm. it's on, it's on. But there are a couple times before that where they'll be kind of, oh, I'm kind of a wolf man, sort of, (laughs) not all the way. Pseudo wolf man. Right. Um, But in the midst of that, his marriage is falling apart. Because James Spader, his kind of like protege, is uh, having an affair with his wife. He's also taking his job at the same time. Yeah. Um, and so, at all sides, he is under siege. But the demon lies within, yeah. as they say. <laughs> Going to the cast, Jack Nicholson, we've talked about a lot on Five here. Five easy pieces we specifically uh, talked a lot about. I don't know with. that there's much more we can say about how great Jack Nicholson well, is. I think, yeah, there's we nothing can really talk more about to him say about that. regards to this movie. Well, also the context of Nicholson here. Um, obviously, like, I think when, I don't know about you, when I think of Jack Nicholson, of course I think of Tim Burton's Batman, because that's one of our favorite yeah. movies. But, like, in his prime, of course, was the 70s. is was, like, when yeah. he was really at his peak creatively. In the 80s and 90s, he was willing to take, um, when I say bigger risks, I don't even mean creatively, but he was just in more things sometimes. Yeah, let's go points. through his 90s work. You yeah. want to go through the 80s, too? or you uh, No, we'll, go, we'll just talk about the 90s. Okay, because the 80s, it was actually not. We'll do that anyway, just to go ahead. This, after The Shining, he was in Postman's Always Rings twice. That remake that Bob Rafelson made. Which uh, is okay. Reds, as Eugene O'Neill. The Border, which we're going to try to watch sometime soon. We haven't seen yet. Uh, Terms of Endearment, which he's really good in. And that's a great really movie good too. movie. Prizzy's Honor, which you've seen. You uh, said it wasn't all okay. that good. Heartburn, we talked about earlier, but haven't seen. Witches of Eastwick, I know that's a big kind of movie for him at that period. Um, and then Broadcast News. He has like a handful in. of scenes yeah. in. Ironweed, we mentioned. Batman, you know. And then the 90s is an interesting kind of all over the place. Uh, the Two Jakes, which is a sequel that he directed. Yeah. 
Um, to Chinatown. To Chinatown. Did Robert Town write the screenplay to that? I think he did. I think we've talked about this before. I think so. he did. Man Trouble, which is a movie with him and uh, uh, Ellen Barkin, looks like yeah, just a romantic, seen, black, a romantic black comedy. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, wait a second, actually. Hang on. Uh, it Yeah, Rafelson. I didn't remember that, that he made that. Okay. Uh, a few good men. We've talked about that. That's yeah. that's a pretty big Nicholson yeah. role. Hoffa, obviously, the you know a Kabuki film in all regards. F you and f your brother. Um, what did you say? What did you say? <laughs> um, and then after, you think that's exaggerated? Not really. No, you go watch it. Uh, uh, what's also great in that scene? Like, Boy, yeah. <laughs> like, then after that, he was in Wolf. Then the crossing guard, which we brought up a lot on here, but haven't seen. I hope you effing die. Yeah. Like, um, <laughs> Blood and Wine. That was a. This is Broadway movie, movie, movie too. Yeah. Come. Who made the crossing guard again? That was uh, Sean, Sean Penn. Penn yeah, did that. Right. Yeah. Mars Attacks. Obviously, that was kind of you know working with Burton again. Mm-hmm. The Evening Star. That's that sequel, sequel to Terms, uh, of Endearment. Terms of Endearment. And then as good as it gets, which he it was pretty good, which yeah. is a big Nicholson role. He won an Academy Award for that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of those yeah. that were specifically a few good men, uh, and as good as it gets in the nineties that were big movies. I mean, those right. were like kind of decade defining movies in yeah. a roundabout way. But looking through these, even going back to the eighties. Seems really from like after Turns of Endearment. Yeah. I won't say things went sideways, but like it was more like he just appeared in movies because he was Jack Nicholson. Or he's working with of. friends, right. too. Yeah. Whether it be Rachel Center, you know, James Hill And I don't ask or... anything of anybody. I mean, he's like my second favorite actor. So, like, to me... You're just happy to see Jack yeah, Nicholson. so ever, I don't yeah. care. But it is interesting. I think it all boils down into this is the ultimate version of what you just said about I'm going to do a friend a favor. We've seen that a lot with Rafelson over these movies here. Um, we had seen that also with Heartburn. We mentioned being in that uh, another Mike Nichols film, but especially with Rafelson. But we see that again here with Wolf, um, and also with Hoffa, which is good friends of Danny DeVito, and that being part of that. If too. you look too though, but, from like after Turns of Endearment, now Prezi's Honor did get some Academy Awards attention, but really all the way from there to Batman. Tim Burton was, or not, not, excuse me, not Tim Burton. Jack Nicholson was in movies, but not like always the centerpiece. Right. But then Batman was like, yeah, that right. he was the centerpiece of that. Yeah, and, came, and uh, I wouldn't say it was a quote comeback, but like no. was certainly but something that even, reestablished. Well, him I should in say ways. even Hoffa, which was a you know that was a, Oscar a favor for almost Danny DeVito, was like, ooh, I get to play Jimmy Hoffa, like mm-hmm. kind of yeah. But then we have Wolf, which really between Wolf. And as good as it gets, nothing is going to, or so to say, between Hoffa or even A Few Good Men and As Good As It Gets. It's just like, what is going on? Mars Attacks, like, I mean, obviously, yeah, that, that's a lot of fun. Right. You know, but, I love that yeah, like, him in it. It just but, seems yeah. like, what are you doing? Um, yeah. Literally, is, and you say that with that picture, right, like, beside, yeah, right it, right beside it on the of Wikipedia His uh, Hollywood Walk of Fame 2010 pick. Um, this movie is a big, literally, what in all ways. <laughs> what do you think of him in this movie, particularly, like... In regards to, first of all, him, just a performance from him, and as a werewolf uh, in general, I get, and just it's, I don't know. Well, let's start with the beginning of the movie because when I was, this is only the second time we, have you seen it? Just this is the second time. No, we saw it together that first time. Okay, I can't remember if you had seen it Mm -hmm. an additional time, but um, this is only the second time we had watched it. 
And I had forgotten how passive he was in the first act, which is part of the whole transformation right. of the character over the whole thing that, oh, he starts off pretty sedate, pretty milk toast, and then he becomes very, like, aggressive, BB aggressive right. over the course of the movie. Uh, but like he was in Tommy, the uh, Ken Russell film as the specialist. <laughs> you seen that? that? No. Okay. Is that That's based on the Who yeah, the, the album. album. Yeah, the only Ken Russell film I've seen is The Devils, which is right. great. But yeah. uh, anyway. and <laughs> I just want to mention and the specialist. This like, goes to not only Nicholson's yeah. performance. This goes to the movie in general. Yeah, it like gets off literally and figuratively, like kind of not being quite scary enough and not yeah. quite comedic enough either. I feel like it's straddling the line between a little bit of a satire of yeah. the literary world. Or like corporate America, right? Uh, and being an outright horror movie, yeah. and I feel like that's part of the identity of the movie is not exactly being either one of those, which is part of why we love love and it. We'll talk and about the production design of the movie, how it's like so artful and particular and considered, and like how that we'll say kind of what that means about the movie. I think, uh, and too, I but. think again that goes for Nicholson's performance as well because. Nobody can play like this almost evil satanic figure with a little grim smirk quite like him. I mean, I've not even seen all of Witches of Eastwick. Yeah. But what I've seen him in that, he's almost the perfect person to basically play Satan or the devil in that. Uh, Of course, he does that in spades, but goes even more over the top with, like, say, Batman. Um, But again, I almost feel like, I mean, I'm not going to question Jack Nicholson's acting. Uh, Ackerman because obviously he's a brilliant yeah. performer one of my very favorites as well he'd be my second or third favorite actor um, but again I think that's part of the larger identity flaw of this movie why it's so fascinating is doesn't exactly know what it is and I think he's also maybe struggling a little bit to try to figure out wait why are we making this movie is this a satire is this a horror movie am I trying to play the tragedy of this right. character yeah. like and I don't think that's really all that interested in the the movie's not all that interested in that but um. Again, it's it's good to just see him chew scenery, scenery literally and figuratively yeah. in this movie. Um, with again all these like off color comments of a guy who's clearly his milk toast and bottled up. It's almost a version of liar liar. If yeah. he became a werewolf, or it's like I'm going to start saying all the things and doing all the things to these people. Like, hey, like, what's up? You're a cholesterol fatty. Yeah, like, like, you know, well, just, like there's the scene which we recently caught some of yeah. on TV. Which that is very obvious scene in the movie where they're in the bathroom and James Spader's in there and they're talking and he's peeing and then he just turns and starts peeing on his shoes. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, marking my territory. Like, <laughs> you know, very like, he's literally like acting like a dog but yeah. uh, or like a wolf but also is like, I've always wanted to do that. Like, it's so weird. <laughs> it's, been like, a bit, it's been a kick of mine. It's been, it's been a kick. I've been wanting to try it out. Yeah. Like, you know. Um, but anyway... So, again, I just think that, again, not that he's bad, and I wouldn't say that, but just in general, the movies, the whole thing's confused, I feel like, Mm -hmm. about what it is, and his performance in its own way is a reflection of that. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, I think he's good in it, as he always is, but it just, yeah, it's very strange to see him do something this... Because we've seen it with Batman, but like, or even Mars Attacks, versions of that. But you feel it feels weirder in this context because, like you said, it's not like it's a comic book. It's where it's like, oh, okay, 
No, yeah. it's presenting a very but kind of dramatic, yeah, because realistic like, world because even on the in whole. Batman, it's like you see him. At, I think he works even better in the movie as Jack Napier almost. That little bit we get of him in the beginning because yeah. he's very you know. Well, also that's more just basic Nicholson like yeah. just sneering and doing what he does, but um. But that sets up everything for the Joker in a way that this movie doesn't do for itself of like, oh, well, okay, it makes sense. This guy would act this insane. But like I said, that's a comic book. And like you said, it's trying to have this whole dramatic, satirical bent to it that never figures itself out enough to totally coalesce into anything. It almost feels, the whole thing feels like a New Yorker short story you yeah. half forgot about. Right. And then you're like, oh, wait, they made a movie out of that? And it's like, and it, I don't know, and the on the page, the thing would play like a, a grim joke. Like, yeah. it would have this big satiric bite and joke, almost punchline waiting at the end of it. But the movie's not all that interested in totally going there. Yeah. It's more interested in trying to take it a little more seriously, which I think is admirable, if nothing else, because it gets to how weird the tone yeah, the, of dance right. the movie is, and, you know? and yeah, there, most werewolf movies aren't exactly like this. It's a lot more of like smaller town stuff, and it's not like this big thing going on. Or it's like about a tourist in London, or it's whatever you know. Yeah. Or if it's about rich people, it's like on their estates, and they yeah. have some of that in the movie. Yeah, a little but bit also of that. it's literally him running around in like the zoo in. Uh, Central Park at different points. Just right? uh, you know, I'm gonna right. tell this story one yeah. more time because I told it at the yeah, end of the last ahead. episode, but I'll do it again. The very first time I ever had any knowledge of this movie was it was when I was in high school. I had just come home from school. I get a text from our dear cousin Philip, all caps. Turn to AMC. Jack Nicholson is a werewolf, and I was like, <laughs> yeah. wait, what? And I turned it on channel sixty for us. Uh, yeah, uh, charters uh, subscribers now Spectrum, Spectrum now. Uh, and all of a sudden, I see Jack Nicholson, which I can tell, in the prosthetics, jumping around trees and jumping around. And I'm like, what in the world is this? And ever since then, that question has never been totally answered. Yeah, I remember like, I was sitting in my room doing something, and you were like, come in here a minute. And mm-hmm. I was like, but then it had like gone away, and he, and I think the scene yeah. was over, and you were, you were like, he's a werewolf in this movie. I was like, what? Like, so this yeah. movie was kind of lightly forgotten about, I feel yeah. like, for us for years, and I don't even remember exactly the circumstances that I, come up. You know up. what I remember it showing up is in the scenes in, uh, this is so random, in Jackie Brown where Robert Forster goes to the movies and there's oh, a poster, there's a poster of, of it in the background. Yeah, I forgot and Now about I that. wonder what does Tarantino think of Wolf? Like, I don't know. I don't care either. That's the He'd best probably part. would be into it. I don't uh, know. But the, yeah, like I said, that's almost something that's never been solved because that's just not part of his entire no. I mean, I feel like the whatsoever. legacy of this movie like, in general is so non-existent on the whole even more so than a movie like the river wild i feel like yeah Uh, because the river wild has a more clearly identifiable genre identity and movie stars being movie stars like say streep in that movie the way it's positioned and the whole thing is conceived around her this is again this weird tone poem that doesn't exactly pan out and i feel like either whether it be in the legacy of Jack Nicholson or in the legacy of Matt Nichols, which we can talk about a little later, it does not evenly fit in either one of their careers. No, because for Nicholson also, even with something like, I would keep going back to the Joker, but like that's something that's like, okay, he's doing his big, like, oh, I'm acting crazy. Like, you know, that's not even this, because when he's a wolf, he's very just like, you know, 
walking around like. I mean, he's acting uh, exaggerated, but not right, on that but level. It's not like a yeah. goofy. It's like yeah. he's like literally an animal, and it's like, but which not in some in ways like a, is goofier, right? You yeah, know, because it's, it's weird. like it's just not. It doesn't work. I don't know overall, yeah. but I love it because it's so weird. It's just like, mm-hmm. yeah. But so yeah, him and the I think you said it more or less that he's uh it doesn't totally work as him like i said but he uh and it tried like i said it tries to do this whole transformation of it is clear at the beginning he is more sedate and passive but it, and becomes less so as the movie goes on but it also then you have all the stuff with michelle pfeiffer in the movie as laura alden who's the daughter of his boss and we'll talk about her in just a second where oh now we're doing like a romance thing yeah and it's like that's weird and doesn't work either it's mm-hmm. just like very strange yeah but uh not that she's not great and he's not great otherwise and or even parts of the movie i think she's better in the movie she fits the movie i think better than he does i think in that way she has a more clearly defined role to yeah because she in the movie's very like uh kind of a bad girl like and oh my dad's rich but I get in trouble all the time and very like I take a walk on the wild side and like, I feel like too yeah. attention early on is the age gap right between them and then eventually yeah. it's like eh well I'm a human and you're aware. yeah <laughs> um, one thing we mentioned too obviously get into Michelle Pfeiffer mm-hmm. two Batman villains she of course played Catwoman in Batman Returns yeah which on this very day we're recording this portion of the podcast, June 19th is the uh, 31st anniversary of that movie, I know. Hmm. It's released. It's, today, you know, is also the uh, 10th anniversary of James Gandolfini dying. I just saw I on saw Twitter. I forgot too, about yeah. that. It's kind of hard to believe it's been that long. But, uh, but Michelle Pfeiffer is yeah. one of the big, you know, leading women of the 80s and 90s. I mean, she's still in things now. She's popping up in, like, the Ant-Man movies, which is crazy. Yeah, that, the, for Michael Douglas and her, the rich performances and roles that they've left behind and that's where they're at now which yeah. that's the state of modern hollywood um, speaking yeah and gosh i hate these it, it's always confusing about finding their credits now mm-hmm. uh i was wanting to look she was also in the witches of eastwick um scarface was one of the first yeah. big things that i think yeah. she's really well known for there's a whole wikipedia page for her character in that we talked about her with end of the night um You've seen Married to the Mob. I haven't seen that. Yeah, that's good. Um, but around this time, she had been also in the Age of Innocence the uh, year yeah, before that's really this. Good. And then she was in this. Um, I said, I think she fits this movie better than he does. I think just by nature of her spunkiness um, is right for the movie, I think. And I, she's like the one thing in the movie. Also, To Kill a Sunrise. Don't forget that. Back in 1988. <laughs> God, that movie. Yeah. Um, that's a VHS probably, in the Beach House movie, yeah, if there's ever yeah. was one. Well, Raul Julia's in it, so that's always going to yeah. be part of that, too. Havana. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah! Yeah! yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh... Um... Kiss of the Spider Woman. There's a bit. There'd be an interesting movie to find at a beach house, and people watch that, and they're like, uh. <laughs> "I like that uh, movie a lot." No, I'd wonder like, but, who lives in this beach house? Right. Like? Um, but. Yeah, I think she's like the one thing in this movie that's pretty constant and isn't ever... There is a little bit, though, at the end where she's starting to get kind of scared of everything and James Spader and her and some of the stuff with Nicholson where it's getting a little bit out of character. But there's not like there's much of a lead-up to that. It's kind of just like 
Because, like, for example, when Richard Jenkins first comes into the movie as that detective, and they're saying, oh, your wife got killed and found dead, and it, well, spoiler, it kind of turned out. Well, did it ever officially say who did that? Didn't it imply that it was uh, Spader's Basically, I but I don't feel like that was ever officially confirmed. I don't, might not have been. I, yeah. I don't know. But anyway, that that happens, and he's having a whole, you know, shock moment, and she's like, don't say anything else. And, like, you know, very, like... I know how to deal with these men. Like, yeah. You know, but um, that I feel like at that point, based on the things that have happened and him saying, I'm literally a wolf, <laughs> that I would start getting scared, more scared than, oh, don't talk, don't say anything. Like, I would maybe be like, yeah, you need to maybe take this guy on. Like, yeah. It feels like there's a switch that's flipped somewhere in between that scene and some other scenes where she's just now frightened of the situation. And it's kind of like, Mm, I don't know. Yeah. And then, of course, her resolution. We'll talk about later the ending of the movie, which is an all-time head-scratch, yet also totally artful and gloriously pretentious ending to a movie. We'll talk about later. Um, but I feel like she overall is good for... Yeah. Again, you know, I think in comparison to Nicholson, which usually a lot of the identity of the movie is based around the conception of who the lead is and what the lead is doing and yeah. the direction of it. So by virtue of what the inability to exactly define what this movie is, Nicholson has more of a weight to carry in that way. Right. And Michelle Pfeiffer is, again, a really talented uh, leading leading actress. Mm-hmm. And for her part, I think does a good job. Right. What's there? Uh, James Spader Stuart Swinton. I feel like we've talked about Spader at some point on here, but I can't remember the movie. Um, he's his kind of like protege. You will be my guinea pig and protege. Yeah. I just feel like I need to bring that up when I'm able to, <laughs> quoting a master. Um, but uh, he's like acts all nice all the time. But it's just like, secretly a backstabber, oh, yeah, corporate creep, right, basically. Yeah, that he's basically just wanting to take his job. Now, we have talked about some of his movies where we've talked about Crash on here a pretty good mm-hmm. amount, I think. Sex, Lies, and Videotape, we might have mentioned. He kind of started out, obviously, as one of the kind of brat pack yeah. people. He was in Pretty in Pink. He was in Mannequin, Less Than Zero, and then kind of being in Wall Street. Then on, he kind of was yeah. in bigger things. Um, what do you think of him in this? Because I feel like also a lot of the movie, the second half of the movie hinges on him. Yeah, I mean, the casting of him specifically alone is very much trying to make a meta statement on, oh, you think James Spader is the next Jack Nicholson, don't you? Because he's got this very weird yet potent sexuality on film already by this point. Uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape is the biggest version of that. And then Crash Crash will be a little later on. But he he exudes this weird confidence and And sexuality. secretary, too. He's not doing a Jack Nicholson impression... But he is like exuding his own version of the Nicholson mystique. And I mean that even before this movie. I mean, in other movies, he's doing a version of that. Like, he's almost doing a version in, like, say, um, in Sex Lies and Videotapes of, like, Carnal Knowledge Jack Nicholson. You know what I mean? A version of that. And so. um, I feel like the movie. More like the ending. Like, you know, the very end of Carnal Knowledge where he's like showing those, like, pictures or whatever. He's more like that part of that movie, Jack Nicholson, I think, than the kind of earlier stuff, yeah. Because that's the end result of where that character finds himself. But um, it's just, I feel like the movie, in casting him alone, is making this very meta statement on 
past, present, future of movie stardom perversion or sexual icons of their respective eras, which is weird to kind of put anybody quite on par with Jack Nicholson. But James Spader was that in the 80s and 90s. I mean, you can look at his work and see that pretty clearly. Um, I feel like Spader, I think his, I don't know, I don't know if he's good in this movie, but I'm very entertained by him throughout, yeah. especially in the later portions as he also becomes more manic and he himself becomes a werewolf and his effects don't quite look as good or as polished no. as Nicholson's and do. And it's interesting, prosthetics but, yeah, well, even before that when it's like all of a sudden he is just the werewolf when he has the eyes. And that's really creepy looking. Like, I'm very unsettled by that. Yeah. The stuff in the... It honestly reminded me if anybody ever remembers the show Big Wolf on Campus, which was this show no, that was clearly a, that. a Buffy ripoff that oh, came on okay. in like the late 90s, early 2000s. It aired on like Fox Family Channel or what became ABC Family. I remember this show. Yeah. Uh, I think it was actually from Canada, then it got like imported down here. Mm. But I mean, some of Spader's effects were like almost on par with some of what I remember from that, which is by no means a compliment yeah. Uh, to yeah. this. But like, know. and that's another thing is that interestingly, you know, throughout the movie, we're tracking the differences that are happening to Jack Nicholson as he's turning into this thing. Yeah. With him, it's just very much kind of keeping saying oh you kind of forgot that he bit him earlier in the movie didn't you and i'm like no i've been waiting the whole time actually but okay but then it's like all of a sudden it's like, oh now he's just the werewolf yeah that that like, that, you know, did, that got a little bit more short shrift right compared and to it's kind of like uh, i know and the reason they do that is because it's like trying to fake us out and go oh this surprised you didn't it's like no i kind of knew because he clearly bit him mm-hmm. so at some point this is going to happen by the way, I mentioned that, you know, when that happens and it's in his apartment building, he's like going up to go see his wife and he comes down and <laughs> he bites him and he's like running up the steps. Oh, right, know? right, right. And yeah, he's yeah. looking like, what the <laughs> F is this? And he goes like, and sees his wife up there. Right. but but the, I do wonder yeah. too how much of, and this could be true of a lot of generations, but specifically with Nicholson and Spader and then Nichols as depicting Nicholson here, how much of this is a... Boomer versus Gen X hysteria. Yeah. That, oh, Gen X is coming on up, and us boomers are becoming more and more displaced or feeling as though we're, we can't keep up. You know, I feel yeah. like that's a, a slight generational battle being depicted here with yeah. these, you know, characters. Yeah. Not in a very clear, explicit way, but just by sheer right. representation of those people that it does that. Yeah. Draws um, that out. But yes. Yeah, the whole ending where they, like, fight is very, like, this is so good, ain't it? And it's like, <laughs> no. Well, we also but. don't associate Mike Nichols as being a very, I mean, he's a great director, don't yeah. get me wrong, but not, like, a very action-oriented It's all in director. slow motion. Yeah. And Which adds a, an is, expressionistic quality yeah. to it, but. And it's all mm-hmm. very, like, the music's very big and, like, and, like, like yeah. kind of stuff, and it's just, like, very way. operatic yeah, it's, and it's dramatic. really ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but but not even in a way that was interesting, like what Tim Burton and Jack Nicholson accomplished at the ending of Batman, which was like, let's do this like Phantom of the Opera kind of, uh, like, which was partially right. based on yeah. the fact that they had the writer strike going on right. at the time, and but, literally, I think yeah. the story was that. Uh, John, John Peters, Peters and, and Jack Nicholson yeah. went to see Phantom of the Opera in London uh, yeah. when they were shooting, you know, Batman in England. 
and saw that and they came to the set the next day and like why don't we try like a little Phantom of the Opera kind of deal yeah and, and I guess Burton was like movie, yeah, yeah it does yeah. but I but, guess Burton was right. like okay sure yeah, yeah. like we no writer uh, Sam Ham. He's out there picketing right now. Yeah, he can't even, get him on the even phone. Even with that, you have like people jumping around and like do it. And, and this does that, but it's a, just a totally different like tone and yeah. it's taking it too seriously. Um, so yeah, that's also <laughs> the way that James Spader acts when he is the werewolf is very like looking around <laughs> all the time. Like I can't, you're not seeing me do it, but he's always like, yes, what's going on? Like, you know, and it's weird. Um, Kate Nelligan is uh, Charlotte Schuyler Randall, which is, I don't know why I had her whole name. Uh, I was as, trying to uh, even think if the what else she's in been this, in because I, offhand. Uh, here, everything's loading. Okay. But yet, she, yeah. at first, she seems like she's totally on his side right. early in the movie, and then eventually finds out that she's cheating on him with uh, Spader's character. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Uh, I'm waiting. Okay. Uh okay, so she was in the nineteen seventy nine Dracula with uh Frank Langella. Yeah. Is Lucy Seward. Um which is what? I'm just okay. Um Ah, the needle was Richard Marquand, I think who you know yeah. did Return mm-hmm. the Jedi. Yeah. Um she's not really been in a whole lot else, uh that I'm know what it is anyway. Fatal Instinct, I've Prince heard of. of. Oh, Tides. Prince of Tides. I do remember her in that off the top of my head. Shadows and Fog, also. Uh, yeah, Woody Allen. U.S. Marshals, which I haven't seen. Cider House Rules. So she's been in some other things, but not a whole lot. It looks like she was in more TV. Uh, Swing Boat. Not the movie Swing Boat. No. Um, but yeah, she's not in this a whole lot either. Um, it's short change. I mean, yeah, as we've just talked a prop. about, is a problem with a lot of these movies. Richard Jenkins as Detective Sergeant... We'll go through some of these quicker. Detective Sergeant Carl Bridger. Also, I want to mention uh, Brian Markinson as Detective Ken Wade. I think he was that guy that is on Mad Men. Yeah, he's in right? season six of Mad Men. Uh, let me make sure of that. Let's Linda Cardellini's husband. He's out of his gourd. He's out of his gourd. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Dr. Uh, uh, Rosen. Dr. Earl Gottnick. Yeah. Um, I was comforting but, Mrs. Rosen. I was comforting Mrs. Rosen. <laughs> you know, that's like a, uh, that's like a urban dictionary phrase for like sex or something. Comforting Mrs. Rosen. Yeah, have you not ever heard no, of that? Uh, yeah, that say, like, oh, I'm comforting Mrs. Rosen or whatever people say. <laughs> I don't even know if that's true or if somebody just put that on there. <laughs> I thought we had talked about that, but anyway, Richard Jenkins Play, Richard Jenkins is all over the place, and we've talked about him before when we talked about killing him softly. Here he's playing the, like, I feel like in the 90s he was very much that, like, this, and there's something about Mary. Was very, you know, like, one scene I'm in, a but... dumb idiot in the headlights look all yeah. the time, like, you know, and very, like, <laughs> oh, okay, uh, you know, and so... I do uh, think he has subtly one of the best performances I've ever seen in a comedy, which is a big thing to say in Step Brothers. Yeah, like how that, angry but, yeah. and irrational yeah. <laughs> he goes over the line all the time. Like, like that part where towards the beginning where uh, John C. Ryder's like says something like, "And she grabbed me by the wiener," and he's yeah. like by the he's like standing by the kitchen sink, and he drops all the he drops all the dishes. In. Shut the f up! <laughs> yeah. <It's> like, <laughs> but yeah, he doesn't go big here. He's kind of just always like. 
Cause, yeah, I mean, you remember he, there's that scene, by the way, in the movie where he's like sitting there listening to James Spader, and James Spader's like in his ear talking, and he's just sitting there like, mm, yeah, like yeah. it's just like there's no way a cop would look at somebody who looks like that and is acting like that and go, oh yeah, that's what's going on, like <laughs> just dumb. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I mean, they these are they're the requisite like somebody in authority has to figure right. out what's going yeah. on here and they're yeah. always clueless and hapless and right. two steps behind everything you know like cops in a Batman movie but there's yeah. no Batman to speak of so but there is a Joker yeah Christopher Plummer is uh, Raymond Alden uh, pretty good kind of villain role in this is I like, like to see him as a werewolf you know why couldn't uh, yeah, he have been like, one <laughs> like you know, uh, or it turns uh, out he's a vampire. Like, see now that would have been he actually looks kind of like a vampire, so that actually would have worked. Yeah. Um, well now I'm thinking of Beirut rules, Mister Bonds and uh, <laughs> Syriana. You're walking to the bank, flying in a small plane. You'll be killed. <laughs> um, but uh, him and this is he's not actually in it a ton, but he's basically just. The boss who, like, doesn't really... He literally looks at the bottom line. Like, he doesn't care between James and does it with a or smile, though, too. Yeah, he's just like, I don't care. Yeah, like, I care know. about money. And you know, I buy more really, money, I spend more money. Right, he doesn't really care about Michelle Pfeiffer, either, as his daughter. He's just kind of like, eh, let her do what she wants to do. And just like, I don't care. Yeah. And I don't really approve of you, but whatever. You know, Like, on paper, he would be more of a villain in the movie, but it turns out James Spader ends up right. being more of the antagonist. He's more but of he's the facilitator of the... The MC of the madness, if you will. Yeah, like, right. you know. Um <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, he's it's a pretty it's a pretty general Christopher Plummer role. Um, you know, I was just but. thinking, I'm sure there's actually some out there. I can't think of Christopher Plummer I've ever seen in anything... Where he's playing a down on his luck slash middle class or lower class person, like he's yeah. always playing a very upper crust, almost at least. And he was great at doing that, yeah. so I'm not saying that's right. bad. But I, I just can't think any offhand. I'm sure he's yeah. had some roles, but again, he plays he's Christopher Plummer. I mean, it's pretty, yeah, pretty basic role. You know, I'd say he. Plays now, I don't remember this. exactly who this is in the movie, but Eileen Atkins is Mary, I believe. Was that his secretary? Was the secretary. And I'm so. looking here, and I'm not really recognizing a whole lot of movies that I've There's seen. There's a whole like, kind of plot point um, in the movie that he might be leaving the agency and taking you know, some right. of his their literary yeah. clients with them. And so she's kind of in some of those scenes. She's, uh, she was in Cold Mountain, which I haven't seen. But uh, she's an English actress, so she's in a lot of like... Okay, theater. Television and theater. Okay. And yeah, so... She's not in the movie a whole, whole lot anyway. But there is that whole scene where he's like, she's like, is the worm turning? He's like, the worm has turned. And yeah. she's like, about effing time or something like, you know. But yeah. uh, David Hyde Pierce is Roy McAllister. He's like, I don't exactly know what he does, but he's more or less like a, another publisher who's like a big fan of his and is his basically like, will do anything he tells him to. Almost now, a counter-protege to right. uh, Spader. Uh, you, he will be his guinea pig and protege. Yeah. Um, now, David Hyde Pierce has been in a ton of things. He's most, most remembered from yeah. Cheers. Or Frasier. Oh, I'm sorry, Frasier. That's what yeah, I mean. Yeah. Um, it's Frasier's probably, brother. Look, picture of Kevin Klein. Hang on. Well, it don't even look like him. It's like, what? It's like super yeah. close up to him. And it's like he got caught like he was in the dark. And <laughs> somebody turned on a light and he looked like that. Um, wow. Uh, yeah, also, we know him a lot from uh, David Hyde Pierce, that is, from Wet Hot American yeah, Summer. right. Um, and, yeah, so I normally think of him in that way. Also, he was in The Fisher King. 
He was in Sleepless in Seattle. Adam's Family Values, I do remember him in that a little yeah. bit. Nixon uh, as John Dean, no, I, I do remember, remember him in that. Yeah. Uh, Moses Jones as Drix, the voice. <laughs> um, in that Hellboy movie, he was Abe Sapien. All oh, the voice for yeah. that, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, I do remember. He's hearing been him in yeah, that. mostly more TV overall. Uh, well, again, Fraser but, being yeah, by far my the favorite moment one. in this movie though. He asks him to do something, and he says, "You're my god," yeah. <laughs> and then just goes and does it. It's like the weirdest thing. I ever. think he he like, he represents like a non-threatening yeah protege right. to Nicholson as opposed to right. Spader. Yeah, yeah. Right. uh, Ampuri as uh Doctor Azaleas Alizaeus. Uh, now, Ampuri, I haven't really seen a whole lot. He's an Indian actor. He's like a big actor in India. I know the biggest movie that most people would have seen him in is Gandhi, which had, you know, a great majority of Indian actors in it. Um, I don't actually remember him in that movie. But he's kind of a basic, like, you know, paint-by-numbers. Oh, uh, this uh, oriental mystic, figure. Yeah, and oriental mystic figure will tell me about right. the ways of the East. It's very weird, and... And there's a whole part at the end where he's like, I hope you will bite me. And he's like, what? <laughs> like, and he's like, okay, if you change your mind, call me up. Basically, and it's very weird. I wouldn't go so far as to say That, that could be a scene that could be very easily cut. Or that yeah. whole little bit of trying to, right. quote, figure it out. I don't know. Yeah. It, it goes to serve what the metaphor of the movie is, which we'll talk about later, but is already obvious, I'm sure. Ron Rifkin is Dr. Ralph, who also was in L.A. Confidential. We're seeing a lot of random... Yeah. A lot of stuff going on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no idea who he is in the movie and no memory whatsoever. Yeah, there was those but scenes he got bit. Maybe that yeah, he's like that seeing doctor. him. It was that had yeah, to been that I, doctor. Yeah, I guess it was. I remember uh, there's a. Yeah, I remember period. the scenes. But I, I mean, nothing big come about. out of them. I uh, I'm gonna jump through some of these here. One of my favorite names ever, Bradford English. Just can't get over that. <laughs> Johnny English. As uh, yeah, as Keys. I don't even know who that is. Who's in the Anderson tapes? Hanky Panky, one of my favorite names. You know what one of my favorite names for anything ever is Hurley Burley, that play. Mm-hmm. Who was it wrote that? It was like somebody random. Anyway. I, yeah, do you like uh, a, in a Matrix Reloaded, the Burley Brawl, as it's called? That's so stupid. <laughs> Why was that called that again? I don't know. <laughs> We've talked about that forever and tried to figure it out. Um, it was based on the David Rabe play, Hurley Burley. But anyway, Sean Penn in that, yeah, and Kevin Spacey's in that too. Robin Wright. This is the movie, not yeah, the, right. Gary Shandling is Artie in Hurley Burley. Anyway, uh, one other person I want to mention: David Schwimmer. It says Allison Janney is in this too, which I oh yeah, I remember pointing her out. Yeah. She's like in a party scene. I want to mention David Schwimmer though, mainly for the scene he's in. There's that scene where they're going to try to arrest. I was going to say he's a cop. Yeah, he's yeah. like a cop in it at the Central Park Zoo, and they're like, "What are you doing?" What are you doing? Yeah. Basically, and he's like, <laughs> you know, yeah. looking like he does. <laughs> and they're like, going to put the cuffs on him. And he like jumps up onto the like uh, pillar and runs away. <laughs> and they're literally like, he's like, he got my cuffs. Like, and it's just like, <laughs> yeah. such a weird, I, I just love every scene in this movie where somebody witnesses them doing this stuff. And they're like, wait, what? Like, you yeah. know, it was just hilarious. Um, Anyway, that's pretty much the cast. As far as the rest of the crew, 
We mentioned Jim Harrison and Wesley Strick as the writers. I know that there was a particular, and I, I learned more about this a long time ago when we watched the movie. I'm going to just read this here because it kind of sums it up. Screenwriter Jim Harrison left the production because of creative differences with director Mike Nichols, claiming, I wanted Dionysian, but he wanted Apollonian. He took my wolf and made it into a chihuahua. I cracked up for 10 minutes and then went out into the country and stood in front of a wolf den and apologized while my dog hid under the truck. Following his experience with the film, Harrison decided to leave Hollywood. So, he was trying to make this a lot more supposedly, um, like, uh, serious, I guess. Yeah. And wanting to be a lot more like, the wolf isn't everyone kind of thing. Yeah. And then, like, then it just, at the end, became just nonsense. Um... Also, just to say, me at Pharaoh originally signed on to be in the movie, but uh, who's she gonna be the wife? Yes, but apparently considered too controversial a choice by the film company due to the then current Woody yeah, Allen and Sunni Previn affair. Mm-hmm. Um, Sharon Stone also was gonna be in this as Michelle, uh, Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer, which be interesting but I, I like Pfeiffer for this yeah. I think overall it'd be better I think she but, adds a, a, a dash enough of innocence that Sharon Stone would have been bringing yeah, a little right. bit more heat I think and yeah. so yeah um anyway also we mentioned this but Giuseppe Rotono uh <laughs> doesn't sound like a real movie I know it does sound fake um who let's see other movies he had done he was a, a cinematographer Primarily, obviously, originally, he had done a lot of Italian films. Christ Stopped at Eboli. I know that's a big movie. I hear about some. Uh, he also... right, Yeah, Rocco and His Brothers. Um, the Leopard. So, yeah, he did some... And some Fellini movies. So, obviously, and all that jazz he did in America. Popeye. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, let's keep looking here. Let's see... Red Sonia. Okay. Uh, and then, yeah, so basically, he had worked with so many people that were like, you know, he'd worked with Fellini and and Visconti, and he had worked with, actually, on Carnal Knowledge in the Nichols, past yeah. with Nichols. But, obviously, he has this entire, you know, like, oh, he makes these arty movies and then is used for this also Ian Morricone did the score we'll get to him in a second I think one of the big tone tonal problems of the movie is in the visuals it looks like I mean it was made for 70 million dollars yeah, it a looks lot of money. It. Yeah. now it made 131 so it didn't totally make as much as it really probably should have um, Nicholson's but, price might have milked the uh, That could budget, be, you know, but it really looks that No, amount. I mean, it looks accomplished, uh, right. definitely. And, yeah. For a horror movie, it's the best-looking horror movie I've ever seen. Well, this like, gets to the but, larger points that, that a lot of horror fans have, which can be a, a very annoying group, but this is actually a valid enough point, is how good, and when I say good, I mean to this level of yeah. a studio production with a big budget, can a studio horror movie be compared to more independent, smaller budget? Because yeah. that's where most horror movies thrive, mm-hmm. is on those smaller budgets. Or they're not given, yeah. Even, the, like I say, a studio movie is not usually given that But much again, money. I would even question and wonder if Mike Nichols defines this as a horror movie. Yeah, I don't uh, know. He, for him, it definitely is. Yeah. Uh, but 
I would also imagine he thinks he's making something a little more just quotes more psychological than a horror right. movie, you know. But uh, I got. But again, so that I just get. I mean, and it's weird because it has this whole kind of green, blue. Like when I used to, when I was growing up as a kid, when I would see Halloween imagery from the nineties, which was what I just yeah. kind of come out of. You see pictures of the moon or. Or like fields and stuff, and it all looks like this. So I'm very nostalgic for that yeah. like aesthetic of, uh, like you know that book that came out. Uh, it was that book about the bat. It was like a kids' book. Mm-hmm. It looks like that as a movie. Like I don't even know how to describe that, but it was called Luna or something. Um, I can't remember. I think but I, yeah, I know what you're talking I, about. I see it in my mind. But I can't think of the name. Yeah. But uh, just that whole kind of era of visual uh, mm-hmm. was very interesting to me. And so that I, I like that it looks like that. But at the same time, it's very... Uh, it's called Stella Luna. Stella Luna, that's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that at the time just was really, you know, part of that oeuvre, but now is is even weirder, which I like about it. But it just doesn't work for the movie, you know, for what it is. It's trying to, it's put, putting a silk hat on a pig, kind of. Mm-hmm. But the whole movie feels like that. It feels like it's like, no, this is like, this is Wolf. Yeah. Like, plus it's called Wolf, which reminds me of Howl, mm-hmm. which we mentioned earlier, which is like, oh yeah, this is like Artie. This is like, this is like. Uh, Ginsburg. Like, yeah, know. to get to that point right. about the quote metaphor of the movie, yeah. as you said earlier, that oh, the wolf is really within all of us, right. and it's also a generational. Yeah, because I wrote down here, good metaphor or too obvious. I would say it's um, a little too obvious. Yeah. I think, and I think in large part it's because somebody that's as talented a filmmaker as Mike Nichols doing something that's a little bit of a obviously a divergence from him in doing a, like effectively what's a horror thriller or something of that sort um sometimes those really great talented filmmakers are a little out of their depth when they do something like this i feel like because mm-hmm. they get caught up in the mood and the feel of what their take on a horror movie is that sometimes the thematics of the movie are you know, basic, more basic, basic yeah. and not really more. Because they're over. like, I'm going to make a horror movie. It's like, yeah, other people do that all the time. You're not all that special. But they feel that because, oh, I don't normally do this, which yeah. I get that, like I said. But yeah, I mean, it is very basic, but I will say it's this. like, imagine uh, John Carpenter making a romantic comedy. I would imagine it would be even more disastrous than. Yeah, this uh, right. would be, you know what I mean? If he, but uh, now I kind of want to see that. Just see what that I, would be. I ordered vanilla twist. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but one thing I will say though, because I think it is very obvious, this movie has an image that I think of all the time, which is of Central Park in the middle of New York City, and it has all the animals howling at the zoo, and kind of the shot of it, and just thinking about. And I think this is honestly a more potent metaphor than all... That image is more potent a metaphor than all of American Psycho, even. Mm-hmm. Which is to say, even in the midst of this like manicured and very specific uh, and very uh, technological and elite metropolis, mm-hmm. there is this inner violence or this inner, um, you know animalistic behavior 
that really is what dictates the city as a mm-hmm. whole and really all of urban you know environments but i just think that's interesting because i've never heard anyone or seen anyone use central park mm-hmm. like that as a metaphor for the violence inherent to new york city yeah. in, in the middle of it that is a and novelty so I that's will pretty movie, that's yeah. pretty big i think to the point where i'm i give the movie a lot of leeway to be weird and be interesting just because of that i'm like wow that is pretty it's almost like he had that idea mm-hmm. and was like and it maybe read american psycho or something and what and they were like oh you know what let's like do that but like jack nicholson is werewolf like yeah. you know and so in that way it is obvious but i am fascinated by that motif i think is very specific yeah. um you want to talk about the ending of the movie, by the way? Yeah, so... I'll read it, yeah, what it says, that, yeah. and then we'll talk okay. about it. Yeah. It says... Uh, okay. Still in a half-human state. <laughs> Will has a brief moment with Laura, which is them just looking at each other. Yeah. I wouldn't even characterize that as a brief moment, but okay. Then runs into the forest before anyone else can arrive. What's funny about that, by the way, before I continue... Is that he like looks at her and then like turns and runs and she's crying like oh my god he's gone and yeah. like he's just like oh I'm gone like mm-hmm. you know as an animal he's literally like oh I'm gonna leave now mm-hmm. like like the way animals think yeah it's just a funny image of <laughs> yeah, like right. him just going and then her having this breakdown about oh my god he's gone like, yeah um minutes later Laura herself shows heightened senses when the police arrive telling Bridger that she can smell vodka on his breath before taking her leave. The final scene is a close-up of her face and of Will finally turning into a full wolf howling for Laura. I don't know if I would say that is definitive what he's howling for. Then it goes back to Laura's face and her eyes become wolf-like, hinting that she herself is transforming into a werewolf. I love it, hinting. It's like, no, it is saying very clearly she's going to be a werewolf. A werewoman, you know. A Um, she-wolf, that would have been the sequel. She-wolf of London, yeah. Actually, not that bad of a movie. I'll talk about that someday. Well, you were talking about how weirdly artful you thought the ending was. Describe that to me. I don't even know how to describe it. I'm probably going to honestly use that if I can find it on YouTube. I don't know. As the uh, Instagram stories, like promotion of this, just to show people this. Yeah, it's 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 like these like shots of like. In the in the woods of it, like a like a wolf running, and then it's like, but it's very. And the music is very like, oh, you know, and very graceful. And it's like shots of her eyes, mm-hmm. and it's like they are one. And like then it like fades out on her eyes, mm-hmm. and it's very like, oh yeah. And it's like <laughs> I don't really know how to describe because to read it out loud, yeah, you're it, yeah, you're not really. It's like, but like to see yeah. it is really is really like wow, this movie is ending like this, mm-hmm. like, and it's it really does sum up the movie. I think to say that the whole movie was really this like trying to be this operatic and this grandiose, you know, mm-hmm. but it's still Jack Nicholson as werewolf as puppet werewolf at the mm-hmm. end because there's the part where it's the wolf like. You can tell it's like an animatronic or like a puppet or something. Yeah. And then her with these eyes and like it's just all very kabuki. Um, yeah. And it really is one of the literally we were watching it because uh, I remember the first time I saw it I was like what like, the whole movie was a big question mark but we just watched it the other day again and 
we were both. I, I was both laughing, but also taking it kind of seriously. I mean, it, it, I think it's one of the weirder endings I've ever seen, where it is like both so goofy and stupid, but also like, wow, that's kind of actually like kind of impressive. And that gets like, to what movies yeah. can specifically do is to conjure images and feelings like that right. simultaneously. You yeah. know, that's something special yeah. movies can do that uh, other art forms and right. stuff can't. Um, what about? We've talked a lot about this movie being weird, and I feel like we've explained that. Yeah, and you, we hinted at this last episode, and we've had this conversation in various forms before on here. But this is one of the weirder movies I've ever seen. And again, I think some people would be surprised to hear that because they're thinking, well, what about Eraserhead? Or yeah. what about Inland Empire? Or what about, you know, all these things that are more explicitly avant-garde or more specifically going against the grain? But what really is so weird about this movie is that it had the $70 million budget. Yeah. It was a studio release. And yet, the tones rub up against each other. Sometimes cohere. Other times are in violent opposition to each other. But above all else, the movie, for all the town involved, doesn't know what it is. And the, yeah. and the idea that is very strange and perplexed to me is that so much money and resources and time... And capital culturally can be, it you know, invested in something, and everybody kind of shrugs and is not exactly the sum of its parts. But again, I think that adds a fascinating quality to it. And again, I think, you know, again, we shouldn't sometimes the cinephiles fixate on, oh, this is weird, this is crazy. Yeah. For the most obvious examples, because usually it's these movies like this. Another movie I think of in similar-ish terms, but it's a much more coherent, great movie, but scratches some of the same itches, which might be very strange to say, but I'll try to explain myself with that, is a movie like Margaret. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is it's a coming-of-age story, but it's also, am I complicit in the death of this person? How am I going to dramatize the death of this person into my own personal drama? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know what I mean? The messiness of all that. But again, I think that that movie has a clearer idea of what it is, and it's not nearly as, quote, weird as this. But it like makes you wonder sometimes while you're watching it, especially the first time you see movies like yeah. this, where you're like, that beautiful bit of discovery of like, where is this going? Like, Because you can watch a really great movie like, say, I'm trying to think. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, let's mm-hmm. just say, which I really love and think is a pretty great movie. Modern, we know it's space. ending in Yellow Drive, no matter what happens. Yeah, right? and like but, you, yeah. It, it you know, it makes some surprising choices, but you're never exactly floored by them. Now, the ending kind of leaves you with this melancholic feeling, but you know what I mean. It, yeah. It's a, it's a great movie, but it it doesn't surprise you in a profound way. Exactly, it doesn't make turns or divergences that. You know, another movie, again, where we're just throwing out more modern movies and other ones, like something like we talked about a lot, Bo is Afraid. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a movie that you already know going in is going to have some very strange things about it. It still makes some strange turns, uh, but on the whole, you know you're going into an Ari Aster movie. Yeah, it's not going to end well, and it's like, yeah. 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 um, So, again, I mean, there are a lot of variations on what this can be, a, quote, weird movie. But I think Wolf needs to be identified and recognized as a very strange, per- perplex, 
difficult in some ways, maybe not difficult in the way of like, well, what does it mean? Because it's very clear and obvious what it quote means. Yeah. But difficult in its categorization, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, and especially it's a movie that didn't that didn't uh, doesn't really have much of a legacy. I mean, it made its yeah. money, but people don't really talk about that movie anymore. So yeah. it's kind of that makes it even weirder in mm-hmm. its own way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a popular movie. I mean, it was made for the multiplex, like a movie, mm-hmm. you know. And I think one of the reasons uh, we picked these two movies, I think they're pretty disparate. Yeah. And don't like have said, a lot admittedly, in one of the reasons why we picked River Wild is because we haven't seen it, so we just wanted to do that. Yeah. But, um, but one thing I really like about these two is that. If you went walked into your local video store in 1994-1995, these movies would have been sitting not all that far from each other and would have been one of your choices on a you know a, a weekend in the 90s, you know what I mean yeah. in terms of just like these these were the types of things that were populating theaters and video stores. And again, a richer cinema which we talk about a lot like what does that look like? A richer cinema looks like both of these movies existing at the same time. And being given the chance to breathe and be seen mm-hmm. in the movie theaters, you know. So, any other final thoughts on either Wolf or River Wild? In, you know, in comparison no, to each other. No, not particularly. Just, uh, well, yeah, they're uh, River Wild, genuinely really good. Wolf, uh, you gotta see it to believe it. I mean, it truly <laughs> is something else. So, so that's gonna do it all for episode seventy-five of Overlapping Dialogue. But don't worry. We're halfway through the 90s here, by the way. Yeah, I guess we are. Yeah, so Jeff Probst, what have we got next week? Stay tuned for scenes from our next episode. Hate him.
Walther PPK. 7.65 millimeter. Only three men I know use such a gun. I believe I've killed two of them. Lucky me. I think not. James Bond. Charming, sophisticated secret agent. <laughs> Shaken, but not disturbed. <laughs> so you haven't lost your delicate sense of humor, Valentine, huh? All you need for an audience. I'm strangling the cat. Strangling a cat. That is Irina, my mistress. Very talented girl. Irina! Take a hike! What is it that brings you to my neighborhood, hmm? Still working for MI6, or have you decided to join the 21st century? <laughs> I hear the new M is a lady. I want you to do me a favor. <laughs> he wants me to do him a favor. <laughs> my knee aches every single day. Twice as bad when it is cold. You any idea how long the winter lasts in this country? Tell him, Dimitri. Well, it depends. Silence! For an ex-KGB agent, you surprised me, Valentine. I'm sure someone of your stature must have realized the skill was not to hit your knee, but to uh, miss the rest of you. So why did you not kill me? Call it professional courtesy. And I should extend you the same courtesy. Kiros Funeral Parlor. Four o'clock this afternoon. So you just heard clips from two very disparate yes, movies. Yes. I think these are probably the most disparate movies we've so. done yeah. so far, yeah. certainly in the 90s. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Misfits and Dunstan Checks In is always going to hold a special yeah. uh, place. But you just heard clips from Kids from 1995, as well as Goldeneye from 1995. The comeback for James Bond. So, Kids is a movie neither of us have seen. This no. is another similar to yeah. The River Wild. And I think, we actually, the next, the next movie is also going to be uh, one, one movie we yeah. haven't seen, too. So, yeah. well, it'll kind of be a group of them that we've done that way. Um, but, yeah. Anyway. It's one. Of, it's known as one of the most um, controversial movies. Ever. Uh, really, ever. I, specifically yeah. the 90s, I know. Yeah. Um, Directed by Larry Clark. I know I more specifically always remember it yeah, was written by Harmony Korine. That's kind of his course, first major project that he ever did. Uh, um, ben Detrick yeah. of the New York Times described the film as, quote, Lord of the Flies with skateboards, nitrous oxide, and hip-hop. There's no thunderous and moral reckoning, only observational detachment. So, again, I think for us... And what's interesting is to try to categorize the, quote, kids' ages in this movie, they're like... Later stage Gen X, early stage millennials is mm -hmm. loosely who they are as far as generationally speaking. Um, but again, I feel like this is a more hard edge look at youth than say like uh, Slacker from some years earlier by this point. Yeah. Um, of course, from uh, Richard Linkletter. Yeah. Uh, that that's a more casual, sedate... Has a certain nihilism to it, I know, yeah. but it's much more like, eh, like, well, big deal, whatever. Right. This is a very clearly more angry movie, yeah. as you could clearly tell from that clip. Uh, yeah, I know it gets 
compared a lot to that movie 13, um, which is, I don't think is as controversial, but is similar. Uh, train spotting, this kind of, yeah. around so the I'm same a big time fan too. of train Yeah, I like yeah. that. I think it's good. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I've always heard of this movie as just being a totally abysmal experience. Not in its, like, quality of movie. I've always heard mostly good things about it. Uh-huh. But um, that it's very um, disgusting in a lot of ways, is what I've always heard. I think it all takes place over one day. It's more or less about just these kind of skate rat kids in New York. Uh-huh. Um, and I know one of the big things about the movie is that uh, Chloe Sevigny, uh has sex with this other kid, and he has, like, HIV, I think. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a lot of the, like, uh, kind of... Which is interesting for something that, you know, that New York in the 80s, that was such a, you know, the AIDS epidemic, that was such a part of that. It still had a legacy and by the it's 90s, It's interesting too, yeah. uh, to think about that as the 90s, these kids are still passing that around and um, kind of... What I read into that, I don't know, because I haven't seen the movie yet. It's almost like... And, of course, the question is, where are the parents? What is going yeah. on here? It's almost like, yeah, like, everybody kind of thought, oh, we solved that problem, or we're not dealing with that anymore. Um, and it's just very, you know, it's just such a part of the city as kind of this. And we talked earlier about, uh, you know, the city as this decay and all that, you know, we kind of talked about, but that, it being more normalized by then, but that now it's just worse for the children, ultimately, I think. I don't even remember what film class it was for, but I remember when I went to UNC Wilmington, we watched some clips from this movie. And mm-hmm. I think it was like politics in film or yeah. African-American cinema or something with regards to this movie maybe being racist specifically yeah. was what... We I've heard that about, about it, yeah. um, and that's here been a, and there. a whole topic and discussion about the movie. So, again, going into this, um, we really don't know to what extent we'll even be fans of it or like yeah, it, but I I, like we're it. very interested in just seeing I what I feel it like is, it's a big know? 90s document, though, too, because there's so many movies in the 90s. I feel like ni- the 90s was the, the cinematic controversy decade. I mean, because uh, you had, obviously, JFK and movies like that. Malcolm X, I feel like, wasn't really much as much controversial Well, also, that, just the afterglow of the late 80s with uh, Last Temptation of Christ and Do the Right Thing, mm-hmm. both in the very yeah. late 80s, and, and that, that also, fed into the 90s. Yeah, Natural Born Killers, um, yeah. and just all of Tarantino's work. Oh, yeah. Um, and even Boogie Nights later. Yeah. Um, but there were just so many movies in the 90s, Basic Instinct, just all the... Sex and violence of the '90s and the just the controversies of that. All that mixed um, in with Nirvana and then yeah. hip hop of the mm-hmm. era, and I mean a lot of right. cultural and stuff. And so this is kind of at the nexus, I think, of all of those things, and is literally smack dab in the middle of the decade where it's kind of the thing we've been slightly anticipating and also dreading. I think even more in a lot of ways uh, to see. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, um, definitely want to, you know. Yeah. I think more than anything, we're eager to have to see it, to talk and have the conversation about whatever it right. is, because right now it's kind of a mystery box, yeah. although we right. know various things kind of sort of about right. it to get into it. Now for something completely different, though. James uh, James Bond. Uh, James Bond. So 
I've been subjecting myself, Levi has along with me, uh, to all the James Bond movies I have not seen, which really was everything between the uh, you know George Lazenby and uh, Rosnan. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. So like all, that, all yeah. the more I have not seen until recently, and then we're getting ready to start watching the Dalton movies, all two of them. Yeah. Um, and so for me, when you say James Bond to me, my default setting in my brain is Sean Connery in yeah, the 60s. Right. And everything else has got a logo slapped on it, and it can be its own little thing, but not quite James Bond. I would say, though, Pierce Brosnan, specifically with Goldeneye, yeah. and, like, say, maybe Craig with Skyfall, are things that do puncture through that a little bit and make me go, okay, you well, know what Sam I think. Well, because Royale also, I yeah, think, that's, a lot that is a great that. one. Uh, yeah. I don't quite like as much as everybody else, yeah. but it is really good. Um you don't like that, to, where is my money? Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's better than Die yeah. Another Day, which That's came right for before. That's yeah. <laughs> Die Another Day. As Madonna sang. Um, but yes, that was Golden me doing Eye that. was undeniably one of the big movies of the 90s. I mean, it was like definitely one of yeah. the biggest movies of 1995. Especially big because it had been six years, I think, between Dalton's, uh, last uh, Dalton's License to Kill and that. So... Uh, and as you said earlier, that was what, quote, brought bring Bond, Bond back in a serious yeah, way. It was actually great. I mean, yeah. it was the best Bond movie since uh, maybe even Thunderball. I don't or know. Or You Only Live Twice. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I love I You mean, Only Live Twice, but I'm talking about on a star rating yeah. level. Probably Thunderball. I mean, because yeah. literally everything in between there was like either awful or, eh, or just kind of whatever. Um, I mean, there were movies like, I think, On Her Majesty's Secret Service is really pretty good. Yeah. Um, and then uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, I think, yeah. is pretty good. But other than that, everything else was just kind of eh or oh my god, like A View to a Kill, which we just watched <laughs> yeah. today. Now, I had seen all of these before and watching through them again, yeah, no. Um, but... We wanted to prepare ourselves for that because, like I said, for you, it was an excuse to just go through all yeah. these movies. Oh, and also the Dalton movies are good. I, I forgot to mention, I think those are pretty good. Um, but this really was a swing back in the right direction in a lot of ways, mainly due to Martin Campbell directing. I, I gotta it, say, like, so action director. we're about to watch the Dalton movies, so I've not seen those yeah. yet. But even, I'm not even kidding, even just watching this clip, the way the movie looked, it looked like a movie. A lot yeah. of those more movies were overlit or just like mm-hmm. look like that didn't even look all that good in terms of they didn't, the production quality. They, I mean, they spent the money and they had the stunts, but like it didn't look like. Well, and that's what I was going to say too. Having the texture of John, a real film. John Glenn, not the John Glenn. Yeah. John Glenn literally directed. I think from like I don't know, like uh, probably Octopussy. No, sorry, For Your Eyes Only. Through License to Kill, literally directed so he all did of the those. Dalton ones too. So he yeah. also did the Dalton movies, yeah. and all those those are better. It still feels entrenched in this basic style, this basic do this, do that, basic set pieces, basic lighting, basic blocking. You know, everything's just the same. And not to say that Goldeneye broke the barriers of what action movies could do, 
but it was also just like let's just make a great action movie. But I mean, in like, a decade you know, with a lot of great action movies, yeah. it's way up there. Yeah. I mean, there's Terminator Two, of course, is at the top, but I mean, it wouldn't be that far down, far from right. it. I don't think in my and, memory, as and, far as production design and the way the movie yeah. looks. Up until that time, I think it was the best action move movie that a Bond movie has been since probably on Her Majesty's Secret Service, mm-hmm, that's um, fair. which is not. Always a great movie, but the action sequences in that I think set pieces are just yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah, are just really good. Yeah, um, and obviously you only live twice was just like yeah, just literally sit back and let the world explode. Yeah. yeah, um, but I mean, just, and also too, I mean, and I went into and we're gonna talk about this more next week. I'm yeah. sure next time I went into the more movies like I don't know Roger Moore. Mm, I actually liked him. Yeah, I was surprised by that when I watched Uh, through him as how good he is. But I mean, I think he makes the best out of bad situations often. But then again, I'm not going to be one of those all caught up in blonde has to be dark-headed. Blonde has to be dark-headed. Blonde. Did I say that? Yeah. uh, The movie Blonde (laughs) has to be dark-headed. No, but uh, uh, yeah. but I'm not gonna be one of those. that's like oh, like Roger Moore or Daniel Craig cannot play James Bond right. because they're blonde. Yeah. But Bond is naturally looks a certain way, and yeah. again, just seeing Brosnan, even just in this clip uh, again, I was like, oh yeah, that's James Bond right. to me. That looks more like James, uh, James Bond. Blonde. Uh, and it even yeah. brought up Walter PPK. That's James Bond's gun. Do you know that? Do you know right? that? Yeah. <laughs> like saying that yeah. to him, but. I even love too. Like I don't think I think the movie cuts a really fine line about not being too cheeky, but Brosnan also like, pretty good but also that. like, yeah. yeah, we know this is the '90s Bond now, and what I mean by that is not totally disaffected and ironic, but it is a little bit winking at the legacy and the length of the character in the cultural space by this point. Uh, even in this clip, you can hear this like self-reflective nature that uh, it feel, is yeah. you know, being talked and about. Thought, and even, yeah. ooh, M's a woman now. And I don't think uh, that, you know, to me, Judy Dench is M. I, yeah. That is undeniably about the more modern movies. To me, she just was so great in M that role. M was always nothing yeah. until until she was something. Like, yeah. literally, I mean, like, no, nothing necessary against Bernard Lee or... or uh, What's that guy's name? I can't even remember the other guy's name that's like the yeah. in-between one. Uh, I but, think Ray Fiennes is fine in the new yeah, ones. But, but no, she is M, yeah. uh, very definitively, which is a shame for the movies she was in were always hit or miss up and down, but you could say that for any Bond yeah. thing. But um, know that just looking at this movie and thinking about Brosnan as Bond... And he kind of has the longer hair yeah. that he doesn't even have in the later Bond movies Almost reminds either. me of Superman in the um, 90s in the comics. Right. Almost a mullet. And like, it just you know. feels so different. Everything about yeah. it feels like this is this new thing that now is James Bond. And, yeah. and even though his movies after that never even lived up in any way I mean, literally, they that, I think they got a little worse and worse over time. They did, I think. I, think. Yeah, I mean, because I'm wanting to rewatch specifically Tomorrow Never Dies, as we've joked about before, Tomorrow Never Lies. That's so bad. <laughs> but uh, undeniably, GoldenEye yeah. was the, the yeah. high point of his movies. Yeah, I think And that, even he, similar to Moore, in the way that, even in the bad movies, he's good in them. Yeah, I think, I think most that, people would agree. I think that uh, the world is not enough is slightly better than Tomorrow Never Dies. Maybe it's got some good, uh, but s- sequences. Yeah, in it. Uh, uh, they have a conversation. <laughs> yeah, they have a good sequence. Yeah. 
Y'all don't know what that's in reference to. Um, <laughs> hopefully, you never will. Um, but uh, the, yeah, it just it just is a blow, blowing the whole thing out of the water in a lot. It was of ways a monster that, hit too. I yeah. know when it came out, and also the video game was a huge yeah. Oh deal. yeah. Well, that's I mean, honestly almost a bigger legacy than the movie. Yeah. The video game was just massive, and of course, inspiring. Uh, what was it? Uh. Oh gosh, what's the other one that we played a lot of? Nightfire mm-hmm. was an even bigger. Oh yeah, one I played that more honestly. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, for a certain group of people, that was bigger for me. Yeah. I know Goldeneye. Goldeneye was. Nightfire massive, had those but... uh, those rocket launchers you could shoot. Yeah, and you, like, had the camera on. Yeah, it. You got it. Yeah, they got it. Missiles. Yeah. yeah, but um, but yeah, the uh, Goldeneye just is a really great movie, and I think that it's owed to the action and the just a total revamping of the character. Yeah. In ways that also that, felt immediately classical too, right? Though. Because even Timothy Dalton, who's really good, is a little too angry all the time. It seems like, which and, which admittedly was yeah. a different shift right. from what Moore's had been. So. Uh, and is a more violent Bond in certain ways, and more just like to the point. But yeah, thankfully Brosnan was, and with this movie, really was like, I know this is what Bond is now, and it was like, wow. Yeah. And you'll and now I feel like we'll really feel that after watching all these again because, yeah, yeah, it's just too much, too much madness going. And on. Uh, last thing to say about it is yeah. too is that it feels very, it's uh, we've talked about before this post Cold War Bond and it's yeah. many ways about the legacy of the Cold War, which right. Bond had always existed in the backdrop of the Cold War, and now that it's over, where what place does Bond after have? they had blown the gas tanks? Yeah. It was like, yeah, we'll we'll scream that a million times next week. Yeah, we won't put you through that now. I would say that's it, but wait, I would say kids in Golden Eye was enough. But, but wait, hold on, you have a special surprise coming right up. Officials are warning more ships have just arrived over the capitals of India, England, and Germany, bringing estimates up to anywhere from 10 to 15 of these city-sized spacecraft. I know, my just try and stay calm. As to why Tell her to pack up and leave town. Why? What happened? Just do it! Oh, Ma, Ma, listen, uh, get your stuff together and uh, head for NS. Don't argue with me, just go! David, why did I just send my mother to Atlanta? David! David, talk to me. You hear me tell you that the signal hidden in the satellite feed is slowly recycling down to extinction? Not really. Countdown. A countdown. We're to what, David? Uh, it's like in chess. First, you strategically position your pieces. Then when the timing's right, you strike. See? They're positioning themselves all over the world using this one signal to synchronize their efforts in approximately six hours. The signal's going to disappear and the countdown's going to be over. And then what? Checkmate. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, i got to call my brother. i better call my housekeeper. i got to call my lawyer. Uh, forget my lawyer. Oh, my God. David. <laughs> <laughs> I, when we were thinking about, we had to have a clip from Independence Day from 1996. Yeah. I immediately I was like, "Oh, it's got to be something with Harvey Firestein because yeah. he's one of the first things I think of with that movie." We're actually going to be doing a special audio commentary for Independence Day. I've said this a bunch of times. This was one of the movies that was on a short list yeah. ever since we've had the podcast of we should do a commentary of that or an episode on that. And someday. we already brought up Brent Spiner in. Independent State Resurgence. So we thought we might as well do it, you know? So, this, so we thought we'd fit right in <laughs> as 
as uh, Johnny K once So, said. I guess this spoils it for you. When we get to 1996, Independence Day is not going to be one of the no. movies we talk about in 96. But instead of that, we're going to be, be a very whole... literary yeah. 1996. I'll go ahead and tell you. But, yeah. yeah. So, um, Independence Day, of course, from 1996, directed by disaster auteur Roland Emmerich. God almighty. Yeah. Um, undeniably also one of the biggest movies of the decade. I yeah. think it was the highest grossing movie when it came out uh, of of that year, but it was already, it was like up there, I think battling almost against some of the highest grossing movies ever. I think when I it think came out, when, when, you know. I think when people talk about action movies, disaster movies, alien movies, when people think movie, honestly, 1990s movie, it's pretty much Independence Day. That or Jurassic Park. Right. Yeah, I mean, because those, yeah. Independence Day hits this very fine line though too, because it's like a summer movie it's a July Fourth movie. It's an action, like I said, action movie, a sci-fi movie. It's uh, quote original. Right. I mean, I mean, it's like not based it, on IP, so it's got right. this like fresh. Even though it's basically Earth it. versus the Flying Saucers, yeah. it's and also Mars Attacks came out around the same time too, which is you know a version of all that. And War of the Worlds. I mean, it's based on a lot of things, but it literally is a juggernaut of a movie. It's literally like this is. What mo- uh, American Hollywood movies are is Independence Day, mm-hmm. in good and bad ways, in a lot of bad ways too, which we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. But it had the highest ever Thursday gross until Episode Two came out in two thousand two. Wow. It said, yeah, uh, had one oh one oh four point three million opening weekend. Uh, Said number one spot for three consecutive weeks until a time to kill, which is very strange that that was a wow. Take it off, yeah. Uh, moreover, it beat Terminator Two Judgment Day's record for largest five day weeking week week Wednesday gross of any film. That is really impressive for Terminator Two though mm-hmm. to be a rated R, R movie and make that much money. That's yeah. big. Um, but, yeah. Combined total. Uh, uh, five day Wednesday opening eventually dethroned by Toy Story. Um, had the second highest opening weekend of any movie behind Batman Forever. Wow. Uh, all three figures broke record set by Jurassic Park three years earlier. Uh, so, and it says then uh, the same year, Men in Black surpassed uh, Independence Day in well, '97. I was talking about Lost World. Jurassic Park came out. Uh, Men in Black in '97 surpassed Independence Day for highest July opening weekend and largest three day. Fourth of July. I mean, it was that millennium right in there. And again, know? I'm I hate to be beating a dead horse. Like, remember when like the highest grossing movies were these movies? Yeah, when they I were know. just like that high quality. And even and, like, this movie, which is like not good definitively, anyway. I'd say like, it's a it's low, like a pretty. It's a three. It's a pretty like if you squint. Like, like, yeah, no, it's literally right there on the cusp of like, is this good or is this average? Yeah. Um, but even still, this was like. When movies were movies, you know, it was also, just like let's just go I, see Independence. Deeply Day, iconic said. teaser trailer. Oh yeah, which has yeah. the White House blowing up in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was a big. No, that big is a deal. truly. I think like, that aired during the Super Bowl, and that was yeah. a big deal. I think that few images in movies have been more exciting, thrilling, horrifying, yeah. disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> then the image of the White House being blown up and the helicopter going sideways. Yeah. I mean, that's just like. When you think movie image, Pop movie you're like, images, that is it. Yeah. Like, I mean, so... That movie well, set the standard in many ways, as you say, a good and bad for what a pop 
Yeah, blockbuster there's a lot of bad. I think there is, are problems you know, with that movie, and we'll talk about it as we go. Yeah, but it also has moments like, like I said, that scene of like it has stuff with Harvey Firestein. It has stuff with uh, Judd Hirsch. I'm very hard um, on Will Smith you know, a lot, but yeah. that movie and Men in Black are kind of yeah. Will Smith on his best days. Welcome basically. to Earth. <laughs> I mean, also one of my favorite moments in any movie is that part where he goes outside and picks up the newspaper, and then he looks up and the yeah. ships there and the wife and his wife comes out I was about to say the wife yeah. that's not a very good thing yeah. to say his wife comes out and and she's like oh my god and then it cuts to like the son has like a little like Toy gun. gun he's like boom 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 yeah. like, it's like one of the all time great moments it is weird too um, to think if you're thinking about this in Jurassic Park that like Jeff Goldblum yeah. was like a leading presence in both of these and, big and not even arguably movies. definitively a sex symbol in yeah. both movies is very strange. Jurassic Park, yeah, but especially yeah, this, that. Yeah, but even in this, this is like, ooh, Jeff Goldblum is like, because ooh, he's his his ex wife works with the president, and it's like you know very yeah. Um, that adds an but, interesting little wrinkle, I think, to the yeah. characters in the movie. Bill Pullman, I think he's underrated as a movie president. Yeah, I mean, well, he's, he's pretty good. I mean, the big monologue he has at the end is shared ad nauseum in a lot of times. But and hit one of his guys in his cabinet is the guy that's in the game is like that kind of villain oh, in the yeah, game, yeah, yeah, one yeah. of the villains in that. And yeah, this movie's just filled with like that person, that person, that person. I mean, Randy Quaid moment all oh, time. God, yeah. We're just we're gonna have quite a lot of fun. I gotta say, it, it's gonna be something else. So. When I think of like big dumb July Fourth movies, I think yeah. of this and Armageddon. I've seen this yeah. way more than I've seen. I Armageddon. haven't seen all of Armageddon actually, which is I wouldn't say a sin because who cares? But also, I would like, say actually yeah, this is that. probably marginally better than that. Yeah, uh, I can believe it. He's got space dementia. I mean, <laughs> that's got some. That has a really good cast, though, too. I got to say that uh, just from seeing what the cast is. I like... saw just the other day on uh, Twitter somebody, I don't know if you had seen this, somebody had went to a yard sale and said, I hit the mother. Yeah, and it was like a picture and it was like Shibashimi in that. He's in it for the money. Yeah. Or he's doing it for the money or whatever. And also about Armageddon, we got to say there's our favorite. Some of our favorite stuff from audio commentary ever oh, ben is Ben Affleck talking about that and talking about how stupid <laughs> it is that they came up with the idea to say, let's train these oil drillers to be astronauts. As opposed to right. train astronauts right. to and be he's oil like, how, how hard can it be? You point it at the ground and put and turn it on. <laughs> <laughs> And even he would admit there's more to it than that. Right. But really. He's like, he's like, Shut up, Ben. You don't know what. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, of. of uh, bit Michael Bay. Michael Bay. Um, I am no longer mad at Michael Bay, as our old friend would say. Yeah. Um, General thoughts on Roland Emmerich as far as what he even means or represents. Well, I mean, he's mostly known for a lot of these big disaster movies like, yeah, like Day After Tomorrow. 2012 and, yeah. yeah, I mean, because he did write that, right? Yeah. I think. I mean... He also Listen, didn't he do that we, Moonfall recently? Yeah, we've of, got enough to deal with with these airport movies. Like, yeah. I don't feel like we need to do a whole dance of death with yeah. that Roland Emmerich crap. Yeah, but um, but yeah, I mean, there's a man for every moment. And yeah, he was the man right. for this I moment. Think so. Really, I mean, know? yeah, and like, but honestly, Independence Day is the only of his movies that really lives with me in yeah. any way. It was I think a movie he did that, that Stargate, I think, too, yeah. which came out before. Well, we this. watched this movie a ton on TV, yeah, oh, yeah. and like you know, back in the two thousands, it was like a holy text. I mean, it still and, airs every 
yeah. July 4th in I mean, why State. wasn't I told about this place? I mean, <laughs> just such a big yeah. deal in every way, so... And the whole like going to Area Fifty One and that yeah, I mean this was the era of the X Files too, right. which was yeah. huge with a lot of that stuff. So oh, also Godzilla, I forgot. Oh, a big God. thing. Yeah. I saw that Godzilla. a bunch growing yeah. up. So yeah, um, and the Patriot. Oh God. Yeah, I don't like that movie. <sighs> he made some trash. I gotta tell you. <laughs> Woo. Mm mm That's the sound you make after you go to the bathroom, and you're yeah. like, I can't take it. Woo. Uh, do you know he made uh, there's a movie one... about Stonewall? Yeah. He's gay. I, I thought so, he yeah. was gay, but yeah. There's sure. a. Do you remember that scene at all in the day after tomorrow where uh, I think it's Jake Gyllenhaal outruns cold air, like yeah. cold air is manifested <laughs> as a thing he has to like yeah, outrun. So I stupid. I, see, because I never saw all of Day After Tomorrow, but I always heard how you always told me how bad it was. I hated that, it for yeah. a period of my life. Right. I've not seen it in so long. Uh, but I know that's a movie a lot of people love and are like, oh yeah. Day after tomorrow. Well, that was, was a, a that was like, a classic. Yeah, in the two thousands, Hudson Middle School. Right. Let's throw on a movie, yeah. and that was one right. I remember seeing that, several times. Like, movies like that is literally like Lynn Berry, who I love deeply <laughs> yeah. and still and still work with. Yeah. Um, but movies like that, Red Planet. I never did see Independence that with her, Day. Thing. I I didn't see it, but she yeah. had it. Uh, and like, uh, K nineteen, The Widowmaker. I remember we used to watch <laughs> every so often. So like, uh. Which, by the way, I want to tell a story about that before we let you go, finally. This has been a long episode. Yeah. Um, but one I'm quite proud of. Yeah, I'll I mean, say. it's been all over the place, yeah. but, you know. We started at the Grimace Mill, and here we are. Yeah. <laughs> well, here we are at the seeing the DVD of K-19 The Widowmaker. Uh, I was talking with Tammy Knight, who just retired, and congratulations, Tammy Knight. Kind of a work mom to me. One of many work moms. There are other work moms out there that I don't want to step on their toes. But um, she was cleaning out a bunch of stuff, and she had a DVD of K-19, The Widowmaker, there. And I was like, where did you get that? And she was like, oh, I don't remember. I think somebody gave it to me. And I was like, I guarantee you that's the DVD that Lynn Berry showed me all those years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and I picked it up, and I was like, Catherine Bigelow made this. And Tammy was just nodding like, yeah, mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> like, yeah, and, I, and I don't know. I don't remember if I took it or she just kept it or, or just gave it back to the library. But, yeah, K-19, the Widowmaker's out there somewhere. But you know what's funny about that, too, is you look on the back of it, and it's like that picture of Liam Neeson smiling like, this is K-19, the Widowmaker moment. <laughs> it's like... And I remember we specifically watched that movie because it was like, look, this is what radiation poisoning does to people. And they have to like, have you seen that movie? No, I Okay, haven't. there's a part at the end where they have to go into the nuclear reactor of the sub and like and basically turn it off or yeah, something. it's a pressure valve. Yeah, it opens basically. tremendous pressure. And they like basically die pretty yeah, soon after. Radiated, yeah, um, But it's like, this is what happens. And I was like, we watched this whole movie for that? <laughs> like, but <laughs> it's an all right enough movie. That was actually the first Catherine Bigelow movie I would have seen. Um Harrison Ford's the lead in that, right? Yeah, it's like him and Liam Neeson. Because yeah. I always got it confused, that movie, for a long time, in The Hunt for Red October, which is Sean Connery and Alec Baldwin. Yeah, right. But, and also has Sam Neill sprinkled in there in the mix. <laughs> so, again, we're going to actually <laughs> yeah. drop this for sure so yeah, this on July 3rd. This will actually come out before the kids and Goldeneye pod. Yeah. It would honestly make more sense to have it like in between those since it's ninety six. But we gotta. But we don't care. But well, we gotta celebrate. We just Jordan. gotta get into <laughs> that blue plate <laughs> special. Hi, Audrey. Norma. Have a cup of coffee, please. Sure. I'll have what she's had. Hey, who are you, Pepperoni? Oh, yeah. oh, 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 
Uh, all right, for our second blue plate special. Oh wait. This oh, is our wrap-up. Uh, apologies to Matt Damon. We're all yeah. out of time. Yeah. Uh, but again, this is going to be dropping yeah. July 3rd, so uh, right before Independence Day. So that was you know, when it came you're, out, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. it, it came out on July 3rd specifically. And, uh, yeah, so it came out on July 3rd. So as you're, as you're grilling the hot dogs and... Having you a slaw dog on the side it's like a and Monday. grilling the burgers. Mondays, like, am I right? Mm-hmm. But it's Independence Day. Uh, so yeah, so we're gonna be doing a commentary of Independence Day, which we'll probably do a little bit of discussion of just yeah, slightly we'll before, just and then mostly be watching yeah. the movie. Though we talked so. enough about it now, that I think it's all right. But oh my god, we're done, Kyle. We're finished. Uh, last thing, though. Actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. By the way, uh, last thing. Let's go through all of Henry James's work. Let's just do that real quick. <laughs> uh, to honor Cormac McCarthy, we thought yeah. we would um, drop a little clip of again. It's very strange that somebody that was as reclusive as him talked to like Oprah Winfrey in a big yeah. nationally broadcast uh, television interview. Um, around, as we said earlier, I think around the time the road had came and yeah. uh, came out in the afterglow of that. Here he is talking about kind of the concept of subconscious and language, which I think yeah. is a very fascinating... Kind of all those things we talked about earlier a little bit that he had thing. been fascinated by. But him and Oprah talking about that. So this is Kyle. This is Levi. Take care. God bless. Well, when you were in the process of... Uh, how do you know when it's time to let it go? How do you know when the book has said you're done? How do you know? Well, you, yeah, you just know. I mean, you, you told the story and that's it. Um, I don't. I think it's just part of the whole, the whole enterprise. The same way you know. The same thing that tells you what to write. Mm-hmm. Tells you when to stop writing it. It does. I think so. Yeah. I was going to say a while ago about we were talking about this thing about the sense of taking dictation. Mm-hmm. Henry Miller, when Henry, Henry Miller was working on his second book in Paris after he'd published *Tropic of Cancer*. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, "He said he would get up every morning and would go in and sit down at the typewriter and poise his hands o- his hands over the key, and he would call out in French, J'écoute, I'm listening.' And said, oh, yeah. and here it would come, and he'd, yeah, it'd say, 'Slow down, you know.' Wow. He said you couldn't even go to the bathroom. <laughs> wow. And uh, he wrote an entire book like that. That was just all dictated every word. Do you word do of some it. form of that, really? Some form, yeah." Because you know, don't let your scientist friends know. <laughs> well, they know. They know about the unconscious, and you know, even even if you the unconscious is always with us. Even even as I'm talking to you, mm-hmm. I'm very busy talking, and I'm watching you to see what your reactions are, and I'm saying these words. But but somewhere in my head, someone's making up the next thing I'm going to say, which mm-hmm. I don't even know what it is yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you can't do two things at the same time. Yeah. And it may be that you know, the subconscious is really a committee. And uh, they they may have meetings and say, what do you think we should tell him? Should we tell him that? No, he's not ready for that. Well, this, <laughs> it's a way of putting things, but it's very, uh, you know, sometimes the, the sense of the subconscious, the, the sense of the, of the subconscious and its role in your life is just... Uh, Something you can't ignore. No, you can't. In science, a lot of times, a lot of times, the people work on problems and just hit a wall and can't solve them. And they'll be so- the most famous one. Be solved in dreams. The most famous one is is Kakuli's benzene ring. 
Hmm. He was dozed. He was. He was. He couldn't figure out what benzene looked like. He couldn't figure out the the shape of the molecules and everything. And and he fell asleep in front of his fire. And he and he dreamt of the hoop snake, the Eurobarus, the snake with its mm -hmm. tail in its mouth. Mm -hmm. And when he woke up, he realized, oh, it's a ring. <coughs> well, that his dream. Yeah. Came to the dream, and the dream is the subconscious. Yeah. Yeah. And, but that raises the question as to why, you know, if if your subconscious has solved this problem and is ready to tell you. Why wouldn't it just say, hey, Kukuli, it's a ring. ring. Yeah, why wouldn't it do it that way? We don't know, but it may, it may have to it's do with... It's that brain thing again. It may have to do with you know, the subconscious being older than language, and maybe it's more comfortable creating little dramas and telling you things. But it has to understand language. I and love that thought. Yeah. I love the thought of that, the subconscious being older than language. I hadn't thought of it that way before. Yeah, yeah. so maybe, you know... Language is pretty, we have a linguistic program here at, at SFI. Um, and, uh, you know, we meet occasionally and have <coughs> language from all over the world. A lot of them are from Russia. Um, but, you know, language is, language is probably no more than about 70,000 years old. Well, compared to the three or four million years that we've been here, that's very recent. Um, but it understands language because it understands the problems that you're working on. And then it, when you're sleeping, it will work on them for you. Um, and that's why the rings came when he went to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, see, sometimes it will it will be quite specific. There's a, there was some years ago a, a, a math mathematician at MIT, and he uh, he was working on a problem that was really very important to him. It was a major problem, and he just could not get it. And he he absolutely had hit a wall. And his friends were worried about him. His wife was worried about him. Mm -hmm. He was very depressed, and then one night he went to sleep, and he dreamt he was having dinner with John Nash. With John Nash? Yeah, and everybody knows John Nash because there was a film made about him, A Beautiful <clears> Mind. <throat> and, mm -hmm. and, and so they're chatting, and in the course of this conversation, he explained the problem to Nash. And Nash said, hmm, I think I see something. Let me borrow your pencil. And he wrote some equations on the napkin and explained what he'd done, and then the guy woke up. And he turned on the lamp. And he had his little pad by the table there. And he scribbled down the equations and scribbled down a couple of notes to himself and went back to sleep. Well, the next morning he woke up and the first thing he thought was, God, what a strange dream. I wonder what kind of gibberish I've written on my little pad. And when he looked on the pad, here was this really elegant solution to the problem. Whoa. So he wrote up the paper and he cited Nash's co-author. I fucked your sister, but not your wife, because I, I respect you. your wife.